Steve Young's in dear old Boston, the home of the cod and the bean. Now the first American, uh, American city to zone those darned machines. The way officials tell it, Boston has become the victim of an electronic blight. With fewer than 600,000 people, the city has four to 5,000 video games, not just in arcades, but also in drugstores, pizza parlors, supermarkets. In some sections of the city, uh, we have a machine or two machines and sometimes three machines in virtually every single corner store in a neighborhood. City officials today announced that video games no longer will be licensed in residential areas, only in commercial and industrial neighborhoods. Officials say they are responding to complaints from parents that children have skipped school or stolen money to play the games and made a nuisance of themselves. Senior citizens have rights. They have rights to go into the laundromat and wash their the laundry in peace. They don't have to go buy two or three machines or kids congregating and passing fast remarks as they walk in and terrorizing them in some instances as they go in. Under the new regulations, licenses for about half the video games already in Boston are unlikely to be renewed, including those in the basement of the South Boston Martial Arts Academy. The reason um, we requested to have video games is so we could bring in extra money so we could allow those kids that are out in our neighborhoods that can't afford to come. When they don't have something to do, when they're walking the streets, that's when problems are created, not because of machines. The lack of machines causes problems. You're always talking about this demeaning kid, making kids' minds like vegetables. Talk about them out on the streets, smoking pot. One MIT study of more than 800 video game players found no basis in fact for an underlying fear expressed by parents during public hearings that video games lead to violence. Though a conclusive study has yet to be conducted, Boston went ahead with its restrictive rules. The industry plans to fight City Hall in court. There have been skirmishes before as smaller communities acted, but now a full-scale battle has been joined between the video game industry and its opponents. Steve Young, CBS News, Boston. Oh, my goodness. The senior citizens trying to do laundry are being abused in Boston in the early 1980s. They, they just want to go in and do their laundry. And, and kids are congregating around those machines and sometimes abusing the senior citizens. The good news for the senior citizens is I have a feeling they're not around anymore, almost 40 years later. Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on November 13th, 2020 at 10, 11 p.m. It's the time right now. We have a free roll. We have a free roll. It is $50, and it began... Well, first at 9.30 p.m., and then I realized that I was going to be too late to be able to get on before late registration ended, so I moved it to 9.50 p.m. Bad guy claimed he doubled up, which might be true because someone busted, but they get a second chance, and bad guy also gets a second chance to double up again because he goes back to a starting stack. So it restarted at 9.50 p.m. You have until 10.15 p.m. to get in with late registration. Four more minutes on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. $50 this week, 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third. The money this week came from three sources. Kilgore Trout. Yes, that Kilgore Trout gave $10. Tasha's losing lottery picks. Not Tasha, but her losing lottery picks. $15, and Jeff Dime, who has appeared on the show before, $25 from him. Thank you to the three of you. That makes 50 for the prize pool of 25 15 and 10 for the top three places. I have an announcement about the chat room. 
Remember, you had to go through this whole process to get into the chat room. You had to go log out and log back in, and you had to have Flash on your device, and it wouldn't work with iPhones and iPads, and it also had some other additional instructions, which you had to follow to even get in there in the first place. It was very difficult to get into the chat room, and it didn't work on a lot of devices. And I promised you, I promised you and Calwatt, who was very anti this chat room and very anti-Flash, which it was a Flash chat room, that I would bring in a new chat room. I I said by the end of the year, I'd bring in a new chat room. And what I was waiting for was a piece of chat software that promised to be completed by the end of the year. They promised a version that did not have Flash, even though it was a Flash chat room. Not the one I was running, but a different one I wasn't running was also a Flash chat. And they said, we know Flash is going away. By the end of the year, we're going to release a Flash chat or a non-Flash chat. So I waited and we got to close to mid-November and I said, you know what? I want to make sure that they're really going to do this. And I looked and they hadn't updated their status since June. So I had a feeling it's not going to be done. And then we'd be left with no chat room at all because Flash will cease to work at all in 2021. So I said, okay, I've got to do something different. So I went searching high and low for a chat room. I went searching high and low so I could find something to replace our Flash chat room before the end of the year. And I found something. See, a lot of people have complained over the last several years that Poker Fraud Alert was starting to look dated and that having a Flash chat room made our site look like it was from the early 2010s. And given that we are in 2020, you know, it's a good point. It's a good point that I should not have a chat room which makes our site look like it's in the 2010s. So I said, all right, I promise you guys no more 2010s chat room and whatever I replace it with will not be a 2010s chat room. And I am glad to report I kept that promise because I replaced it with a 2000s chat room. <laughs> I'm not joking. That's what I did. We have a chat room written in 2007, which is currently running on PokerFraudAlert.com. But sometimes the classics never die. Sometimes you don't need new technology. Sometimes what's best is what was already there. Think about Skype. 2008 Skype was so much superior to 2020 Skype. And it's not just me who says this. Like he, Even Fedor Holtz said that 2008 Skype was a lot better. It was. It was a lot better. Microsoft has ruined it. So just because we have advanced 13 years and advanced in technology in those 13 years, yes, that is when the first smartphone came out in 2007. Yes, in that realm, we have very much advanced. But what about in chat rooms? Is it possible we've taken a step back? I say yes. So I went and got a chat room written in 2007, and I customized it so it works properly with Poker Fraud Alert, and I made some modifications so it fits our needs better. It took me some time, but here it is. It works. So if you click the chat button... You need a Poker Fraud Alert forum account in good standing and validated. You still need that. That's my decision. But if you have that, you no longer need a Flash-enabled device. The chat room now does work on mobile devices, including iPhones and iPads. It works. Go ahead and try it. Now, if you're listening in the archives, there's going to be nobody in the chat room, though you will be able to scroll back and see the last uh, things people said. But if you're listening live, go in. There are people in there right now. I'm in there. I'm looking. And the chat room, if you remember IRC, Internet Relay Chat from the 90s, 
Uh, it's an IRC style chat. There's a lot of similarities to 1990s IRC, but this chat room itself was written in 2007. And I have uh, massaged it so it will fit in with our forum. And it does not require a separate login. I was very, very insistent upon replacing the chat room with something else that just logs you in directly with your Poker Fraudler forum account. And the reason for that is otherwise people can imitate each other. They can even imitate me. You know, if if I have a standalone chat room, then people could go in and put any name and uh, imitate others in the forum. And I know, I know with our forum people that this would happen. So I, I had to prevent that. I had to make it an integrated chat room that would use your forum login to automatically log you in. So go try it. It's our non-flash chat room. It works with everyone and everything. Because in 2007, that's the way it had to be. And that's the way it has to be again as we come close to 2021. You can even roll dice in the chat room. There's a roll dice button. Try it. You, you can click the roll dice button and it'll roll a die for you. Only one die, unfortunately. It says roll dice. It's actually one die. You can try that, and there's a few hidden commands, especially if you used IRC in the past, that you might be able to figure out. Though I've disabled some of them. Like it let, used to let you post images in the chat room, and as fun as that might be, I know it'll be abused. So I had to turn that off. Anyway, there it is. Chat room's there, and all the flash is now gone from the site. Okay, Calwatt? You win. I have removed all flash from Poker Fraud Alert, which he's been asking for for the last few years, and I refused. But now there's no more flash radio player. Now, the radio plays from any device. There's no more Flash chat room. Everything that was Flash has been taken out. And it'll never be back. That's my little Poker Fraud Alert announcement. And that, that should conclude the work I am doing on the site for some time. First, I had to do some work on the radio player. Then I had to do some work on the chat room. I also had to do some work to get uh, iHeartRadio and Spotify working. But I, I think I'm going to take a break from Poker Fraud Alert work, especially since I... Don't make money on the site. If you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. We also have a mountain phone number, and there is snow there. It snowed on Mount Charleston. We have a mountain phone number, the Mount Charleston line, 702-430-1808, 702-430-1808. It is located in a cabin. In Mount Charleston, it's an old 70s rotary phone. I actually went to the snow two days ago. Not Mount Charleston. I wish it was, but I went to the snow. And Benjamin played and tobogganed down the hill. Yes, I went to the snow in California on November 10th. In Southern California on November 10th. And just about nobody was there because people didn't realize that there is snow in Southern California. It won't last very long, but there at least was snow in Southern California when I went. That's the closest thing I've had to a trip this year. It's only a day thing. We didn't stay overnight anywhere. If you want to call the call to listen line, it's a number you can call and listen to the show at any time from anywhere using any phone, any device that can dial. It does not require a smartphone, does not require the internet, does not require a data plan. It can be back in 2007 and you could use it. Wouldn't be up yet, but theoretically you could use it. The phone number is... 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. There is also the alternate number, 641-741-1095. You just call up and listen. Never buffers, never freezes. It just works. And unless you have T-Mobile, it's a free call, provided you can 
call the middle of the country without paying a toll, which most of you can these days. Okay. Let's see what else I have of the intro stuff. I can't find Trader Ruski tonight. I have a feeling he's doing that thing he's been doing recently where he's going to sleep early and then waking up at 3.30 in the morning. So I have a feeling that's when we'll hear from him. He didn't promise that. I'm just saying that that's my guess. If you want to text the show, same as the main phone number, 775-372-8355. And we were not on last week. Well, we kind of weren't on last week. We had our election special, our video show. It was very well received. If you missed it, even though a lot of it is dated now because we were talking about the election on the night of the election and a lot has changed since then. But if you want to see it or just uh, if you want to see what everybody looks like, including Calwatt, including Trey Ruski, including Brandon, including uh, Jean Gluck, who was somehow on the show. <laughs> she was on for most of the time. I didn't even know she was going to be on the show till uh, the day of. Then also PLOL, you can see what he looks like. And uh, some people came on audio only, like Daily and uh, Matos. But uh, yeah, definitely go listen. Asanatine was on there if you want to see what he looks like. So we had uh, a very good show. And we analyzed the election as it was happening. Ended up being a little more partisan than I expected. Though definitely it was balanced. I'll say that. There was definitely uh, left-wing viewpoints expressed and right-wing viewpoints expressed. Mostly by me, but... uh, You had both sides, for sure. It definitely was not a right-wing podcast, if you're worried about that. It was kind of the opposite. There was more more, uh, left representation there than right, but uh, I took up for the right. But it it wasn't so much a political debate. It was more just analysis as the night went on. And it's right there on YouTube if you search for uh, PFA Election. Look for PFA Election on YouTube, and you can find it on there and watch it. Some people have asked, are we going to ever do that again? Are we ever going to have another video show like this, or do we have to wait four years until the 2024 election? The answer is yes. We're going to have another video show in 2020. So stay tuned for details on that. It's not going to be a political show. So if you're tired of politics, good news, it's not going to be a political show. And it's going to be a show kind of centered around the forum. So if you are a forum person who kind of feels like radio ignores you and radio almost doesn't acknowledge you exist, then good news for you, this is going to be a lot about the forum. But I think the people who just listen to the radio should find it amusing as well. So that'll be sometime in December. But the exact date will be given later, and the exact details will be given later. But we got a very good reaction from the video show on November 3rd. Since I was part of the video show for most of the time, it wasn't my show. I wasn't running it. Uh, It was actually run by PLOL and Brandon, and they did a very good job. But uh, I actually wasn't even there the entire time. Actually, nobody was there the entire time. Everybody took a little time off during it, and I was there most of the time. But I was not the one actually directing the whole thing. But still, I spent a lot of hours on it. And I knew after spending all those hours that it was just too much to go come back and uh, do a long radio show three days later on Friday. So I announced beforehand that we were not going to have a regular show that week. And the next show would be today, November 13th. So it's been two weeks since we had a regular show. A lot has happened with the election. Of course, there's always poker and gambling news that adds up over those two weeks. Whenever we have a two-week break between shows, there's a lot to talk about. So I imagine it's going to be a long show tonight, though – Not having a co-host actually speeds it up a bit because I don't have someone to go back and forth with. So we might pick up, you know, you never know. We might get Brandon later 
We might get Trader Ruski later. They tend to wake up at odd hours of the night, and if they see radios going, then that's uh, they can decide to come on here, and they're always welcome. So let me give you the agenda, and we'll get going. We don't have any interviews planned tonight. No, we've had some of those lately. I'll try to get some more of those coming up. But this week, we do not have any scheduled. Master Scaler, whom I'll be I can find tonight. The lead story is going to be about him. Master Scaler, a longtime friend of mine. I have known him now for uh, about 30 years. And Master Scaler got the bad news recently that he has COVID-19. It was confirmed earlier today, though he has been feeling symptoms since November 2nd. So I'll tell you more about that. He is 50 years old. No pre-existing conditions, but he is 50 years old. So if you get COVID-19 at age 50, there's a lot of ways it can go. It can range all the way from uh, asymptomatic to killing you. And it's not like getting it when you're really old, but it's also not like getting it when you're 25. It's a very, very big difference. So I was worried for him. And I'll tell you how he's doing, and we'll see if we can reach him. I talked to him earlier tonight, and then he kind of vanished on me. Joe Biden looks like he has won the election. If you don't believe that, then you're in denial. And the Democrats otherwise struggled in the other elections, in the House elections and the Senate elections. They expected to do much better than they did. The House election was a disaster for them. The Senate, they ended up uh, looking like, like they picked up one seat. There's a runoff for two seats, but they did not reclaim the majority. It's pretty unlikely that the runoffs would both win for them. So it looks like the Senate's going to remain with the Republicans and the House, it's going to remain with the Democrats, but it's going to get a lot closer. So that's a very, very disappointing outcome for the Democrats who were expecting that if Biden wins, that they are going to have a really good night all around. That did not happen. In fact, it was the opposite. So we're going to talk about what that means. And by the way, I'm going to be honest, and I'm going to try to be as nonpartisan as I can, though I admit I have a bias, so that probably will come out. But this isn't going to sound like uh, right-wing talking points, and uh, it's definitely not going to sound like left-wing talking points, but I'm going to be honest. So I'm not going to say this got stolen from Trump. So if you're on the right and hoping that I'm going to say that, I'm not going to. I believe Biden won. I believe he won fairly. I'm also not going to say that uh, this was an incredible victory for the Democrats and that they have a lot to be happy about because other than getting rid of Trump, they don't. So I'll tell you what all that means, at least in my opinion. Speaking of the election, I have some outstanding political bets on that election. And when I say outstanding, I don't mean the result was outstanding, though maybe that'll be what ends up occurring. But I had some bets, including one big underdog bet that if it hits – I'll get paid very nicely, but it's uh, looking very precarious. It's looking more likely not to hit than hit, which is kind of sad. But it hinges upon the unsettled house races, and I'll tell you a bit about that when we get to that segment. Of course, if you are an online gambler, either a poker player or a sports better, or maybe even a casino player, you may wonder, what is now the future for online gambling under a Biden administration? I will tell you what I think is going to be the future and if it's going to really change anything with Biden winning versus Trump winning this election. I'm talking about from an online gambling perspective. The WSOP main event is going to take place in 2020, but not quite the way you might think. 
if you haven't heard the news, then you might be surprised by some of the details. It's, it's weird. Let me just tell you that. It's a, it's a weird setup they have going on. Is it an online main event? Yes. Is it a live main event? Yes. That, yeah, I, I'm, I didn't make a mistake there. Yes to both. I will explain when we get to that segment, and I'll tell you my issues with it. Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu have gotten going with their heads-up match. They have played four sessions that have totaled 1,737 hands. They played the first one live. They've played the next three online. The vast majority of it will be online. And it's gone back and forth. Started off well for Daniel. Went very badly for Daniel. Looked like Daniel was going to get absolutely crushed in the online portion. And Daniel came back. And now is slightly ahead. So I'll tell you some more about that when we discuss the heads-up match right now, which has uh, surprised some people. Vanessa Selbst maybe surprised some people. She wrote a really vile tweet about assassinating President Trump. That is not good at all. So uh, that could be some trouble for her. She deleted the tweet. Don't don't go look for it. But I, I have it saved on Poker Fraud Alert in case you'd like to see it. California's San Manuel casinos were shocked when their free play was not exactly what they were expecting. They went to go pick up their free play and found that they were given 100 times the free play than what they were told they would get. So if you were expecting $500 in free play, you were given $50,000 in free play. Wow. This was everybody, not just select people. So I'll tell you about what happened there. It's a story that hasn't gotten much coverage other than on Poker, other than on poker Fraud Alert. Ryan Feldman, formerly of Live at the Bike, and honestly would probably come on here. I have a good relationship with him. But he has taken a job at the nearby Hustler Casino in Southern California, and he's going to be developing a live stream over there, which they've never had before. So I'll tell you a bit more about the Hustler Casino. I've talked about it before on this show, but... I'll tell you a little bit about it again, and then we'll talk about uh, Ryan Feldman and what the future what the future likely is regarding his venture over there. Remember, there were some gambling measures on the November ballot in various states. I'll tell you how those did. DraftKings Sportsbook had a high limit better play some very very large parlays. I mean, huge parlays. And he got his account frozen because he was using a betting proxy. That is, he had somebody else place the bets for him. And now a controversy is ensuing about that whole matter. So I will tell you about the DraftKings situation and the betting by proxy. And I'll tell you what we can learn from that. We do have some pretty big coronavirus news since I was last on. The biggest one being that Pfizer claims that their vaccine has a 90% success rate, which would be very, very big if true. And I will emphasize very much if true. I'll tell you why I'm emphasizing that when we get to that segment. We will take a look at the real and somewhat surprising coronavirus death numbers by age. And when I say somewhat surprising, I'm talking about, uh, this is from the CDC, by the way. This isn't from some uh, kind of propaganda site. I'm looking at, at the CDC's own numbers that are not morphed or uh, massaged in any way. And I'm going to read them to you. You're going to be surprised about uh, 
certain age groups and how many people have died from those groups. Some of them will surprise you, some of them won't. And finally, are we really in danger of running out of hospital beds in hospitals because of COVID patients? There are some COVID hotspots. There is some concern that in these hotspots like Oklahoma City, that they are going to actually run out of beds and people are going to be sent home instead of being treated in the hospital like they need to be and that people might die because of this. Are these concerns valid? You're starting to see them in the media again. We saw these concerns back in the spring. And is it possible that this is going to actually happen now, not in New York City like they were worried back in the spring, but it's going to happen in places like Oklahoma City? Is that a valid concern or is it being overblown by the media? I will tell you my take on the whole thing when we get to that segment. So that is our agenda tonight. So first of all, I'd like to talk about Master Scaler. Master Scaler is someone I met in college. I met him in January of 1991. We're almost at the 30-year anniversary of when I met Master Scaler. In fact, I could probably figure out the exact date. It was in late January, I know, and it was on a Friday. So I could figure it out by just looking at a 1991 calendar. So on that same day in 2021, it'll be 30 years since I met Master Scaler. I met him through a ride board. I was getting a ride back to the L.A. area from UC Santa Barbara, where I went to college, and so was he. That's where I met him for the first time. And it turned out we had some things in common, including that we were both calling L.A. area party lines, yet had not really run into each other yet. I guess he had heard of me, but we really had not talked yet. I hadn't even heard of him. So we became friends, and we've been friends for 30 years. And you guys know, if you've heard him on here, Master Scaler is a very unusual individual, very unique individual. And he'll admit that, too. He also does some uh, reckless things and doesn't live his life very responsibly. I have actually helped him out of a lot of messes in his life. (laughs) I'm kind of like the stable friend he has that uh, helps him out when he gets into a mess. Though he gets in a lot of messes. Like I I get to the point sometimes, I go, whatever, just I'm not even getting involved here. But uh, he was taking some chances about what he was doing this year, and I I felt that it was inevitable that he was going to get COVID-19. I would love to be able to tell you what those chances were, but he doesn't want me telling you guys what those chances were, so I can't. But I will tell you, I will go as far to tell you that I warned him. I warned him several times that certain things he was doing were not smart and that he was going to get COVID-19 eventually, that eventually the odds would catch up with him and he would get it. And that being 50 years old, he doesn't know what's going to happen. It's possible it'll be nothing. It's possible it will be very bad. You don't know. And uh, yeah, I know he's not high risk in that uh, he doesn't have high blood pressure. He doesn't have any other pre-existing conditions. He actually does get exercise because he walks around the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles like all day, every day. So he actually does a lot of walking. Uh, He's a little bit overweight, not obese, but a little bit overweight. But he is 50 years old. That's the biggest thing. And when you're 50 years old, you are at some risk of COVID-19 having very strong symptoms that can harm you permanently or kill you. Death from COVID-19 is not super likely, though it's a realistic concern at 50. It's not all that likely, but again, it's not going to be a huge fluke if it happens. And uh, permanent damage from COVID-19 is fairly common. So once you catch COVID-19 at 50, there is a decent chance, I don't know what the numbers are, but there's a decent chance you're going to walk away with some kind of permanent damage like lung damage. 
And I tried to communicate this to him, but, you know, Master Scalar, he just lives for the moment. And uh, he just does what he wants, and then later on, he sometimes pays the consequences for it. Well, on November 2nd, Master Scalar woke up and noticed that he had a cough, and he started to uh, have some fatigue. He was tired. And for whatever reason, he didn't think that much of it. Then... As the week went on, things started to get worse. He started getting more tired. He started having a worse cough. And finally, he started to get a concern that maybe he has COVID. And he called me. And I told him, yes, I think you have it. Now, he has a friend named Ryan. And he had been hanging out with Ryan. And Ryan also was feeling sick. Now, it took a few days until I talked to Ryan. But I was talking to Ken, and he's telling me he's got a very bad dry cough. It's the worst he's had in his life. And he's very fatigued. He did not have a thermometer, so he could not take his temperature. He couldn't tell if he had a fever or not. I can usually tell when I have a fever, at least a high one, without taking my temperature. But he didn't have a thermometer. He couldn't tell if he had a fever or not, so whatever. He did not lose smell or taste. So he didn't have that like pretty much 100% uh, symptom. Because if you lose smell or taste completely out of nowhere, then you have COVID. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. That's, that, unless that happens to you normally. If that doesn't happen to you normally, this is the first time in your life you're losing smell or taste completely, then you have COVID. He didn't have that happen. So there was still some chance that he didn't have COVID. But I thought the overwhelming likelihood was that he had COVID because of the terrible dry cough that he couldn't emphasize enough how bad it was, and the extreme fatigue, which wasn't as bad as other people. Like some people have the fatigue so badly they can't even get out of bed. He wasn't like that. He was just very fatigued. If he did a little bit, he'd get very tired, kind of like that, kind of, I guess, kind of like the fatigue you would get when you have the flu. So he didn't get as bad of a version as he could have gotten, and he didn't have any breathing problems. So that was the situation during the week starting uh, Monday, November 2nd is when he first felt symptoms. So he wanted to get a COVID test. So I set one up for him. Well, let me sk- I, I, I skipped something. He went to go look about getting a COVID test before even talking to me about having COVID. And I found out something very surprising and, and pretty much shame on the city of Los Angeles and the state of California for this. I learned for the first time that there are COVID tests that cost $240 in the Los Angeles area. Now, don't blame Trump for this. This is not Trump's fault. This is the local government somehow did not outlaw this. I guess they could have on a federal level, which I would agree with. But uh, the local government did not outlaw this. And you may say, I thought I thought it was free with insurance. Well, sort of. If they take your insurance. So if you just try to go to an urgent care and get a COVID test, they're going to charge you $240 if your insurance is not something they take. So that's what uh, some urgent cares were telling Kenny. Over and over, he kept hearing 240 240 240 Well, finally, he found an urgent care that did take his insurance but said it was going to be, it's going to be the cost of an office visit. So the test itself will be free, but the office visit for the test will not be free. So I said, this is bullshit. There are free COVID tests out there in Los Angeles. He says, okay, well, how do I find them? And I said, that's an excellent question. I don't know. And I realized that I did not know how you'd actually find a COVID test. So what did I do? Well, what any normal human being with a computer would do, I Googled it. 
But it was harder to find than I thought. I thought it was going to be something super easy. Just like, here's the locations, show up there, they'll test you. No, 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 no. It was nowhere near that easy. There was a very poorly designed, kind of complex website. And when I say complex, I don't mean it was like the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, for someone who's not all that computer literate and not used to using the internet, definitely someone who's like trying to use the phone to access it, it's going to be hard. It was something that was not all that user-friendly or easy to navigate. And you had to go through this map to figure out on the map where the COVID testing locations were. And a lot of them had no appointments for, for another week or so. And that's the other problem. You had to set up an appointment. These were not just like drop in and, and wait in line. You actually had to make an appointment through this weird website or otherwise you could not take a COVID test. So first of all, you need a computer, which not everybody in LA has. You know, what about the poorer people with no computer, no internet? Uh, so you need a computer or at least a smartphone. But as I said, on the smartphone, it's kind of difficult. It's not an easy site to use. You have to uh, go through this map and find ones with uh, testing times that uh, at least are in your general area that you can get to. And then you have to schedule a time. So I go, okay. I went through it. I found one for him in uh, Panorama City, which is the North San Fernando Valley. Not all that close to him, but close enough. I set it up, and uh, then it says, do you have insurance? Yes, no. Well, this is where the next problem came up. Master Scaler lost his wallet and his ID three weeks ago. Which is typical. He's lost that so often. For some reason, he's always losing his wallet and ID. I've never lost my wallet once, and I lost my ID only once, and it was this year, and I got it back. I was lucky. I dropped it on a hiking trail, fell out of my pocket when I pulled my phone out, and my ID came flying away, and I didn't notice. And fortunately, somebody found it and then tracked me down through Facebook, and I met them, and they gave me the ID back. It turned out to be kind of like a casual fan of poker, too. He's like, oh, cool, you have a World Series bracelet. <laughs> the guy was all uh, happy that he gave it to me, that uh, like I was I was very happy he gave it to me, but he, you know, he thought it was kind of cool that I was a World Series of Poker bracelet winner. So that was kind of funny. That would be found by a guy who was a fan of poker. I wasn't sure if he'd heard of me beforehand, but whatever. I was just happy to get the ID back. But anyway, other than that, I've never lost my ID. But Master Scaler loses it all the time. And he lost his whole wallet. So he didn't have ID to show up for the uh, the appointment. So it says, do you have insurance? Yes, no. Well, he actually has insurance. Kind of a crappy insurance, but he has insurance. But I'm like, okay, if I say yes for him, then they might want his ID to prove that he is who he says he is so they can bill insurance because I don't believe they can bill insurance without verifying his identity. So I'm like, well, crap. And, you know, I'll just say no because it said if you don't have insurance, no worries. We'll test you anyway for free. So basically th this was a, a company that contracted with the city from LA to do these free tests, but they're not really free. They actually get billed to insurance. You just don't pay out of, your po out of your pocket. And an agreement they made with the city of LA was that if people show up with no insurance, they'll just test them anyway and eat the cost. So I'm like, okay, I'd like to see this company get paid for their efforts, but I don't want to see Master Scaler get turned away. So I'm just going to say he has no insurance. They won't be able to know. So I enter that he has no insurance. And then it says, okay, now upload a copy of your ID. <laughs> I was like, oh, come on. Come on. Why is this so hard? Why? Like, wh why do you need your ID if it's if it's uh, no insurance? And then I'm reading on, oh, we, we need to verify you don't have insurance. So 
we can uh, we can still test you without insurance. It's, it's really convoluted. I'm like, okay, what if you have no ID like he does? Like you just can't get tested? So I didn't know what the hell to do. Well, I dug through my computer and I actually found a picture of his ID. Not a very clear one, but I found a picture of his ID that uh, he had sent me uh, a, a while ago, but it's still valid. He had sent me for another reason to prepare something for him. So uh, I, I uploaded that. <laughs> And then I, I went back and said he did have insurance, and then we entered his info. And see, I wasn't sure what to do because I was afraid once I provided that ID that they were going to check and see he did have insurance and wouldn't test him. So it was very tough to decide what to do there since he had no ID with him anymore. So I was worried he'd be turned away, and I wasn't sure if he was going to be able to talk them into it. I would have been able to talk my way into it probably, but uh, I wasn't sure if he could. I was afraid he'd just be turned away. It's so stupid how hard this is, though. Like, like first of all, there should not be any COVID test that costs any money at this point at all, anywhere. If you get a COVID test, it should be free. If they want to bill insurance, fine. But the people should never have to pay money for a COVID test. Not for the test, not for an office visit, for nothing. Why? Because it is in the public interest to not charge people. Because a lot of people, like Master Scaler, don't have a lot of money. And especially right now, when it's hard to get a job, when a lot of people lost their jobs, when there's a lot of uh, financial hurt from COVID, and even those who were hurting financially before COVID, they don't want to pay $240 or even $50 for an office visit to go get a COVID test. They'll just tough it out and not take one. So you want people to know they have COVID, so they stay away from people. So how stupid is this that it is hard to figure out how to get tested for free? It wasn't impossible or super hard, but it was hard enough to where it wasn't a snap for me to do. And keep in mind, I'm a guy who has been on the internet for over 25 years. I'm a guy who is extremely computer savvy. I'm a guy who programmed for a living before I play poker. And even I found it to be kind of cumbersome and difficult to set up. So can you imagine what the average person who doesn't have this degree of computer literacy or may not even own a computer and is just quickly trying to borrow one? Can you imagine like what they have to go through? And what if you have no computer? How do you do it? None of this was easy. It should be way easier. They should set up a hotline, a very well-publicized hotline. You call such and such 800 number. They set it up for you. You go there. You have no ID? No problem. You have no insurance? No problem. We test you. If you happen to have both, okay, good. They build the insurance. should be something like that. It should be, there should be lots of walk-ins. Lots of walk-ins. A lot of these are drive-up only. I found I had to find walk-ins for him because he has no car. They're, they should have ones that you walk up to with no appointment and just wait online. Instead of making an appointment through this computer. The whole thing was a freaking mess. So, big thumbs down to the city of Los Angeles and the state of California for their bungling of this. This is really a local matter. Again, yeah, the federal government could have done more to outlaw this, but it really is something the state should be taking care of. It really is something the local government should be taking care of. This is where local government needs to take responsibility and do it right. But they didn't. And it was very surprising and disappointing. So that was pretty eye-opening. I didn't know about any of this because I have had not had a need for a COVID test, nor have I had a need to set one up for anybody. This was the first time that came up. And Master Scaler, if left to his own devices, he would have had a very hard time doing it. He didn't know what to do. He didn't know where to go. He would have had a hard time with all this. So he would have just not done it. He really wanted one, but he would have just not done it. He would have been overwhelmed by this and said, forget it. And I think that's probably what a lot of people concluded who didn't have the uh, ability to set this up or were turned off by the 
the money because they, well, he, he even tried to call some CVSs and Walgreens and they would do it, but then most of them charged money or they didn't have availability. Everything he tried either didn't work or cost money. So he said, screw it. So it was me who had to find it for him. Then uh, one other person I know who had contact with Master Scaler and Ryan, like right before he showed symptoms, which was the time when he's the most contagious, and we think that's when Ryan caught it. Um, we found, we think Ryan got it from Master Scaler. So this third person had no symptoms, but this third person is in their mid forties, and they were concerned. You know, what if I have it? At, at this point, they know they didn't have, they didn't get, either didn't get it or had no symptoms because it's been almost two weeks. But uh, at the time, they thought maybe I should get tested. But this person lived in Orange County, and they also had no clue how to find a free test in Orange County. And when they tried, it was it was kind of hard, and they gave up. So I guess it's not just L.A. Pretty eye-opening. you got to make these things really, really simple. It reminds me a little bit of Bitcoin. You may say, well, what does that have to do with Bitcoin? Well, aside from the fact that Bitcoin's been shooting way up. Uh, oh, you know what? I, I forgot we have a topic about Bitcoin tonight. I didn't put on the agenda. I'll try to remember to do that. But anyway, back to Bitcoin. All the Bitcoin enthusiasts have been saying for years, for seven years now, more than seven years, they've been saying, I think for nine years they've been saying it, that Bitcoin is going to be the future. That's going to replace cash. That's going to be the way people pay for everything online. Okay, well, we've had almost a decade of Bitcoin, and while the value went way up, then way down, and way back up, okay, value-wise it did fine, but is it in wide use? Are you paying for everyday items with Bitcoin? No. In fact, if you weren't a gambler, which a lot of you are, but if you were not a gambler, especially an online gambler, you probably especially wouldn't be using Bitcoin. I've helped a lot of people who listen to this show learn how to set up Bitcoin so they can do online poker or online gambling because that's the easiest way to get money on and off these sites. But most people aren't doing online poker, online gambling. And uh, if you're not, then uh, you really don't have that much use for Bitcoin unless you have an interest in it. But the average person has no clue how to use Bitcoin. They're aware of it, but they don't know how to use it, nor do they really want to put out the effort to learn how to use it. So it did not get widespread adoption like all the enthusiasts were saying it would. And the biggest reason is the barrier to entry as far as the ability to learn it and use it easily. And while it's very simple to someone who knows a lot about it, it is not easy to somebody who's not computer savvy, someone who doesn't understand the underlying comp- concepts behind Bitcoin, someone who doesn't understand the whole wallet thing and the whole uh, and, and the whole Bitcoin address thing is very user unfriendly. There's like long string of gibberish. Like th- this is something that is not appealing to the general public. It needs to be easy. It needs to be like PayPal. It needs to be like Venmo. That that's that's what will catch on. Bitcoin is too complex and too difficult to set up. Too difficult to maintain. There, there's I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm saying for the average person, there's just too much of a barrier and people don't want to bother with it. So I said Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are never going to experience widespread adoption until it becomes easy for the general public. If a kid can't do it, if an old person can't do it, it's not going to be something that is going to be easy to use. And when I say a kid, I don't mean like a computer genius 10-year-old. I mean like you know the average kid who isn't that computer savvy. If you can't teach him really fast, and if you can't teach your 80-year-old grandma really fast, then it's, it's not going to work. It's, it's not going to ever get widespread adoption. Like PayPal. I could teach an 80-year-old, I could teach a kid how to use PayPal. In fact, Benjamin even signed up for a PayPal account, which is kind of funny because he doesn't qualify for it because he's not 18. But he figured out on his own how to make a PayPal account. So 
the point is here that it's got to be something simple like that, something easy, not something hard. And same with the COVID testing. If it's too hard, if it requires a million steps, if they're, if it's not intuitive, people are not going to do it other than the ones who are really good at this sort of thing. So a big, big thumbs down to California for this. I guess now if I need a COVID test, <laughs> now I know better how to find one. I guess that's the only upside to this whole thing that I've learned. And I won't have to hassle with it when I think I have COVID and feel like shit. Hopefully that day does not come. And we'll talk about the possible vaccine that has some promise later in this show. I really want Master Scaler on here. Before we put him on here, or we probably won't get him on here, but before I might get him on here, you may wonder how is he? Uh, He's doing pretty well right now. The symptoms he has have uh, decreased They're still there. He still has the cough. He still has the fatigue. But he said it's a lesser version. I talked to him today. Because what happened was I I, I didn't finish the story about the testing, I guess. I set up that test in Panorama City, and he slept through it. He was so fatigued that he just slept through his alarm, which is understandable. I wasn't even mad. I said, okay, you know, that happens. So then uh, I set up another one for him. And I told him, check your texts in the morning. So <laughs> I set up another word for him, and uh, he forgot to check his texts. So that one I was kind of annoyed because he was up. He just didn't bother to check his texts. He was just uh, thinking about other things. He was uh, there, there was no reason not to because I told him the night before. So I said, okay, this is your last chance, Ken. I'm going to set up one more. Fortunately, this doesn't cost anyone any money, these missed appointments. But I said, I'm going to set up one more. Both of these last two, the, the second and the third I was about to set up, were going to be in Van Nuys, which is closer to him. But I said, I'm going to set up one more in Van Nuys for you for the next day. If you don't check your texts and you don't show up, then you're on your own. I guess you just won't get tested or you can figure it out yourself. I, th- three strikes and you're out, Ken. So he promised he's going to make that one. And then, then he overdid it the other way. He was like afraid to go to sleep because he was afraid he's going to sleep through it. He's like, I'm going to have to pull an all-nighter. I'm like, okay, I think that's overkill, but whatever. Whatever, just make it there. <laughs> so he made it. Then he had to wait a few days for the results. So the results came in today and he's positive, as I mentioned earlier in the segment. So he definitely has it. You may ask, well, what about a false positive? Is it possible it's a false positive? Well, he was concerned after he took the test and described it to me, it was not the one that goes way up your nose and hurts. It's uh, one of the way easier ones. But the problem with the easier ones is they're not very accurate. They have a high rate of error. So you think you may think, well, maybe he's not positive. Maybe there's an error. No, the error is a false negative that can occur. In fact, there is no good COVID test that exists today that has a low false negative rate. All of them have a fairly high false negative rate, which means sometimes it will say that you don't have it when you really do. In fact, there's a listener to this show who definitely had COVID who never was able to test positive for it, but he definitely had it, but he tested negative for it because of the false negative problem. And they have not been able to correct that. However, COVID tests do not have a false positive problem. They really have a 0% false positive issue The only time there's a false positive is when there's a lab error, like they mix someone's results up or contaminate results, something like that, or, you know, contaminate the testing. That's the only way it ever happens, false positive. But the test itself does not produce false positives. So basically, if you take a COVID test and it says you're positive, then you're positive. That's a very safe thing to believe. Negative, you don't know what to believe. Even the best of the COVID tests, which is the one that goes way up your nose, still has like a 20 to 30% false negative rate. 
0% false positive, 20 to 30% false negative. Anyway, didn't matter for Master Scaler. He was upset about the false negative thing. He's like, no, I don't want the false negative. If that happens, I'm going to take it again. I'm like, no, Ken, it's not going to help you. You can keep taking, you can keep taking it over and over. You're going to keep getting that same false negative. But I guess fortunately for him, he got the, the positive so that uh, since there's no false positive, then he definitely had it, which I knew he had it. And his friend Ryan, who I talked to a few days uh, after Ken told me he had it, Ryan told me he lost uh, the ability to taste, and he also had the terrible dry cough. And I said, Ryan, you have COVID. He didn't feel like getting a test, but I'm like, oh, you know what, Ryan? I actually, I actually understand why you don't want to get the test, because when you've got the dry cough and the loss of taste, and I said, Ryan, have you ever had a loss of taste in your life? He said, no. I said, okay, you have it. That's a very, very sure indicator. If you've lost smell completely or you've lost taste completely, and if that's never happened to you before and you've had a complete loss of either – then you have COVID. So Ryan definitely has COVID too. None of you know him, but he he caught it from Master Scaler. But Master Scaler is doing better. Not all better. On the 16th, which is on Monday, it'll be two weeks since he showed symptoms, at which point it is considered safe that he's not going to infect anybody. He may have lingering uh, results. I told him he should take another test before going out. Because uh, you you don't want to infect people. I know they say a 14-day quarantine, blah, blah, blah. But it, the 14-day quarantine is more like if you're not showing symptoms by 14 days, then you're safe. And that's kind of overkill. Really, if you don't show symptoms by seven days, you're really safe. But 14 is, is really making sure. But if you do show symptoms, they can last more than two weeks. And you might be contagious more than two weeks. So I told him before he goes out, even if he hits the two-week mark from the first symptoms, that he should take another test. And see if it shows up uh, positive. And if it does, then uh, he should uh, not go out or he could infect people. So anyway, that's the current story of Master Scaler. The good news is he had no breathing problems. He is not experiencing anything that would indicate he has any lung damage or any other kind of permanent damage. So it looks like he's probably going to get out of this without any uh, permanent damage in any way. He also actually might benefit from this financially, believe it or not. Remember I've told you he gives plasma to make extra money, which I always tell him not to. I always say, don't give the freaking plasma. And he does. He he, he loves giving plasma. <laughs> so it's like he, he just has this uh, obsession with giving plasma. It's just, he's gotten used to it. It's like a routine for him. Even if I were to say, Ken, don't do the plasma and I'll give you the money for the plasma, then he would just take my money and do the plasma anyway. So there's there's like no way to talk him out of the, out of the plasma, which I don't think is healthy for him, but, but he, he does it. Anyway, he said the the plasma place actually will give you a lot more money if you can show them an antibody test that they really want plasma that is from people with uh, antibodies, which makes sense. So, so the antibody plasma, the COVID antibody plasma is, is a hot item and they get paid extra there. So they will pay him extra. So he said they're going to pay him like 100 bucks a pop and he can go a few times a week, which he's thrilled about. So I'm like, you know what, Ken? <laughs> I hate to encourage the plasma thing, but uh, the, the sad thing is you may actually – you may be one of the few people to make money from having COVID. So that's where that stands. Let's see if we can reach him. He probably won't answer. He promised he was going to call me back. He won't answer. I really wanted him on here so people could hear from him about uh, having COVID. I wanted him to tell you in his own words. We'll see if we can reach him. He might even call. He stays up pretty late these days. But the person you called has a voice mailbox that has not been sent. Jeez. He turned off his phone. 
Okay, let's talk about the election. The election occurred on November 3rd, and uh, there are some parts of the election which are not complete. We don't know the results of certain things. What I feel we do know the results of is the presidential race. Now, I have said before on this show, and I've said it on the forum, that I did not like the universal mail-in voting thing. And one of the reasons I didn't like it, aside from the fact that I believe it's much more prone to fraud, but even if you don't agree with me on that, I thought the optics of it could be very bad. Because what could happen would be Trump would appear to be the winner on the night of the election, and then ultimately when the mail-in votes are all counted in subsequent days, it turns out that Biden is the winner. Well, what do you know? That's exactly what happened. And if you are on the left or in the center, and you see people on the right on social media who are going on and on about how there was cheating, there was fraud, Trump got uh, ripped off, Trump should have won, Trump is the true winner, these are fraudulent. If you see that and think these morons, why do they think that? Well, they think that because this looks very bad. I'm not saying they're correct. I don't believe they're correct. I don't agree with that. I actually think that I, I think that Trump really lost. I think that there probably was some fraud in the mail-in voting, and I would believe that the fraud probably was benefiting Biden, but I don't think it was on a massive enough scale to have changed the election. In fact, I'll go even farther. I think that not even any electoral votes were won through fraud. I think it would be a little bit closer if there was zero fraud, but it would not change the results at all. It would still have the exact same electoral total. So for that reason, the fraud ended up not mattering. There definitely was some fraud. You can't say there was zero fraud. I know there's been idiotic reports in the media. Oh, uh, most secure election ever. No fraud detected. See, that, that that's stupidity. Do you think with 150 million votes, votes cast that there were zero instances of fraud? You really think that if God himself could come down and give us the true answer how much fraud there was in the election, that God would say? Zero point zero. He would not. There was definitely some fraud. There was some fraud. It may be very little. It may be more than very little. But there was some fraud. question is how much? So this was not the most secure election ever. See, being able to detect fraud and the existence of fraud are two different things and it is very hard to detect mail-in voter fraud especially when it's not done on an organized mass scale if a lot of different individuals are doing it with a few extra votes if they vote for someone whose uh, ballot was uh, received at their house when it shouldn't have been someone who used to live there if they are voting for a relative who otherwise was not going to vote if they vote for a relative who has died a lot of this is very difficult to detect. It ranges from very difficult to impossible to detect. So all this talk about, all oh, the election was the safest ever, it wasn't. It wasn't the safest and most secure and fraud-free election ever. In fact, I'll venture to say there's probably more fraud in this election than in any other recent election. I'm not talking about like 1960 where there, the fraud really decided it with uh, Nixon and Kennedy. That's how Kennedy won, was through fraud. Uh, you may hate Nixon, but that's the truth. But... I, I'm not saying that there's fraud to that level, but uh, I believe there is much less fraud than four years ago and eight years ago and 12 years ago and 16 years ago. So uh, this was not the most secure election ever. That's nonsense. But at the same time, Biden won. Biden fairly won. 
whatever fraud occurred, I do not believe, affected the election at all. So I think it is time for Trump to give up. I think it's time for Republicans supporting Trump to give up on any narrative that this was stolen from him, that he's the real winner, that we need to have investigations and recounts and all that nonsense. No, we don't. It's it's over. It's over. We need to accept that uh, this was a loss, much like uh, the Democrats needed to accept four years ago that Hillary lost and uh, stop coming up with reasons why that election was stolen, because it wasn't. So both elections, the 2016 election when Trump won and the 2020 election where Trump lost, were fair. And that's the truth. And if you think otherwise, then you're delusional. If you think otherwise, the facts don't support it. So that's the bad news for Republicans, that Trump lost, and uh, these legal challenges he's trying are never going to work. Trump uh, is not going to be able to refuse to leave office, and a lot of people are afraid he's just going to refuse and just be there. He'll just be the next president. He'll find some way the Supreme Court can steal it from him. That's not going to happen. It is not going to happen. Trump is not going to be the president on January 21st. It will be Joe Biden. And if it's not Joe Biden, it would become Nancy Pelosi. I guess it could be Kamala Harris if Joe Biden uh, died in between then. But it'd be one of those three. It would not be uh, Donald Trump on January 21st. It's done. If you were betting on this election, which I'll talk a bit more about my own betting, but if you were betting on this election, it was a big roller coaster. Biden started out as a favorite of uh, well over uh, minus 200, meaning you had to bet more than two to one. If you bet on Biden, you'd have to bet more than $2 to win $1. And as the night went on and Trump looked better and better, first he took Florida, which he ended up really taking. That was real. Then it was clear he was taking Ohio. It was looking pretty bad for Biden, especially because he was down uh, about 700,000 votes in Pennsylvania. And uh, he was down in Georgia. It looked like he wasn't close there. Michigan, he was down by several hundred thousand votes. So it looked like he was going to lose. It looked like even... With Arizona looking like it was going to go for Biden, that pretty much looked Biden the whole way. But it looked like Trump didn't need Arizona. It looked like Trump carried enough of everything else to win the election. And the margins looked wide enough. He had Michigan. He had Wisconsin. He had Pennsylvania. I'm talking about Trump. He had Ohio. He had Florida. looked like a disaster for the Democrats. In fact, PLOL, who had a lot of bets on the Biden side, actually went and took a walk and left the show for a while because he was depressed about all the money he was going to lose. Turned out he didn't. Turned out he did fine. But it was looking pretty bad for Biden. And at one point, very briefly, you could get more than 7-1 to betting on Biden. Can you believe that? I don't mean 7-1 to favorite. I mean he was a 7-1 to dog. Not for very long, but he was. But for a long time that night, he was a 3- or more-to-1 dog. Brandon even asked on the show, should he take something like three to one Biden? And people kind of talked him out of it, (laughs) which he regretted, of course. But then as the night went on, it went back towards even, then Biden favorite, then Biden big favorite. You can actually still bet on it and get like 10 to one. (laughs) If you want Trump, you can get 10 to one odds as an underdog, but that's throwing away money. If you bet on Trump at this point, you're dumb. Because it's, it really is tossing away money. I have bets the other way now. I have bets on Biden now. because After the fact bets on Biden that I can still place because he's going to be the president. It's not going to be Trump. So that's a fact. It's not going to be Trump. 
So it's time to accept that. But there were some other things that were happening that were not getting as much attention paid to them because everyone was focusing on Trump at first looking like he was winning and then losing. And there was all the drama about can Biden catch him in Pennsylvania with all the mail-in ballots? See, the problem was the mail-in ballots very much favored Biden, the ones that came in late. And some states wouldn't even count the mail-in ballots, even the ones that were there early. They wouldn't count them until after the votes were cast in person because those were state laws about that. So it was a mess. So while Florida did it right and they counted it all very quickly, other states are still counting. It's crazy. There's other states still counting the ballots, including California. California, it's very clear Biden was the winner the whole way, but a lot of states are, are still actually counting. It's, it's, it's insane. It's nuts. Not, not enough to change the election. But the whole mail-in ballot thing was a fiasco. And it made it look bad. It made it look like that these ballots were just invented. They even said, oh, ballots were found. Well, that's, that's not a good way of putting it. They were found. That sounds like uh, something shady is going on. I don't think it was, but it makes it sound like it. Very, very bad. The fact that we're in 2020, I know we have COVID going on, but still, the fact that we're in 2020 and this was done so poorly and it appeared that someone won by a decent margin only to have that candidate lose by the next day and then days going on where it wasn't totally sure and you're watching more and more going the other way, like it it was insane. And I knew it was going to look bad like this if it was close. I knew if it was the Biden blowout, it'd be fine. I knew if it was a Trump clear win, it would be fine. But I knew if it was a fairly close election that this is exactly the way it would go. And that's very sad. Very divisive for the country. It is. That's the last thing we need is something that divides the country more. The last thing we need is Republicans believing they got screwed. The last thing we need is people believing that Biden is a legitimate president. Because you cannot like or agree with Biden, but you can also admit that he is the president. And that's the way I'm going to go forward with it. He is not the guy I voted for. He's not the one I was hoping would win. But I'm not going to say he shouldn't be the president. I'm going to say he should be the president because he was the winner. So all this does is divide the country more. And it was destined to happen if it was going to be a close election where Biden ultimately prevails. Anyway, getting back to what I was saying about the other races. The Democrats had a fantasy, which wasn't totally unrealistic, and the polls were definitely supporting them in their belief, so I'm not saying this was crazy, but they had a fantasy that Biden would win and that the mass voter participation they they were getting and they were expecting to get and did get would drive the rest of the Democratic candidates on on, on the ballot to win. So the Senate races they would crush, the House races they would crush. This would be not just a blue wave, it would be a blue tidal wave. And Republicans would just be decimated. That was the Democratic fantasy, that they would not only have the House, the Senate, and the White House, but they would have them by wide margins. That the country would clearly speak that Trump is awful, and he would lose in a landslide, an embarrassing landslide, as a big slap in his face. And then the Republicans, the rest of the Republicans would also be punished. The Senate would switch back blue, including major Republican figures like Mitch McConnell, like Lindsey Graham, would get 
defeated, knocked out of the Senate. Senate would turn very blue. Be hard to even turn back as we go that, that blue. And the House, which they already had a nice margin, thanks to the uh, 2018 victories they had, would get even bluer. And the Republicans would be so decimated that even if they did well in the 2022 midterms, it wouldn't be enough that Democrats would still have all three houses. That was their fantasy. And the polls seemed to support it. The polls seemed to show that the Democrats were going to pick up House seats, the Democrats were going to take the Senate back, that Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham had a very reasonable chance of losing, and that it was going to be a huge night for Democrats. It would be a Biden landslide, gain a lot of Senate seats, gain House seats. Republicans would be crying in their Wheaties the next day. Didn't exactly happen that way. Not only was the presidential election much closer than it appeared to be, in fact, so close that it uh, appeared Trump won on election night. And yeah, it didn't end up being razor thin close. And it wasn't that close electorally. But as far as how close some of these states were in margins of victory, some of these swing states, they were very close. You did not have the seven point Wisconsin victory like was assumed by the polls. You did not have the Biden-Florida victory at all. You did not have the Biden-Ohio victory. You did have the Biden-Georgia victory, but not by much. And uh, Pennsylvania, much tougher than it appeared. Pennsylvania looked like uh, it was going to go easily. Michigan looked like it was going to go easily. That was competitive as well. So while Trump clearly lost those, they were much closer than was expected. But the bigger mistake from the pollsters came in the House and Senate races. They got those completely wrong. Republicans have probably kept the Senate. I say probably because there are two runoffs in Georgia for the Senate, one of which is looking pretty good for the Republicans, and one of which is kind of a toss-up, but still leaning more towards them. Looks like probably at worst they're going to split them, which mean would mean Republicans still have 51 seats, which is enough. All they need is 51. Because if it's 50-50, then the vice president casts the deciding vote. So they really need 51, but they're going to get 51 as long as they win at least one of the two Georgia seats in the runoff, where they're favored on both, and I would say big favored on one of them. Democrats spent a lot of money trying to defeat Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. $200 million was spent trying to defeat those two, only to have both of them win in landslide victories. So there was a landslide, but not the landslide they wanted. The landslide was uh, Graham and McConnell easily winning again, despite $200 million sunk into the attempt to defeat them. They sunk a lot of money into other races, which did not work out. They thought they could uh, beat Tom Tillis. They did not. They thought they could beat Joni Ernst. They did not. They thought they could beat Susan Collins. They did not. The polls all suggested this stuff was either realistic or likely. And none of them came even that close. Some of them were beatdowns after all that money spent. After all the polls were showing otherwise. But as bad as the Senate was, poll-wise, 
And it was very disappointing for Democrats who really thought they're going to take it, especially if Biden wins. The House was worse. They thought they were going to gain maybe 10 House seats. They already had 232. They thought they may actually gain 10 more to go up to 242. And there's only uh, 435 seats in the whole House, so that would be uh, well under 200 for the Republicans. Put them way over the margin of 218 that they need to control the House. They thought they may go up to as high as uh, 242. But they were pretty sure they're going to gain seats. Maybe not 10, but they thought we're going to gain seats. We can't see our, we can't see ourselves losing seats. It's just not realistic. Well, turned out it was. Three seats in the House, which were rated safe Democrat, meaning that the election was pretty much a formality, meaning that, uh, there wasn't even much attention paid because these were districts it was considered so safe that the Democrat basically can't lose. Well, for 206 of those 209, quote, safe Democrat seats, that was true. But three of them actually flipped. And you may say, okay, big deal, three out of 209. It should be zero out of 209. If they say it's safe, it should be safe. Safe really means don't even pay attention, it's no contest, which in a lot of these House races is the case on both sides. But three safe, in quotes, Democratic seats flipped. Not a single Republican incumbent lost in the House, except perhaps for Mike Garcia in District uh, 25 of California. That one is a super close race right now, a virtual tie, and they're still counting votes. But he's only an incumbent for like a few months because uh, there was a special election when Katie Hill resigned. But uh, he's not even like a real incumbent. He's like a few-month incumbent. Other than that, a single Republican incumbent lost in the House. And Republicans are gaining seats for sure. There's no question they're gaining seats. That's that's already been decided. How many is still up in the air? I'll discuss that shortly when I talk about my betting because I have bets on that. But Republicans may gain as many as 12 seats. Probably not. They're probably going to gain something more like nine. But they could gain as many as 12. This was thought they're going to lose as many as 10. That's a tremendous swing. I've never seen the polls be that wrong on, on house races. So how did this happen? How did this, let's be honest here. How did this happen when you had a record turnout? Joe Biden got more presidential votes by far than any candidate in history. So they got this huge turnout like they were expecting. Joe Biden got like 4 million more votes than Trump did. So how did the house lose seats to the Democrats? And how did the Senate look like it's only gaining one seat and, and maybe no seats. Like, how did that happen? How did they not get the Senate back? How did they lose House seats? If this is uh, such a repudiation of Trump and the Republicans. Well, here's the truth. The truth is that this election was a referendum on Trump himself, but not on the Republicans. What this election says is that the people were sick of Trump. They were done with Trump. They were ready to move on. Not as much as the Democrats thought. They was still fairly close. But that overall, on average, the country was not all that pro-Trump anymore. And they were ready to go on to somebody new, even a weak candidate like Joe Biden. But they were also not happy with the Democrats. And what a lot of people didn't want was 
a Joe Biden administration with the House and Senate being controlled by the Democrats. This scared people. I know this because I've talked to some people. It's scared. I've talked to some moderate Republicans, some people who are in the middle that aren't really Republicans or Democrats. I've talked to some who are moderate Democrats, and they all told me the same thing. We hate Trump. We cannot vote for Trump. We can't stand Trump. We don't want him for another four years. We think that'll be a disaster, they tell me. But what would also be a disaster is the Democrats controlling everything because their extreme rhetoric in the last five years has scared me. That's pretty much what several centrists have told me. Yeah, it's anecdotal, of course, but, but this is what happened. This is how it happened. This is why Biden got way more votes than Trump in the popular vote. And yet, and Biden won areas where the House candidate won for the Republicans. How does that happen? How do you have it in a district that Biden easily wins, but the Republican wins the House, uh, the House seat? You have that because people don't want the Democrats in control of everything. There's a lot of people who actually felt they'd rather nothing gets done, they'd rather there's a gridlock in the government than either have Trump as the president for four more years or the Democrats in control of everything. And I have said for a long time the Democrats have gotten way too extreme. The Democrats of today and the Democrats of 10 years ago are very different. There's a lot of policies that Democrats are pushing today, openly pushing. I'm not just talking about the the very, very, very far left ones who are uh, outside the norm. I'm talking about uh, what, what started to infiltrate the mainstream Democratic Party. And a lot of people can't relate to it. A lot of people can't relate to a lot of the stuff. They can't relate to the, the transgender three-year-olds, the, the nine-month abortions, the defunding the police. And yes, I know what that really means. But they still can't relate to it. Even if they know what it really means, they can't relate to it. They can't relate to... The, uh, the the socialized transition to socialized medicine. They can't relate to complete college loan forgiveness and free college for everybody. These are major changes in the country. They can't relate to the belief that this country is uh, embedded with systemic racism and we must uh, engage in uh, major structural changes to prevent that. The average American can't go along with all that stuff. It's all too extreme. They, they don't want the Green New Deal. The average American does not want that. That doesn't mean the average American doesn't have some concerns about the environment, that the average American doesn't uh, hate racism and, and believes there's still some racism remaining in the country. That's different than thinking the country is systemically racist and, and also uh, the environment is such a uh, – we have to act so quickly and so urgently – that we need the extreme Green New Deal. Like that's a, those, are, those are different beliefs. So all of these things scare people. They can't relate to them. They think it's weird. They think it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. And they were afraid that uh, Biden is not going to be someone who stands in the way of any of that. So they thought, okay, if the Democrats have the Senate and they have the House and they have Biden as president, that a lot of this is going to start becoming reality. So they said, you know what? Let's just let's just have none of this. Let's just uh, let's get Trump out and and keep the Republicans in the, the House and the Senate. I know the House didn't quite get there for Republicans, but it's getting close. It'll probably get there in the midterms. But even the Senate, being a Republican, that's going to create the gridlock and all that extreme stuff's not going to happen. And Trump won't be in there. Win-win, they think. So a lot of the people in the center are happy right now. A lot of the people in the center are very happy. They got rid of Trump. 
and the Democrats don't have control. We've got gridlock and no Trump. The big thumbs up from the center. This is a big win for them. The center who doesn't like Trump. So I don't know if the Democrats learn from this. And regardless of your politics, and by the way, there's a big fight right now with the Democratic Party about this, like moderate House candidates who lost are furious about this because they know why they lost. They know that their own party dragged them down. They know that the extremity of uh, what mainstream Democrats were saying and believing and the loudest Democrats that the, that the others were uh, not really able to uh, override without being attacked. So the pretty much everybody had to shut up and left the let the uh, left wing of the party really uh, dictate everything and, and really dictate uh, the way the party is going to be. And a lot of the moderates are pissed because they, they don't believe in a lot of this stuff. And they, they say we're not we can't win. We can't win in our district with with this type of talk. Same with the riots. See, they see the left didn't fool anybody. The, the people know the the rioting was from the left. The rioting was not white supremacists out there causing trouble. It wasn't the police trying to instigate. These were people on the left and also apolitical criminals who were joining in, but people on the left were starting it. People on the left were, were burning things. People on the left were, were looting. People on the left were, were attacking people, even in some cases killing people. And then, yeah, other criminals who like to cause mayhem saw it and said, oh, cool, we can do this with no consequence, and they joined in. But these were left-wing riots. The, the riots that happened around the country, uh, the, the average swing voter does not believe the riot that the protests were mostly peaceful. They don't believe that. They don't believe that uh, any non-peaceful protest was an instigation of the right because it wasn't. That's a lie, and they they didn't buy it. Even though the media tried, they don't they don't believe it. So that's another thing that uh, scared people. The people noticed that the cities where the rioting was the worst and lasted the longest. These were Democratic-run cities. And they noticed that the Republican-run cities didn't have this. They shut it down very quickly if it started. So the swing voters see this. The, the centrists see this and say, you know what? We, we don't like any of this. We don't want the left in charge. We don't want Trump in charge. We don't want the left in charge. So we're going to vote down ticket for Republican. We're going to vote for Joe Biden. That's what we're going to do. That's what a lot of them did. That's how it happened. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. Now, as a conservative, as a Republican, I hope... That in uh, 2022, that the Democrats don't learn their lesson, that they let AOC and others like her steer the ship for the next two years. And if they do, it's going to be a beatdown. I'm calling it right now. If the Democrats don't learn from the results here and they continue on their extreme path, that it is going to be an absolute beatdown in November 2022. I know it seems weird I'm talking about the 2022 election when we don't have all the results yet from the 2020 election, but I'm telling you that's that's what's going to happen. Like, in 94 this happened. This is going to be worse than 94 for the Democrats. There is going to be such a backlash, because once there's no longer Trump to blame, once uh, Trump is not the focus of anything, and Democrats have to stand on their own two feet and not use Trump to prompt themselves up, and if they just keep doling out the extreme plans and rhetoric, the swing voters are going to be real turned off by two years from now. And they're going to really vote Republican, even people who normally who don't. So as someone who is conservative, as someone who's on the right, I wasn't even that disappointed. One, because I expected Trump to lose. He actually made it closer than I thought it would be. 
And two, because I would much rather that Trump loses and that the Republican Party looks like they're alive for the future than the reverse, than Trump winning, but the, the rest of the party look like it's dead. Here it really looks like that if Democrats don't change course, they're really going to have a problem very soon. This was the beginning. This is the beginning only muted by the fact that Trump was on the ticket for the Republicans. No more Trump, and there's definitely not going to be a Trump there in 2022. It's going to be a beatdown. So they've got to be careful. If I were in charge of the Democratic Party, if I was uh, someone making strategy of the Democratic Party, I would say, we've got to stop this. We, no matter what we would actually like in our hearts, we have to stop with the extreme rhetoric, with the extreme plans, with all these things that swing voters can't relate to. We're not fooling them. They don't agree with it. They can't relate to it. It's scaring them. They don't like it. And we're going to get killed. Too much happened too quickly. And some of it was a result of Trump because they, they were so, they hated Trump so much that this pushed people who were not as far left, it pushed people more left. And those who were already far left felt like they could speak louder and be heard. But that had a consequence. And you saw it. I mean, how, how did the Republicans pick up like 10 House seats in a year like this? Think about it. How did that happen? If you don't agree with me, tell me how that happened. Tell me how the, the House was such a disaster. And as far as the polls being wrong, the reason the polls were wrong is because a lot of people didn't want to admit they were voting for Republicans or even Trump, if, if for that matter. Because they, they were told over and over by the media that if you vote for Trump, then you're an evil, awful, racist person. And even if you vote for Republicans, you're an evil, awful, racist person. So a lot of people just kept quiet because people were conditioned. If you say you're on the right, or you, even if you aren't on the right but agree with the Republicans more and you're going to vote for Republicans – even if not Trump, then this can be a problem for your career. That there are certain companies that will punish you for this. There are people on social media who will attack you for this and try to ruin your career. And people have just learned. People on the right, or even people who lean right a little bit, have learned you keep quiet if you have something to lose because uh, people might find a way to cancel you. So even when pollsters call, some people reflexively just said, I'm undecided, or uh, I'm, I'm voting for Biden and all Democrats. They just There was a certain percentage of people who did not want to admit they were voting for Republicans because they've been conditioned to lie about it. They've been conditioned to lie at work. They've been conditioned to lie on social media. They've been conditioned to lie in mixed company. So when the pollsters call, they still lie. That's what happened. That's why the polls were so wrong. It's not like the polls predicted that there would be 10 House seats won by the Republicans. It was the opposite. That's why the polls were so wrong. Okay, enough of uh, politics about the election, but I do want to talk about my political betting, which uh, I like to say my political betting is apolitical because I don't bet with my heart. I actually separate the way I want it to go from the way I think it will go. In fact, sometimes I will bet at different times on different candidates that oppose each other. So sometimes I'll, I'll sell off my position, which you can do on the, uh, Predict It, which is a betting site, a legalized uh, political betting site. Uh, you can actually sell off your position to others who want to buy it for less than full value because to get full value, you have to wait till the very end and you win. If you want to bail out because you think it's there's a good chance you're going to win, you'll get a good price, but you're not 100% certain, you can do that. So sometimes I'll bail out and then go buy back in on the other side. So I really try to analyze the chances that each candidate has not by 
who I hope wins, but by uh, the way I think it's really going to go. That's the only way to make money. If you're delusional, either on the left or right, you're going to get killed there. In fact, that's why, despite the horrendous rake, predicted is actually a good opportunity for those who pay attention because there's a lot of people who uh, either don't know what they're doing or are betting with their hearts or both. And kind of like exploiting the fact that there are fish at the poker table who have nowhere near the skill you do. Uh, similarly, on predicted, you're, you're against others. You're not against the, the house. So the odds are pretty much set by all the other people on there. It's a market. It's almost like a stock market. So it's uh, it's good in that way. It's bad and the fees are just horrendous. But uh, what I noticed on predicted is the best value, there's two ways there's, there's good value. One of them is really only good if you have cash on there. That is like if you've won something or you've already sold something and you have just cash sitting there that you're going to withdraw. Instead of withdrawing, there are certain races you can bet on at like 10 cents on the dollar, like 10 to 1 where you're the favorite, which are just like 100% to hit, where people are just delusional. A good example is you can you can still place like 10 to 1 bets uh, favorite or the other side on, on the Trump-Biden thing. And you can sometimes even get better than that. And that's free money at this point. There's some other really crazy ones. Like I, I have some bets at like uh, 20 to 1 favorite that the that uh, the Republicans won't win by like 60 or more electoral votes. This is after the election. This is like right now. Like there's no way the Republicans could win by 60 electoral votes. Even in the very best case scenario for Trump, even if he wins all his challenges, he's not going to win by that. So that's just crazy stuff. So you can do that at the end if you have cash laying on the site from other things you've, you've uh, won already. But uh, beforehand, the best vote, the best ones to pick are the underdogs. There's sometimes some favorites that are big favorites and, and aren't reflected that way. They're kind of like a small or medium favorite, so those are good too. But uh, the best you can do on there is get big underdogs, things like 20 to 1, 15 to 1, 10 to 1, that are more like kind of 50-50 propositions to hit, or, or you know, maybe 33-67, but you're getting 20 to 1. So you, you get enough of those down, and you can really do very well, even with a terrible break there. So I, I have a bet like that. I noticed that nobody was paying attention to the House very well during the first uh, two nights of the election. So I uh, placed a bet, which at the time was it was a long shot, and that was that the Republicans would – or the Democrats, not the Republicans. The, the, the Democrats would end up with between 218 and 221 House seats. I got a very good price on this, like a very, very big underdog. And uh, – I will win about $20,000, more than that actually, if that hits. $20,000 on, on very little risk because I got such a, a big underdog line on that. And at the time I was looking at it going, well, I wouldn't say that's the favorite to happen, but I, I would say it's got a fair chance to happen. And I, I can even bail out on it if uh, it turns out that uh, it's looking somewhat likely, but I don't want to chance it anymore. I can just bail out at whatever the current price is. So – I took that, and it was great value, and it was a smart move on my part. And uh, I've been watching that really closely. So I've been following the House races super closely because it's going to be close. It is leaning towards not being 221. It's leaning towards being 221, 222 or 223, which is sad because it's pretty damn close. But uh, I did uh, – I, I hedged somewhat. So if it does end up 222, 223, then I will still make a little money. I'm just not going to make the 20000 
something dollars that I will win if it comes to 218 to 221. 218 is not going to happen, but uh, 221 is actually still possible. So there's actually some unresolved races, some of which I have bets on, have or had bets on the individual races. Uh, some of them have resolved, some of them haven't, or are very close to resolved. But uh, basically what's left is there's a California District 25. There's California District... Uh, Actually, 21's pretty, that's not over, but it's close to over. So it's pretty much California District 25, New York District 3, New York District 22, New Jersey District 7, uh, Iowa 2, which actually came down to 47 votes, and they're doing a recount right now, the Republicans ahead. And uh, I think that's it. The rest of them are pretty much resolved by now. The problem is that uh, if Democrats even take two of these that I listed, then it's over. And they probably will, because there's a number of them where they're fairly close, or they're ahead. So uh, that's not looking that great for me. I could still get lucky and win it. What was sad was last night, predicted I could get 39 cents on the dollar. And keep in mind, I bought in for like four cents on the dollar. So I mean, I was I was getting a big return there, even if I sold at 39 cents. So I tried to, but I, I bought at such a high volume, <laughs> there just wasn't the volume for anyone to buy it from me. And uh, by the time people woke up, uh, the price had gone way down. And now the price is down to like 18, 19 cents. So I, I could still buy out of that at a profit, but I, I don't want to because I still have, I feel it has enough of a chance to where I don't want to do that. I, I would have been happy to sell out at, at 39 cents instead of – 39 cents meaning we, uh, instead of uh, winning 29,000, I'd be winning like 39% of that. But that's – given that this is an underdog to win at this point by a decent margin, I would have easily taken that. I don't want to take 18 cents on the dollar. I'd still win money, but it's it, it's not worth it to me. Might as well gamble. So anyway, I'll be watching those races very closely. I've been refreshing them every day. Uh, Utah 4 and California 21 were also in that mix, but those seem to be pretty much settled on the Republican side. Uh, Iowa 2 might be very shortly as well, but I am worried about the uh, California 25, the New Jersey 7, and the those two New York ones, uh, 22 and 3. And if two of those go the way of the Democrats, then I am done, which won't be good. So anyway, that's what I've been watching. It's amazing that this is still going on 10 days after the election. Apparently some of these are going to take weeks until they're final. So might be some drama for me. And I'm, I'm still trading unpredicted. I'm still selling things. I'm still buying things. Like some things I bailed out at like 98 cents instead of a dollar just because they weren't 100% certain, like Utah 4. So like I... Some of these, I don't, I don't even wait till they resolve because anything that's not like a sure thing, if I can get like 98 cents on the dollar, <laughs> then I'll just take it. I, I don't want to take the 1 in 50 chance I get screwed. I'll just take it. Because it's weird. It's unpredictable. You know, the mail-in voting, you know, they can say, oh, we have such and such votes left to count and from such and such place and the county leaves the, leans this way and it'll probably go this way. But you, you don't know. There, there's not a lot of experience in this because it's kind of new this year, this universal mail-in balloting. I know they had it in some states before, but the mail-in balloting in all these places and it, it just a lot of this is uncharted territory so if i if i can get 98 cents on the dollar to just end it in my favor when there's uncounted ballots that could change it i'll take it i'll gladly take that so in fact i'll take less than that sometimes but it's an interesting site it's an interesting concept that's predicted it's just the fees are horrendous and also they're terrible because they constantly crash on election night Every time, not just this election night, they crash during the 2018 election night. They crash during the 2016 election night. 
They, they crash during the primaries. They always crash. You think they could fix this by now, but they don't. The rake is horrendous. The rake is very, very, very bad. So bad that it, it surprises you sometimes you can win on there. I am a lifetime winner on there. If you pay attention and you don't pick with your heart and you read up all you can on everything you bet on and don't just uh, bet willy-nilly, then you're going to win because a lot of people don't do that. PLOL uses that site and he's uh, he's good with that. He's He does a good job there and analyzes it well. So I, I suggest you can even still get on there. Just don't ever deposit too much. I'll only deposit what you need because there's a 5% withdrawal fee, which is brutal. And that includes money you deposited. Just like whatever you have left and want to withdraw, they, they charge that fee. There's no deposit fee, but everything you deposit, know that you're either going to lose it or pay 5% to get it back out. Forget your winnings. You pay 5% on that too, but you're going to make, and you're going to pay fees on top of that whenever you win. So it's really brutal. But just know any dollar you put, any dollar you put on there, either, either going to get raked 5% on withdrawal or you're going to lose. <laughs> so, so, uh, know that when you deposit, only deposit exactly what you need. It's not like a poker site where you put on thousands, uh, thinking, you know, I, I want to have, I want to be properly rolled. Don't do that. Only deposit as you need it. But yeah, you can still get on there. There's still some things you can bet on with this election, believe it or not. And you can check it out. You can go look at all the odds on everything without actually uh, putting money on. Just go to predicted.org, predicted.org. Okay, we're going to move on here. We're going to talk about the situation with online gaming and Biden. I bring this up every time we have a new president. I brought this up uh, in uh, 2016. I even brought this up in 2008 on a different show when Obama won. And I told people, I told people in 08, people say, oh, Obama, he, he was a poker player himself, you know, and Obama loves poker. He's going to make online poker nationally legal. What did we get under Obama? We got Black Friday. That's what we got under Obama. Not really his fault directly, but it was someone he appointed, Preet Bara. And he pretty much shut down most of U.S. online poker. And I told people that was going to happen. I said that online poker, and online gambling for that matter, but especially online poker, it's just not that important to any president. It's not that important to any major politician. So it's something that no one's going to care about too much. We care about it a lot, but most people don't. So you're not going to find any president who is very pro or very anti-online gambling. You're just not going to get that. And that's pretty much what I've said every time. It's not going to improve under Obama any more than it would with a Republican there. It's not going to improve with Trump or get worse with Trump. I know some people say, oh, well, you know, they, they, under Trump, they, uh, they wanted to reinterpret the reinterpretation of the 1961 Wire Act because Sheldon Adelson was backing that, blah, blah, blah. That could have just as easily happened under a Hillary Clinton administration. I mean, really, whoever's the president doesn't matter that much for online gambling. And if you think otherwise, then you're delusional and you're not following it closely. So if you think that Biden winning is going to mean that we're going to have national legalized online poker, think again. Now, does that mean there won't be an expansion during the Biden years? No, there might be. In fact, there probably will be, but not because Biden won. It would also happen had Trump won re-election. If you notice, Trump didn't really care about online poker. The reason that there would be some expansion is because of sports betting. The laws about sports betting changed, if you remember, and they actually changed during the Trump administration. And that allowed other states besides Nevada to have sports betting. 
And that was huge. That was a huge decision, the overturning of PASPA, P-A-S-P-A. With the legalized sports betting, which is a much better, much bigger market than legalized poker and even legalized casino gambling. I'm talking about online casino gambling and poker. Uh, sports betting is a much bigger market, much, much bigger market. Because what they discovered was that online poker, not very lucrative on the state level. State by state, online poker either doesn't make money or barely makes any money. Online casinos, okay, they make some money, but it's not a big deal. It doesn't make all that much. So it, it's pretty much a non-factor. And the conclusion started to uh, be arrived at, the correct one, that it just isn't worth the hassle. It's not worth the hassle for states to offer online poker or online gambling because it just doesn't make much money in tax revenue, and it doesn't make that much money for the casinos offering it. So why bother? Too much trouble. But sports betting is a different story. Sports betting is huge. And now that it can be done in states other than Nevada, and now that it's being rapidly legalized in many states, we're up to about half the states having legalized it in a fairly short time, that will also drive other forms of online gambling, including poker and online casino games. So what this might do eventually, and we, we have to wait some time until this all fleshes out, but what this might do eventually is have enough states with online poker to where they can start cooperating and provide a fairly decent-sized national platform for online poker that kind of approximates the way it used to be, but not quite because poker is not as popular as it was before and never will be again. But that's probably in the future. California still can't get on board. California has all kinds of problems with that, but uh, it might be resolved one day. We've just been waiting years for it. California has a gigantic population of 40 million. So if California were to get on board, that would add a tremendous number of new players to the pool. But yeah, you get enough big and medium states legalizing online poker and they all cooperate to where it's all the same player pool and they can all play the same games. Yeah, that could be a nice uh, setup for online poker. And we could have another poker boom. And that might happen. It might start to happen, at least, under Biden, but not because of Biden. So just remember, Biden was vice president when the Black Friday occurred. When poker stars, full tilt, and UB were shut down. That happened in the Obama administration. Directed by an Obama appointee. So I'm not going to be a partisan jerk and say, oh, look who we got back. Going to be Black Friday number two. Goodbye, Bovada. Goodbye, ACR. But uh, I'm also saying that we're not going to see very much difference. More of the same. So from an online gambling perspective, yeah, we're marching toward more legalized online gaming, but nothing to do with the president. Much more to do with the sports betting becoming legal in many states and the change in that law. That's that's the truth. That's the way it's going to be. And everything I've said about the presidents so far has been correct regarding online poker. Some people didn't believe me at the time, but I said Obama's not going to improve things. I was right. I said Trump's not going to really hinder it. I was right. I said it's going to be forces that uh, have nothing to do with the president that dictate where this goes. The one thing I did not predict was the overturning of PASPA and the legalization of sports betting in places other than Nevada. That I did not predict. That kind of came on pretty quickly, and that was a major change. 
And once I saw that was coming, I'm like, oh, wow, if that happens, it's going to be huge. And I mentioned that on the show at the time, that that's going to be the big driver to make online poker bigger. Not the president. All right. Let's move on. 775-FRAUD55, 775-372-8355. I want to take a look at our chat room. I see we had a number of people in there. Sate said uh, this chat is the best. He actually said it was from the year 2000. <laughs> it's actually written in 2007, not 2000. Shoeshine Box. I just got a call at 10.50 p.m. My bro is in jail on his birthday. I don't know what to do. Well, I don't know Shoeshine Box, but uh, I would suggest that uh, you help him out if you think he deserves being helped out. If he keeps ending up in jail, maybe just leave him there. Sate says... Trump really messed up the Republican Party. Well, apparently not too much because the Republican Party did well in the last election other than Trump. I was kind of afraid maybe he messed up the Republican Party, but looks like he didn't. Looks like uh, the Democrats messed up themselves with their extremity. And that drove people back to the Republicans uh, aside from Trump. That's kind of what it looks like to me. Trust me, I was afraid of this. I was afraid there's going to be this beatdown and that Trump would be to blame for it. I was prepared for that happening. And it did not. Okay, I'll take a look at the text messages. You can text me anytime. 775-372-8355. 775-372-8355. From the 314, someone wanted me to discuss uh, Greyhound racing. <laughs> so please discuss on your show. I'd be willing to do this. I just don't know much about it. He sent me a... a link about uh, greyhound racing and about the dogs not being treated well which I've never really thought about before I, I guess I can see that being true it's very possible that uh, the, the greyhounds have been long abused the ones that have been racing maybe I can read it later and discuss it next week alright let's move on I want to talk about the main event this is crazy the World Series of Poker main event did not take place. I mean, there was a GG Poker WSOP main event, but there was there was not a 10K main event anywhere. It just it just didn't exist. So it was believed that the WSOP main event that has been 10K ever since the beginning, back in 1971, that it just wasn't going to happen in 2020 because of COVID. In fact, remember those bets? I know some of them got settled, but maybe they should be unsettled. Remember those bets that uh, Doug Polk took, that Mike McDonald took, at long odds that there would not be a single hand played of a World Series event at the Rio in 2020? And it looked like those were pretty much done. In fact, I know some people even paid out. (laughs) But I don't know how this, I mean, I think this might flip some of those bets because the Rio is going to have the World Series of Poker in 2020. And they're will be live hands of poker played as part of the World Series this year. And you may ask, well, how's that possible? How can they throw together the World Series of Poker this quickly? Well, they're, they're going to, but just the main event. So are we going to have a normal main event like we had last year and all those years before? No. It's going to be mostly online, and the final table of the main event is going to be live at the Rio with some twists. Here's the weird story surrounding that. And I I don't think this is a good idea. And I'll tell you why shortly, but 
first, let me give you the facts about the 2020 main event, which I'm not going to be playing, by the way. So this is what they said on WSB.com. This was just announced yesterday. It's your chance to be part of poker history by playing the WSOP 2020 main event from anywhere in Nevada or New Jersey on WSOP.com. End up the world champion. This year's event will have a unique format where play starts online and continues down to nine players. The final table will then pick up play in Las Vegas and filmed for ESPN. The winner of the U.S. main event bracket, bracket, <laughs> yes, the U.S. main event bracket, will then compete against an international main event winner from GG Poker for an added $1 million in prize money, the title of WSOP main event champion, and coveted championship bracelet. Are you confused? So am I. Okay, let me try to break this down for you. <laughs> well, actually, I'll, I'll read the rem- remainder of this, then, then I'll break it down. Day one will start on December 13th. That is this year, December 13th, a month from today, on WSOP.com, New Jersey, and Nevada, and will be paused after 12 hours of play. Day two will resume on Monday, December 14th at 12 noon, and will play down until nine players are reached. Once nine players are reached, play will be stopped online. Players may choose to accept ninth place prize money or travel to Las Vegas to continue play in a live environment. Hold on a second. Let's read that again. Once nine players are reached, play will be stopped online. Players may choose to accept ninth place prize money or... Can t- go to Las Vegas, can travel to Las Vegas to play under a live environment. <laughs> Come on. Are they really saying this? Are they really saying that if you make the final nine at the 10K WSOP main event, that they're giving you the option not to show up? You can come and keep playing for the millions of dollars, or you can stay home and just get ninth place money. It's up to you. Maybe you don't want to risk getting COVID, so you can just take the ninth place money. It's all, it's all up to you. Well, yeah, I, I guess it's up to you at any time. At, at any term, you can always walk away at any time and just blind off and get paid when your stack runs out. When you just walk away from a tournament, you're actually not out of it. Once you've played, your stack actually blinds down. In fact, this was actually established in the past. Stewie Unger had a big stack at a main event. And it just it blinded down while he was uh, on the floor, passed out from uh, doing too many drugs. And then uh, many years later, in 2007, the same thing happened to Vinny Vin in an event I was in. In fact, an event that I came one away from making the final table. Vinny Vin was the chip leader and didn't show up to the next day and blinded out and finished 20th. So they blinded out Vinny Vin and Stu Unger, but for some reason here they don't. But wait, there's more. There's more. All players will be tested for COVID-19 prior to participation in the televised events. The final table will be played live at the Rio on Monday, December 28th until a winner is reached. The heads-up championship will be then played on December 30th with each player receiving equal stacks for the additional $1 million prize money take-all. <laughs> so you, you play the main event. You win the main event. And you go, okay, okay, I'm done. No, you're not. No, you are not. You must stay there until uh, two days later on December 30th. And now you have to play the the international winner for another million dollars. I guess you don't have to. I guess you could just no-show and give the guy the million bucks. But isn't that weird? You win the event and you got to stick around to play another winner for a million bucks? 
that that's bizarre. That's a bizarre twist. But here's an even bigger bizarre twist. I went to look at the FAQ, the frequently asked questions for the main event that they're going to have this year. Question, what if I test positive for COVID-19? Because remember, everybody has to take a COVID test right when they get there before playing the live final table. Answer, any player who tests positive prior to the start of the final table will be disqualified and will receive the minimum final table payout. What? What? You've got to be kidding me. So if you test positive for COVID, you lose. You're done. That's it. You don't even get the respect of a blind out. Stewie Unger got to lie on the floor, passed out on drugs. He got the respect of a blind out. He got to keep blinding out. So anyone who busted before his stack blinded out, he'd move up to the next place and get the next place's money. Stewie Unger got that. Vinny Vin got that in 2007. For some reason, you will not get this if you test positive for COVID-19. They just immediately disqualify you and pay you ninth place money. You don't even get, let's say you have a huge stack, too bad, too bad. Your stack does not blind off and maybe you'll get lucky and some of the short stacks will bust and you'll finish seventh or sixth or something. No, no, you get ninth, you're disqualified, you're out of here. So they don't pause it for you. They don't wait two more weeks. No, 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 no. You don't even get to blind off. You're just disqualified. You're out of here for the sin of having COVID-19. How dare you? The unforgivable sin of getting COVID-19. Because we all know that COVID-19, I mean, it's, it's something we all want. And if you get COVID-19, you're a horrible person, a horrible, horrible person. And you must suffer. You must suffer disqualification because COVID-19 if you ca- if you catch that you deserve disqualification people will look at you and say how dare you come down with COVID-19 when you're about to play the main event final table how dare you how dare you how dare you so they disqualify you this is a real thing this is right in their FAQ still not clear why they don't just blind you off if they want to say the final table will take place on December 28th, but anyone who is COVID positive cannot play and will have to get uh, a negative test result in order to sit down. Otherwise, their stack blinds off. That's a little more reasonable. But no, you just get disqualified. <laughs> Who thought of this? Who thought of this? Keep in mind, in any World Series of Poker tournament that has ever existed, once you have started to play, provided you do not break any rules, if you just simply don't show up, if you go to a break and never come back, if you don't come back for a subsequent day, your stack blinds off. They don't throw you out. Your stack blinds off, and wherever you end up, you end up. Because the reason the reason it blinds off, by the way, is because the belief is you could always show up later. What if your stack blinds off and you show up two hours late? You still have chips left. Okay. You can play with those chips. You don't get back the ones that blinded off, but you get to play with what remains. Basically, when you're not there, your stack... Uh, dwindles by the blinds every time because people are stealing the blinds in your stack because every hand is folded. You're dealt hands and you can't play them not being there so you're just dealt hands the same way you would be if you folded every single hand blind. That's what they should do. Maybe they don't want the optics of that. Maybe they don't, they don't want that uh, 
they're, they're at the main event final table, there's the extra dynamic of someone not being there and the stack blinding off because it does change play. Like if the big blind is not there, then there's a, a bigger battle to steal it. But I think that would make it more interesting for the viewer. It may look a little bit weird, but I think it makes it more interesting. It adds an additional strategy element because someone raises in middle position and you think, okay, are they raising because they know they only have to get the small blind to fold? Are they raising just with total junk? Should I three bet them? Because I think they're raising with junk, or is it possible they have a real hand and I'm, I'm going to run myself into problems? And I, I deal with this myself when I play the World Series and someone is not back, like from the bathroom. Like I, I go through this all the time, where I'm back, the big blind is not back, the big blind is going to get auto folded. I'm in late position, and someone raises who I suspect is the type that would try to steal that big blind. Then I have to think: Do I want to tangle with them and three bet? But then they know why I'm three betting, so then they may try to play play back at me. I've got to go through that whole thing in my head. And also, if like I'm in middle position and nobody's acted yet, nobody's raised yet, should I try to steal that big blind? And will people try to three bet me? And at that point, do I play back? Like it ends up a, a whole new set of decisions you have to make that you normally don't if the big blind's there. Sometimes I just say, "F it, I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to." treat it normally but uh you'd be a fool for example if it folds to your button and you don't try to steal the blind of someone who's not there if you only have to knock out the small blind and yeah the small blind will know what you're doing and maybe play back at you but like in some cases it's obvious and it's a huge mistake not to but maybe they don't want that maybe they don't want the dynamic at the main event final table. Maybe they just want to announce uh, so such and such person has COVID so they won't be participating so it's an eight-handed final table and just move on from there and not mention it again. But it's not really fair. Especially because getting COVID-19 is somewhat out of your control. Now you can be super cautious like I am and just not go anywhere and uh, not get it but even I have to go places occasionally. Like I didn't have a choice about getting a root canal done recently. I started to feel dental pain and um, my options were either to uh, get a root canal or get an extraction. I couldn't just say, well, I'm afraid of COVID, so I'm not going to the dentist because that would be very painful and actually dangerous. It could actually lead to heart problems if I didn't uh, take care of that tooth in some way. So short of pulling it out myself, (laughs) uh, I needed to visit a dentist and risk getting COVID. So sometimes you got to do things like that. So you're always going to have things come up over time that could put yourself at risk going to the doctor, going to the dentist, or even if you have like a dog going to a vet, you know, there can, can be things you just have to do. So sometimes you can get COVID through no fault of your own. And other times you can be like Master Scaler and kind of bring it on yourself. But how insane is this that they're going to disqualify people for having COVID? Now you may ask, okay, short of the not blinding people out thing, what else could they do? So, okay, would it be a good solution just to say if you show up with a positive uh, COVID result, then you just get blinded out? Well, maybe, but what else could they do? Well, first of all, they could actually have a quarantine, kind of similar to the NBA bubble, the Major League Baseball bubble, which didn't completely work. But they could have something like that where you just they just get everybody together for the final table and quarantine them. Uh, now, you could say, well, maybe they could just everybody self-quarantine, or they could just instruct everybody to self-quarantine for those two weeks. And whoever doesn't, tough luck on them. They could also delay it. They could say that uh, if... They pretty much give everybody a chance to test positive for COVID once. That is, everybody shows up on December 28th and takes a COVID test. 
If it's all negative, great, everybody plays. If there's one negative out of the nine, one or more, they delay it for two weeks or three weeks, whatever they think is necessary. And then on the second try, if anybody is COVID positive, even if it's not the same guy, then they get to blind out and that's too late. So they, they won't endlessly delay it for when there's a positive COVID test, but uh, they'll, they'll do one delay if the initial time someone has it. Or they could just keep delaying it. Now, I can see why they wouldn't want to do that, but it's a possibility too that they could just uh, they just won't play it until all nine people test positive or test negative. But I think the second one is probably the best solution. That they try to tell everybody to be careful, and that uh, the first time if somebody tests uh, positive, there can even be a penalty. What is it, like a small penalty or something for being the one to test positive? So people are careful, like incentivize. The uh, being careful, tell people to self-quarantine, but not disqualify them if they are. Maybe give them some kind of penalty, whoever tests positive, and then delay it for two weeks, and then come back, and then whoever is positive in two weeks, then uh, they just don't get to play, and they can blind it out. Or, how about this? How about no main event that's live if you have to do it like this? That's actually the best solution. This is a money grab. The fact that you have to have rules that you disqualify a main event final tableist for having COVID shows that you shouldn't be having a World Series yet. That really shows we're just not ready for it. It's not Caesar's fault. It's not anybody's fault. It's just COVID is there. We don't have a vaccine yet. We might soon. We don't have a vaccine yet. It's still very much a problem. So how about just no main event in 2020? I think everybody can accept that at this point. I think everybody has accepted at this point in late 2020 that this year has been very weird and non-standard and that certain things that you do normally, you don't do right now. I think we've gotten used to that concept. So, okay, you guys had your online events that went relatively well other than some fail, but it happened, you completed it, some people liked it. Okay, you had some form of the World Series, both uh, on WCP.com and GG Poker. Call it a win and focus on 2021. Maybe by 2021 in the summer, maybe the vaccine will be widely uh, distributed enough by then and, and effective enough to where COVID is uh, mostly gone or at least the concern for it is uh, diminished. By the way, that's going to be a huge problem. I, I don't think COVID is going to be eradicated by the early summer of 2021. There's just not enough time left. The World Series usually begins in late May. It's late May is now only six and a half months from now. Do you think in six and a half months we're going to go from the state of COVID right now where we're getting uh, 150,000 verified new cases a day to zero cases a day? Do you think we're going to be there? Even with a a good vaccine that's 90% effective? Do you think we'll just have COVID gone in six and a half months? I don't think so. That is why I've already pretty much made peace with the fact, the likely fact, that I'm not going to play it in 2021. I'm not saying for sure, but if I had to bet on it, I would say that I'm not going to play till 2022. Why? Because I just don't think I'll feel comfortable in 2021. Even if there is a 90% effective vaccine, I won't know if I'm part of the 10% or the 90%. I don't think the 90% vaccine is going to lead to herd immunity quickly enough to where it's going to be totally eradicated by the time they do the World Series. 
even if they delay the World Series, maybe they say, okay, maybe they'll delay it two months and start in late July instead of late May. I don't think that's a, enough time. I don't think until the year 2022, we will be able to say COVID is gone. It's not a concern anymore. We may never be able to say it. Possible that COVID is like the flu that mutates enough to where every year it is still a concern and it kills people every year just like the flu does. The flu killed 60,000 or so people in the last flu season prior to COVID existing. 60,000. The reason that was not something that was big news is because almost all of them were old. So for the typical American who isn't old, the flu was not a threat. So that's the reason it wasn't being talked about that much. And we've dealt with it for so long, it's just considered part of life. The flu's there, the flu will kill you when you're very old, and that's the way it goes. You, you, you get a flu shot, and, flu shot each year when you're old and you hope you don't get it. Right now, I don't worry about the flu. Right now, meaning any point in my life up till now, because uh, I'm not in the demographic that the flu is likely to kill or harm, other than make me temporarily sick. COVID is a different story, obviously. COVID is much worse for me at this age than the flu is. But my point is here that the flu is something that kills a lot of Americans every year, mostly old Americans, but nevertheless kills a lot of Americans every year. And we just have every year and we have never eradicated. So COVID could go that way too. The flu mutates enough to do it. COVID may or may not. It's not clear yet. So who knows? It may never be gone. I might have to adjust my life permanently regarding the chances I take. I don't know. I don't know what I'll do if this is around forever. It also depends upon the treatments. If, if there's good treatments for it, yeah, then I won't care that much. But I, I just, whatever ends up, if it's either eradicated uh, because of the vaccine, because of herd immunity, or if it's around forever, or if it's around forever but we have a treatment for it, this is not all going to be fleshed out by the summer. And I know that. I shouldn't say I know it, but I think it's likely. So I don't think I'm playing in 2021. I actually think my next time playing the World Series will be when I'm old enough to play the Seniors event, which will be in 2022. But let's look at this. This is 2020. We should not be having a World Series of Poker live main event in 2020, even if it's just the final table. If you have to disqualify people for COVID, you should not be having the event. That's the litmus test. The test should be, can we conduct a final table without disqualifying people for COVID? Answer, no. Should we have the event? Answer should also be a big fat no. This is dumb. And if they have to disqualify someone, imagine if they disqualify the chip leader. Right? You see some guy kicking ass through the whole World Series, and then he comes back on the 28th, and he tests positive for COVID. Do you know how awful that'll look if the chip leader has to be disqualified in ninth place because he has COVID? Especially like, let's say it's a high-profile player. Let's say it's like Negranu. Let's say it's Negranu or Phil Helmuth, and you have to disqualify one of those guys with a huge chip lead. Can you imagine how terrible that would look for poker? Can you imagine how terrible that would look for the World Series? That everyone gets excited that some player who is well-known has a big chip lead, and you have to watch them get disqualified because of COVID? I mean, come on. So this is a mess. They shouldn't. I, the, the problem is they're getting too greedy. They got too greedy with letting GG Poker run actual bracelet events when they weren't ready. And they're getting greedy with trying to run 
a live World Series main event, or at least final table live World Series main event, because they want the money. They want the money from ESPN, because remember, it's going to be broadcast on ESPN. So they want the ESPN TV money. They want the rake from it. It's a money grab. People were perfectly content with not having a 2020 World Series. It's not like everyone was clamoring, oh, this really sucks, there's no World Series, damn it, Caesars, you're being too cautious. Come on, guys, just have a live World Series. Come on, come on, where's the live main event? Like, nobody's saying that. Like, I, I read Twitter every day. I follow a ton of poker players, including a lot of uh, big-name poker pros. I have not seen one say, where's the main event? Where's the live main event in 2020? We know why it's not going. We understand why it's not going. We agree with why it's not going. So why are you having it? To bank a little bit of money? Stupid. So needless to say, I'm not going to be playing this. <laughs> I can't believe they're actually going to be uh, disqualifying people. Crazy. As you might guess, this is not getting a good reaction on Twitter. Poker Twitter does not like this one bit. Especially the part of it disqualifying people and not blinding them off. That's really getting people's goat. <laughs> they just don't like it. And it makes sense. You know the World Series. They make a lot of dumb decisions. All right. Let's talk about Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu. Since I just mentioned Negreanu's name, let's just move on to talk about him and Doug Polk and their heads-up match. So as you guys know, I bet with someone at 4.25 to 1. I bet on Negreanu. I got the underdog. And the other guy got the favorite. I bet uh, 500 of my own money, and I'll get back a 2,125 if I end up being the winner, meaning Daniel ends up winning the match. And winning the match is defined as uh, being ahead when it's all over. Even if Daniel is ahead by $1, I win. If he's if he's tied, then we, nobody wins. And if he uh, loses, then I lose $500. So I, I don't have big money at stake, but... Uh, I still have more interest in this than I would have otherwise. And uh, I would have some interest otherwise because these two have hated each other for a long time. And Polk has trolled Negrani for a long time. And people have been very interested to see this go down. Unfortunately, uh, they're, they're not showing the, ha- the whole cards, the online version. They did show it live, but then there wasn't an easy way to watch it live. So... There's already some fail involved for spectators. Not fail like they're making uh, errors, but that they didn't set it up well to be something for the viewer. But there's been people watching, and they've had commentators. And I'll be honest, I haven't watched any of the actual poker played out yet. I just haven't done it, especially because it's not that appealing to watch uh, online poker being played with no hole cards. The live version would have been more interesting. I just wasn't available to watch it that day. The first 200 hands was to be played live. That was part of the agreement they had. And it it was going to be broadcasted from the Poker Go Studios, which it was. And surprisingly, they were actually very civil to one another. There wasn't like a lot of trash talk and Doug wasn't trolling him. Like none of that was happening. They were actually very civil. I didn't uh, watch it, but I watched highlights and, and I read people's analysis of it. And uh, Daniel did well. Daniel ended up with the initial lead. So in that uh, first event, you know, the first day, there was only 200 hands out of the 25,000 they're going to play. So uh, 
that doesn't uh, mean all that much. But still, he initially started to win. And he won over $100,000. So uh, that was a good start for Daniel. And it didn't surprise me as much as you'd think, because Daniel is a very good live player. I've played with Daniel at the World Series before, and what I've noticed, he has really good live reads. Very, very good live reads. Now, live reads are never as good as they're shown on TV or in the movies, where like the hero knows every single card that everyone's holding. There's no such thing as that, but uh, I guess unless you're playing on UB. But uh, he is very good, like, and he's, he's in a heads-up pot with someone of really figuring out what their range of hands is, and he, he reasons it out from who they are, their play style, the way they've raised, you know, the bet sizing, if, if it's not limit, things like that. And he just has a very good feel for it. He has a very good feel for live hand-reading and live tells. And that's part of the reason he's been so successful. So as far as being a live player, Daniel Negreanu is very good and remains very good. Now, online, it's not the same. And something people don't realize, some people know it, but some people don't. Online poker and live poker are almost two different games. I know people who are great live players that can't win online, and they complain about it. They complain, I do great here. You know, we're in Commerce or Bellagio, whatever. I do great here, but then when I try to play online, I just get clobbered. I don't understand it. The, I don't understand the play styles. Whatever I, what I do there doesn't work. I can't win online. I don't want to play online. I, I've heard a lot of good live players say that. I've also seen great online players try to play live, and they get crushed. So you actually have to adjust. And I have to do this myself, and I catch myself sometimes. Like when I was going to commerce, I was going to commerce a lot before COVID hit. I was having to be careful not to play my online style live. And occasionally I would I would slip, and I would play my uh, online style, and I would do something stupid and waste money. And I'd go, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I'd say to myself, I wouldn't say out loud, obviously, but I'd say to myself in my head, whoa, 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 what are you doing? That was stupid. That was just plain stupid. That, that was that would be a good move online. That would be a good call online. That would be a good raise online. Live, this was dumb. So I, I have to know where I am and the way the game plays. So that's that's true no matter what form of poker you play. If it's live and if it's online, it plays very differently. Doug is a great online player. And Doug is not as much of a live player as Daniel is. Now, it's true that Heads up, no limit is Doug's game, and it's not Daniel's game. Daniel is more of a limit player. He's more of a mixed game player. He's not efficient, no limit. He's not efficient, heads up, no limit, but he is somebody who, that's not his specialty. And Doug, overall, is a much better heads up, no limit player than Daniel. And pretty much everybody acknowledges that, including Daniel, who wants to be seen as the underdog because he doesn't want the humiliation of losing. Daniel agreed to this with Doug having the favorable terms, because he was hoping that uh, if he wins, everyone will praise him. And if he loses, everyone's expecting it anyway, because this is, uh, you know, Doug's considered the best heads-up, no-limit player in the world. So, you know, what's the shame in losing to him? That's why Daniel didn't even want to throw in any mixed game in there, because he, he wanted to be the underdog. We've discussed that before. But you put Daniel live against Doug Polk, where Doug isn't as comfortable and Daniel is more comfortable, even with Doug being better at the game, Daniel can make up for it a lot with his prowess at live poker. So sure enough, on the first match, after just 200 hands played, 
Daniel was up 116,000. Most of that happened at the end. Doug ran two bluffs into big hands of Daniel's. So some of that was just unfortunate timing that Doug chose to bluff at the exact wrong time. And that can happen. But uh, it, it also may have happened because uh, Doug didn't have as good of a feel for the live games he does online. Whatever it was at the end of 200 hands, which admittedly is not very much, uh, Daniel was up 116K. Uh, still left to 24,800 hands, so that uh, wasn't very far into the match, but still, with less than 1% of the match played, Daniel was up 116,000. Good start for Daniel. Seriously Serious, who is uh, Doug's friend and uh, also has worked for Doug for a long time, Seriously Serious said, wow, Daniel's now on pace to win $14.5 million in this challenge. <laughs> He was saying sarcastically, of course. Seriously, serious is of the belief that Doug is going to absolutely crush him. Well, as I expected, there is going to be a beatdown in the online portion, and indeed the next two sessions, that's the way it went. So, in the second session, which is now online, Doug won $218,000 off of Daniel to then put himself up over 101,000 overall. That very quickly erased that 116,000 deficit and then some. So I go, oh no, that's, that's exactly what I'm worried about because almost all of this is going to be played online. Well, I thought, well, maybe just Daniel ran bad. I didn't watch it, but I think I made Daniel could have just run bad or he can make some adjustments. So maybe he'll do the second time. Well, he didn't do better the second time. Doug didn't win quite as much, but he still extended his lead over Daniel to be uh, close to 200K already. I guess he won like another 90-something thousand. So it was looking very bad. And I thought my $500, I might as well light it on fire. (laughs) I thought I was pretty much finished as far as winning that bet. But lo and behold, today, in fact, it ended shortly before the show began. Today they played another session. Doug lost over $200,000. Daniel won $206,994, almost two hundred seven k. Daniel was up on Doug. So now after 1,737 hands, Daniel is actually ahead by almost 26k. Now 26k is nothing in this uh, high-stakes match that comes and goes super quickly. But now we're getting closer to 10% along because a 12, 10% will be at the 2,500 mark. We're at 1,737 hands. So we're starting to approach 10%, and uh, Daniel's actually slightly ahead with uh, most of these hands, 1,537 out of the 1,737, being played online. So maybe Daniel actually is competitive. Now, I don't know the details on today's match. It just finished before... I was uh, about to start the show, so I didn't get to read an analysis. But uh, I don't know if Daniel just got lucky or if he played better or both. Doug said, had some unfortunate spots today. What are you going to do? Looking forward to playing some more next week. We'll be likely upping the volume as well. So they want to get past this faster. Doug feels it's too slow, and I guess Daniel agrees. But uh, Doug did not really say whether he felt he didn't play well. I guess they played five sessions. I, I thought they had played four. I guess there were five sessions played. This is a session five result, unless that's a typo. But whatever it is, after 1,737 hands, right now Daniel has a lead by about 26K. 
Do I think Daniel's the favorite now? No. But what was encouraging to me, who's obviously rooting for Daniel because I have financial interest in this, otherwise otherwise I wouldn't be rooting for either one. Otherwise I'd just be watching it just to watch it. But I have the interest to root for Daniel here so I win twenty one twenty five instead of losing 500. By the way, the guy who bet the other side of it was someone I didn't really know. I guess he's like a commerce player. But uh, he listens to the show now, so I guess I picked up a listener. Either that, or he was already a listener. I didn't get that. I didn't quite get that from him. Whether he was already listening or or found the show because we were betting with each other. But either way, he listens to the show. He complimented the show, so thank you. So anyway, at least Daniel showed that he could be competitive. I, I swear, after the last session, I was really feeling like it was done. I felt like they're barely along the way, but I feel like it's done. I just threw my money away, and now I'm feeling okay. I think there's still a much bigger chance I lose than win, but at least Daniel has shown that he can win in an online heads-up session against Doug Polk. Live he did, but I knew he could win live. I, it was online. It was, I'm like, ah, oh boy, I forgot about the online factors. When I made this bet, I didn't really think of that. I should have, because I say it all the time that online and live are so different. And I knew who was the better live player, and I knew who was the better online player, and I knew almost all this was going to be online. And still, I, I stupidly bet on Daniel not thinking of that factor. You're not just betting based upon the two guys. You're, you're betting it based upon uh, everything. And the live online thing is, is actually a lot bigger than I had thought. Well, I didn't think. That was the problem. If I, if I had thought more about it, I would have said, wait a minute, they're playing it mostly online, and that's Doug's strength. Forget, forget the game they're playing. Just online is his strength. But at least Daniel has shown that he can win. I don't know how many times he's going to win. <laughs> this may be his only win for a while. But uh, if he was just getting crushed time after time after time, then, I mean, Daniel may even cry uncle at the 12,500 mark, which he may still do, but uh, if, if he can stay competitive, he definitely won't, even if he's not winning or close to winning. I don't think it's likely at all that Doug will cry uncle at the 12,500 mark, even if Daniel's way up somehow. I think Doug's going to keep playing. I think Doug considers himself the much better player. So I think he'd see it as he can either make adjustments or that Daniel's just getting lucky. Part of the reason I bet on Daniel, and part of the reason I don't feel completely awful about my bet, is that Daniel does have the ability to adjust. So yes, he's not a natural online player, but he did pretty well in the last online World Series. And Daniel has adjusted over the years to keep up with the game. He's been able to remain a very competitive tournament player at the highest levels, despite the fact that he's an older school player. So he's not one of these guys who was good in the 90s and 2000s that can't keep up today. He has kept up today. He's, he's adjusted his game to keep up today. So I thought, okay, Daniel has enough card sense to make this competitive. And Doug hadn't played that much until recently. Doug had taken a long hiatus from poker, so maybe he had some rust. So who knows? I thought maybe Daniel can surprise him. So that's why for 4.25 to 1, I took it. I kind of regret it, but at least now it looks like it's going to be a sweat, at least for some time. Now, maybe Doug's going to crush him in like the next five sessions, and it'll look terrible, but <laughs> we'll see. But right now, Daniel's actually the surprising leader. Not by that much, but the surprising leader after 1,737 hands. I will give you an update on this one next week. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can text, you can call. Either way. I wonder if Trader Ruski or Brandon will pop up. 
I hope so, because I'm starting to feel like kind of some hoarseness from talking too much with no break. Okay, well, here's somebody who hopes that they won't be taking a break and ending up in jail. Vanessa Selbst has done something pretty foolhardy. Foolhardy and I think just something was very inappropriate. I don't like Vanessa Selbst. I've always been open about that. I just don't like her. Now, some people think, oh, look at this. A right-wing white middle-aged male doesn't like a butch liberal lesbian. What a shock. Well, it actually has nothing to do with that. I don't dislike Vanessa for being gay. I don't dislike Vanessa for being butch. I don't dislike Vanessa for having left-wing politics. And if you think about it, there are gay people in poker, and even on this forum, who I like. There are people who have left-wing politics, who I like. Even attorney Eric Benzamokin is on the political left, and he and I get along great. So I can get along with people on the other political side, and I don't mind if somebody's gay. I don't care. That's fine. That's up to you who you want to date. It doesn't bother me at all. Whether you're a lesbian or a gay male, it's it's fine. So that has nothing to do with it. I guarantee it has nothing to do with it. She's just uh, not a pleasant person, not a good person. She's a big hypocrite. She's very abusive to people. She always has been. She's terrible at the tables. She berates people. She berates pros and amateurs, men and women. She almost made women cry at the ladies' event, which is a very, very friendly event at the World Series of Poker. The ladies' event, which obviously I can't play in. Uh, I guess I could if I dressed like a woman like Sean Deeb did at that time, but uh, since I don't want to do that, I can't play the ladies' event unless I want to pay like 10 times to buy in. But I've heard that it's a very friendly, non-competitive environment where the ladies are very supportive to one another. There's a lot of amateurs there, a lot of women playing for the first time. And uh, everybody is, is very nice and helpful there, except for one person, except for Vanessa Selps, who shows up there and berates people, insults people, uh, asks them questions like, do you know who I am? And is not doing it jokingly. And constantly tells everyone at the table how much better she would have played the hand than they would have played, even if she wasn't in the hand. And she has behaved this way in poker ever since the beginning. This wasn't just in 2006 when she was young. I'm talking about like in 2016, 2017. She hasn't changed. She hasn't improved. She treats people very poorly. And this came out on Twitter two years ago. And there was a a beatdown on Twitter where just everyone came out and told their different Vanessa Selp stories. You wouldn't believe how many there were, including many people who don't usually get involved in drama who told the story. So you knew those people were telling the truth. These were not people who like to exaggerate or, or get involved in controversy. Some of the people who told the story like, are very, very nice, non-controversial, non-confrontational people. I'm like, well, I've got a story too. And then they tell what Vanessa did to them. Like She was just awful at the table to people. And uh, even at, she, she took that Wall Street job. She got in some trouble there early on at the office Christmas party of all things. Like who gets in a freaking argument at the Christmas party? The Christmas party is supposed to be a happy place. The Christmas party is where you don't start workplace drama. You don't get in arguments with people. You like Even people in the office you don't like, you're like, okay, we're not working right now. So even this guy who's awful and I hate working with him, you know, this is a social environment. So who cares? Like, I'm not going to, I'm just going to 
act friendly, even if I don't really like this person. Like, that's the way people act at office Christmas parties. And uh, Vanessa apparently couldn't do that. I don't know the details. She's the one who put the details out there. That's the only reason I know. But she put the details out there on Twitter that she uh, that an incident happened at the office Christmas party and people complained to HR about her and they had to have a whole HR incident about it. And, and she's like, oh, no, 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 it's good, though. We smoothed it all over. Everybody's cool now. Like, yeah, everybody's cool except you created an incident at your new job at the freaking office Christmas party. Who does that? So that's Vanessa Self. She's also very, very outspoken politically. And yet, if you dare disagree with her, even respectfully, she's going to block you. You know how many people I block who disagree with me politically on Twitter? Because I, I make political tweets. I make uh, political-related uh, statements on Twitter, some of which are controversial. And I have people responding back to me, uh, strongly disagreeing, sometimes even insulting me. You know how many people I've blocked for that reason? Zero point zero. Because if you're going to bring up controversial political topics, you're going to get people on the other side responding to you disagreeing. And if you can't handle that there are people out there who don't agree with your politics, then don't share your politics on social media. The point of social media is to be social, to have discussions. And if you don't want a discussion, if you just want to lecture and nobody can respond back to you, then you are being a hypocrite. But she blocks anyone who responds to her disagreeing, including me. She didn't block me because I've said bad things about her on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I don't think she's aware of that. She blocked me many years ago because I didn't agree with her politics. And I was very respectful. I did not say anything insulting. I didn't see anything very extreme. I respectfully disagreed and I got blocked. And I'm one of many, many, many people who got blocked by her. That's another awful thing. I'm not awful, it's just stupid. Another thing, she is a, a big fan of cancel culture. She has stated before that if you're on the right, you just don't deserve a platform. Because your platform, you, you're dangerous if you're on the right. If you believe what Fox News said, you don't deserve to be heard. You should not have a platform to speak. Only her truthful and accurate view of the world must be heard. The other side must not be heard. They don't deserve a platform. That's why she blocks people. Not only does she block them, but she feels they should be blocked permanently from social media. They just should not be able to disseminate their opinions. She really believes this. Believe it, despite the fact that she is a licensed attorney who specialized in civil liberties. <laughs> the attorney specializing in civil liberties doesn't think that the other political side should have a right to speak. That makes a lot of sense, Vanessa. But that's all in the past. Let's, let's talk about the present. This is what she wrote. Vanessa wrote on November 10th at 5.32, I don't want to get banned from Twitter, so I definitely wouldn't suggest someone should just assassinate the fucker, but also maybe I wouldn't disagree if someone else suggested it. That's what she wrote. I don't want to get banned from Twitter. I definitely wouldn't suggest someone just assassinate the fucker, but I also maybe wouldn't disagree if someone else suggested it. And you know who she's referring to. She's referring to Trump. Now, why is she writing this? Well, because you know, Trump is objecting to the results of the election, and uh, so she, she's, she wants this to be over. She wants Trump to concede and be done and not try to challenge it, which that, that's a very reasonable point of view. In fact, I agree with that. But she says that he should be assassinated. The fucker should be assassinated, she says. Now, she didn't directly say it. She didn't say, I'm going to assassinate Trump. She didn't say, uh, I think someone should assassinate Trump. She said it in a very... Uh, roundabout way to where it was very clear what she meant. 
but she felt that she wouldn't get in trouble for writing it, which is stupid because if you say anything that looks like it might be a threat to the president, even if indirect, you might get a visit from the Secret Service. And I wouldn't be surprised if she did. I'm not even saying like it's a long shot. We probably won't hear about it, but it's not even a long shot that the, the Secret Service inv- uh, investigates and visits her. Because she said, I don't want to get banned from Twitter, so I definitely wouldn't suggest that someone should just assassinate the fucker. But I wouldn't disagree if someone else suggested it. So she's saying, hey, I agree he should be assassinated. That's what she's saying. Read it. That's, and, and she's really saying someone should. But even if you don't want to read between the lines, she's directly saying, I would agree if someone were to say, we should assassinate Trump, which is insane. I mean, this is the president of the U.S. You may hate him. You may disagree with him. You can't support assassinating the president of the U.S. There's very strict laws against that. And it completely goes against all concepts of a civilized society. You cannot have a civilized society when you support the assassination of a president you don't like. You can support voting that person out of office. You can support publicly opposing their policy or their behavior. You can support uh, criminal charges against them if you feel they've committed crimes. These are all completely fine. You can protest against them. That's fine, too. What you can't do is call for them to be assassinated. Never once in my life have I thought about or hoped that a president would get assassinated. Never. There's been presidents I didn't like. Never once, like during the Obama years. I didn't like Obama. I didn't support Obama. I didn't think one time, I'm not just saying this, I really didn't think one time in the eight years about wanting him assassinated. Not only wouldn't I do it myself, I would not want it done. I wouldn't be happy to see it happen. That's if, if someone said that uh, they hope that happened, I would say, you're crazy. <laughs> we shouldn't do that. What are you talking about? That's, a, that's what a normal human being would say. We don't assassinate the president. You don't support assassinating the president. No matter what you like him or dislike him, you don't do it. But she said it. And th- this is an attorney. How does she write something like this? How does she think she can get away with this? Like She may not go to jail for this but because she didn't directly say it, but she, she came pretty close. What a crappy thing to say. I mean, that's just a, that's really just showing a messed up person to write something like that. It's one thing to think it, to actually write this on Twitter. She actually wrote on Twitter that she wouldn't disagree if somebody else suggested that they should assassinate Trump. How could she write something like that? This is a woman who is a mom, is raising a kid, is an attorney. I I don't know what she's doing. Now, by the time I saw it, it was not actually on Twitter anymore because, of course, her friends responded going, oh, no, 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 delete that, delete, 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 delete. Like her friends panicked because they knew. They knew that at the very best, this would make her look terrible. And at the worst, that she could go to jail for it. So <laughs> they're telling her, yeah, you better delete that, delete, delete, delete. So she realized it and deleted it too, which means she quickly came to understand that uh, this was dumb. Otherwise, she would not have deleted it. Why would she write it in the first place? Because she has terrible anger issues. And we've seen this for 15 years at the tables. She can't control herself. She has terrible anger issues. She's not a good person. And sometimes you see somebody who's in a traditionally uh, oppressed group 
and uh, someone who has very far left politics, which appeared to, you know, would appear on the surface to be someone who cares about the little guy and 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 wants to to help the downtrodden. And you you think, okay, how bad could this person be? But she's just behind, she's hiding behind all of that. You can be a bad person and also be a butch lesbian. You can be a good person and also be a butch lesbian. But you can be a bad person too, just like you could be a uh, straight white male and be a bad person. I know many straight white males who are bad people. So, same way, there can be bad people who are gay white females. <laughs> and uh, the left-wing politics, that, that doesn't make someone a good or bad person. Just like right-wing politics doesn't make someone a good or bad person. But uh, behind all of her social justice warrior, uh, oh, I want to fight for the victims mentality, you look past that and you see someone who's very hypocritical very selfish, treats people badly all the time, uh, very self-unaware, and now writes the president to be assassinated. I mean, this is just crazy. But since I didn't see this actually tweeted, I saw a screenshot of it, yes, I thought, wait a minute, what if somebody is making this up? What if somebody made a fake tweet from Vanessa Selps, and she didn't really write this? Maybe I shouldn't put this out there until I'm 100% sure she said it because I didn't actually see her tweet it. Well, I don't have that concern anymore because I looked at her Twitter feed and while that was indeed gone, someone tweeted to her pathetic and had a screenshot of uh, her tweeting that, which uh, already makes it look like it's probably real because the person who was uh, tweeting the screenshot was tweeting at a different screenshot of it than the screenshot that was sent to me by somebody else. So that already makes it look real. But this is what she responded back. She didn't respond back, this is fake. She didn't respond back, I never said that. No, she responded, not sure how it's pathetic not to want our entire democracy obliterated. Wow. So this guy is saying it's pathetic that she wrote that and, and, and showed a screenshot of her deleted tweet. And she actually responded back instead of, oh yeah, I shouldn't have said that. She responded back, well, I'm not sure how it's pathetic. I, just, I don't want our entire democracy obliterated. That's why I wrote it. Crazy. She's still defending it. <laughs> she she deleted it, but she's still defending it. That It's, it's not pathetic to write that. It's, it's totally fine because since she doesn't want our democracy obliterated, she, we should just assassinate him, she thinks. Insane. You can be against what Trump wants to do. You can be against him not accepting the results of the election, but uh, assassination? You got to have violence in your blood to want that, to even think that. And keep in mind, Dustin Neverwin Wolf, who played her in the Heads Up Battleship event live in person at the uh, 2008 uh, PCA, the Poker Stars Caribbean Adventure, uh, she made a snide comment about him when he called one of her bluffs. He called her bluff down very light, and uh, he won a big pot off of her Heads Up. So she said under her breath, but loud enough to where he could hear, I, I should have known I, I, I shouldn't try to bluff someone who's not good enough to fold. Something like that. Some nasty comment like that. So then he made some comment back. I forgot what he said back. But he made some comment back that was along the same line. Nothing terrible. And then she threatened to beat him up. <laughs> I kid you not. She actually threatened to beat up Dustin Neverwin Wolf, according to him. There, there's no proof that happened, but I believe Dustin's story. But he claims that she threatened to beat him up because he was disrespecting her in front of her girlfriend. So first, she makes the nasty comment to him about making what was a correct call of her bluff. 
And then uh, he says something back. And then she says he's disrespecting her in front of her girlfriend, who's now her wife, and that she wants to beat him up for it. She actually wanted to go out and fight him. <laughs> what is wrong with her? She wanted to fight Neverwin over heads of poker, an actual real fist fight. She berates people, including other women, including amateurs, including amateur women in the ladies' event. She berates people constantly at the tables whenever she plays poker. She puts out controversial political opinion, but will block you if you respond. She wants to assassinate the president. She gets in fights at office Christmas parties. What a lovely woman Vanessa Selbst is. Now you know why I don't like her. And it has nothing to do with her sexuality or her politics. Okay, so let's move on to uh, a story that I haven't really seen covered anywhere else. Definitely been covered the most on my two sites of uh, Vegas Casino Talk and Poker Fraud Alert. And that is the San Manuel incident. This should have been a much bigger story. The only reason it probably wasn't is because nothing that bad actually happened. But it's a very interesting situation. And I can only imagine how the people felt as it occurred. So, uh... Let's talk a bit about San Manuel first. San Manuel is an Indian casino, and it is in Southern California. They, it's one of the bigger ones. They market to the L.A. market, though uh, it's closer to those who live in like Riverside, San Bernardino. But the L.A. market is a reasonable distance from it. They market a lot to it. They market to the San Diego market as well. The San Diego, it's a little bit farther, and they have closer casinos. So it's mainly L.A. people that they're trying to get to go there, and also people in Orange County and Riverside, of course. But uh, San Manuel, it's an Indian property, so they're not governed by any kind of uh, gaming commission like the Vegas casinos are. And uh, like all casinos, they have a player's club where they send people offers that are based upon their past play. So, uh, and San Manuel, by the way, is located in Highland, California. If you haven't heard of Highland, it is a little bit northeast of San Bernardino. And it's uh, not that far from, like, uh, the mountain resorts like Big Bear. You could get to Big Bear in uh, not that long of a time from Highland. So that that's where it is. And uh, the farther east you are in in the Southern California area, the closer you are to... San Manuel. So anyway, let's let's get back to uh, what happened. They sent out uh, free play to those who normally get free play. And the free play offers that people received were very normal and very in line of what they've been expecting. So if you're a high roller, or at least a semi-high roller, you were getting nice amounts of free play, like $500, $750, things like that. If you were uh, kind of a, a lower stakes player, but still a regular enough player to where they want you back... You probably got things like $10, $20, $50. And for some people, that's enough to come in, especially if you don't live that far from there or you'd like to go in anyway. So a lot of people came to redeem their free play as they normally do. This was nothing special. This wasn't a special promotion. This wasn't a, a special deal. But they, they sent out their free play to whoever normally gets it and uh, whoever they feel deserves it in varying amounts. All of that is very standard. But here's what wasn't standard. People showed up to pick up their free play. And they found that the kiosk that printed the free play gave them 100 times what they were promised. 100. What do you do? What do you do? 
So the kiosk prints it for you. You're mailed an offer. You go to the kiosk. It prints you a voucher, and the voucher is 100 times what they say you're going to get. Also, there's some people who didn't know what they were getting. Some people just showed up and said, hey, let's just stop at San Manuel and see if I have any free play. I haven't been I haven't been looking at my mail lately. I just, uh, uh, Or maybe I didn't get my, the mail from them. Whatever, the mail didn't come. So uh, I'm just going to go into San Manuel, swipe the kiosk, see if there's any free play waiting for me. And that's not unreasonable. I've done that before at casinos where I don't know if there's free play waiting for me or not. But I'm there anyway. I might as well swipe the kiosk and see. I have never been to San Manuel, but uh, I've done it at other places where I'll just check on my free play. So people between checking their free play and ones that were going there specifically to redeem free play that they knew they had coming, every single one of them, not a few of them, not one of them, not some of them, but every single one of them had 100 times what they were promised. This was definitely a mathematical error. Probably someone uh, entered something wrong with not using the decimal point when they should. I don't know how this happened, but somehow uh, it was probably a decimal point error because if you think about it, $1 would be written as 1 period zero zero, right? So if you take away the decimal point, it becomes $100, 100. So $500, 500.00 would become 50,000 with no decimal point. So I don't know how that happened in the system, but it probably isn't a coincidence. It was exactly 100. It probably had to do with the decimal point. But whatever it is, that glitch definitely was occurring. So what do you do? You show up there, and let's say you don't know. Let's say you don't know that everybody else is getting it to you. As far as you can tell, it's only you, but you haven't checked with anybody else, and you have no way to. So you just show up. Let's say you're expecting 50, and you get 50,000. Do you play it? Is it legal to play it? Can you get in trouble? Is it ethical to play it? Like, what do you do? It's not an easy answer. All of this is not easy to answer. Some people have compared it in the subsequent discussion that's come out uh, about the matter. Some people have compared it to the erroneous ATM situation. You've probably heard that if you go to an ATM, and let's say you go to withdraw $40, and it spits out uh, $4,000, If you keep that $4,000 and don't report it to the bank, then you are guilty of a crime. Not only do you owe the $39.60 back that you didn't deserve, that wasn't supposed to go to you, but they can actually uh, charge you with a crime. They can report this to law enforcement. Law enforcement can come arrest you. There's actually a criminal law on the books, I believe in all 50 states, or maybe even a federal law. I'm not sure what level this law is at, but there's actually a criminal law on the books that makes it illegal to reap the benefits of an erroneous ATM transaction. Now, that doesn't mean you'd have to check every cash transaction at the ATM uh, to the penny. So if you're trying to withdraw 60 and it gives you 80, no one's going to come after you because that is a reasonable mistake. But if you go to withdraw 40 and it's about 400 or 4,000, obviously you know that uh, it's giving you way too much. So there's, there's a mistake that would be defensible that wouldn't be detectable, and there's a mistake where you'd have to know. So obviously in this case, 100 times free play, uh, you'd obviously find that that's not what you'd be expecting, okay? So let's go back to the ATM example, though. That is a crime. So regardless if you want to say if it's right or wrong to take the extra money the ATM spits out, it's actually a crime. You can get in trouble for it. But what about this? Is this the same thing? Well, let, let's consider a few things. First of all, this is occurring on Indian land. So it's what the Indians think is a crime, not what the California or United States government think is a crime. If uh, the Indian tribe thinks it's a crime, it can be a crime. So that's the first thing to consider. 
Second, uh, let's pretend that wasn't the case. Let's pretend it actually was based upon California state law. Would this be a crime? Um, I'm not sure. Too bad we don't have Eric Benzamokin on here. We could ask him. But uh, I'm not sure because uh, this is not the same as an ATM situation, and I'll tell you why. An ATM, there's no mystery to it. An ATM, you enter exactly the amount it's supposed to dispense to you, and if it dispenses substantially more, you know you have received money that you're not supposed to receive, and that's why there's a crime against it, because there's no way that uh, this can be an accident, unless it's a very small amount. But if if it's a large difference, which is the only way they'd come after you, then you know you're getting too much and keeping quiet about it. In this case, you may not know. You may just think, okay, the casino is giving me a lot of extra free play. I don't know why, but I'm not going to question it. I got a lot more free play than I expected, but hey, I'm not going to question it. Especially if you've got a lower amount of free play. Like let's say you were expecting uh, 50 and you get 5,000. Well, you may think, okay, maybe the casino just believes that I'm a a better customer than I am. Maybe they... uh, Maybe I did something that kind of fooled them into thinking I was a high roller when I wasn't. Who knows? Maybe they just made a dumb decision. Who knows? It's not up to me to sanity check it. See, there's no amount of free play that uh, you have to know is correct for you to get. That's up to them to give you the correct amount. You You don't have to be an expert on the amount of free play that you have earned. If you just get more free play, then... uh, you normally would get, even by a factor of 100, I can't say that you would have to necessarily know. You probably would know a mistake, but it's not 100% like it would be at a bank ATM where you know how much you're requesting and you know you get a very different amount. Here, you don't know what you're getting. What if you didn't get the mailer? What if you uh, haven't checked the mailer? What if uh, you don't even look at the mailer, you just throw it away, and then you decide you're just going to check when you drive by? What if you really are going there not knowing how much free play you have coming, then you end up with a lot more than you expected? Okay. Is it up to the customer to sanity check it? Now, at some point, you could say yes. Like if, let's say you're expecting 50 and it gives you 5 million in free play. Well, I don't think anybody could make the argument that they think they're really getting 5 million in free play. Anyone who gets offered 5 million in free play is expecting 50 or 500. If you get offered 5 million, you know it's a mistake, you know it's a glitch, you know you're taking advantage of it. 100 times? Most people would suspect something's wrong, but that's not as clear. Because remember, you're not just going by what you think probably happened. You have to be sure it happened. Just like the ATM where you're sure it happened. The ATM, there's no way around that. You can't, you can't collect 4,000 from the ATM when you, you get 40 and say, oh, sorry, officer. I, I didn't know. I, I requested 40. I got 4,000. I, 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 for some reason, I didn't notice. There, there's no way you could ever make that argument in court. But with this, you could say, I, I'm not an expert on free play. I thought they just liked me. I thought they're trying to entice me to come back more. So it's, it's not up to you to know this. And a lot of people are not experts on this. A lot of people just get it and go, wow, sweet, okay, I'm not going to ask questions. So that for that reason, I don't think it, it would be a crime under the state of California law, but uh, I think the Indian tribe could make a crime out of it. So that, that would be my fear. The next question is, is, is it ethical? Is it ethical? Because they're not intending to give this to you. Let's let's say you realize it's probably a mistake. Let's say you realize if you bring this to their attention, they'll probably correct and say, oh, thanks for telling us. We didn't mean to give you this much. Uh, You really were deserving 1% of this. So is it then ethical? Is it stealing to play this free play that they're giving to you erroneously? I can see both sides of it, actually. 
on one side, if they're not meaning to give it to you and some sort of uh, computer glitch or data entry error gave you a lot of free play that you shouldn't have, then yeah, you are receiving free play, which of course you'll turn into a lot of cash that you shouldn't have and is going to cost the business money unfairly. But on the other hand, it was their mistake. And that uh, if you make mistakes there while you're gambling, then you don't get the money back. And if, uh, like, let's let's say you're at the blackjack table and you accidentally put too much money out to bet. You accidentally put out a big chip to bet. And you didn't mean to do that. Tough luck. They're not going to let you take it back once the hand, the hand starts. Um, or if you just make a bad decision, they're not going to let you redo this decision. There's a, there's a lot of times that, you know, you're just going to be screwed if you make a mistake. So maybe that's just the way gambling goes. If they make a mistake, you benefit. If you make a mistake, uh, they benefit. As long as you're not rigging something, as long as you're not the one who hacked the system to make it say this, or you're not in cahoots with someone who did, if you happen to be the benefit of, beneficiary of it, then uh, then fine. I can understand looking at it that way. Also, Indian casinos are notorious for screwing the customer. They really are. Indian casinos are very, very consumer unfriendly. If there's ever any dispute then they decide. They are judge, juries, and executioners. If you have a civil dispute with them, you'll never win because they're going to be judging the civil dispute with them. It's, it's like suing someone and then having the person you're suing judging it, so you know how that's going to go. And if they claim that you are committing a criminal violation, again, it's going to be in their own system. And you could be uh, really railroaded there. There's also stories of Indian casinos. I haven't heard about San Manuel doing this, but maybe they have. I, I don't know if they have or haven't, but I know of other Indian casinos that have screwed people when they have promotions like where you win a car. And then you say, okay, I'd like my car. They try to talk you out of taking the car and try to give you a, a lesser cash uh, prize and tell you why you don't want the car. If you hold fast and say, I want the car, then they find a way to worm out of the whole thing and don't give it to you. I've seen that happening at other casinos. There's a lot of really shady things that go on in Indian casinos that screw the customer. I had a bad experience at one, that the Table Mountain Casino I told you guys about. It wasn't a really a monetary thing, but I got uh, thrown out of there and and uh, I was forced to do things like give my fingerprints and, uh, and other things I would have never done if I wasn't on Indian land. And because they were falsely accusing me of, of using other people's cards when I was right there using my own card. I showed them. I was like, this is my own card. I'm not using anybody else's card. I'll show you. My, here's my ID. I'm Todd Wittellis. Uh, they, they can kick me out when they want, but they they I, they I wouldn't let, let me leave. They made me sign stuff I didn't want to sign. They made me uh, give my fingerprints. They made me uh, take off my hat so they could take a picture of me that's clear. And uh, normally I would tell a casino, fuck off. I'm not doing any of these things. I know my rights, but I had no rights there. And I knew it. So that's why I did it. That's why I, I had to decide, do I want them to detain me for eight hours or more, maybe days, if I refuse these things? Or should I just agree, because none of this is that terrible, it's just something I shouldn't have to do, and get out of here quickly? So I chose the latter. But And I've told that story before. So this is an Indian casino, San Manuel. I don't know about particular gripes against them, but I'm sure there are some that are, that are valid. So... Uh, when it comes to Indian casinos, do you owe them anything? Or tough luck on them for being so shitty in general. So I, I can understand both sides of that. I'm not saying you should actively steal from them or cheat them. I'm not saying that. You shouldn't. But I'm saying that if they make a mistake, should you bring their attention to it? Or does this kind of fall into the heading of uh, advantage play and uh, 
the casino patron relationship is is a kind of a dog eat dog situation, especially when it comes to Indian casinos. I, I can definitely see that side of it. What would I do if it happened? I'm not sure. If I got ten times the free play, hundred percent, I would say nothing. Hundred, I don't know. I don't know what I'd do with a hundred times, especially the Indian casino. I might be afraid they're going to arrest me. If morally, like let's say I knew that I could do it and not get arrested. Let's say I could see the future and and, and only see that I wouldn't get arrested. So it, it really comes down to a moral thing. Would I do it a hundred times? I, I would definitely do it at a property that had a reputation for screwing people. Like any property that had a reputation for screwing people out of winning cars or whatever. Uh, my, my my attitude is I owe them no favors. I owe them no leeway. But what really happened here? So I, this had nothing to do with me. This didn't happen with me. And I was hearing rumors about this. A listener of this show texted me about it and... Uh, I started hearing more and more rumors that this happened. But finally, I saw a screenshot. Uh, I didn't take this screenshot, but a listener sent me this screenshot of a guy named Derek Kleinsmith. I don't know him, but this is what Derek Kleinsmith wrote. Okay, I'm going to break the silence. And he's saying that because nobody was talking about this. Was anybody else at San Manuel last night? My host told me to come in for $500 in free play and $500 in Amazon gift cards. Instead of 500 free play, I got 50000 loaded on there. I was scared shitless, not sure how to gamble it. As I was playing, it became clear that everyone in the casino got 100 times their free play. Hand pays left and right for a couple of hours. They obviously figured it out eventually and shut down the kiosks and deactivated the free play. Okay, so that's the second part of the story. He kind of already gave it away, but since this happened for everybody, this wasn't just like one individual finding it. So what happened was a lot of people did try to play it. A lot of people decided to go to town. And so they they went to the machines and they played at high stakes. In fact, maybe some of them figured, I'm going to play this at high stakes, run through the free plays. You have to run it at a one-time rollover, meaning you, you can't just put in the free play and hit the cash-out button to get that amount back. You have to play through whatever the amount of free play is once, once minimum. So let's say you get 50000 in free play. You'd have to run 50000 worth of credits on a machine or several machines before you can cash it all out. So uh, if you run it at a low-stakes machine, it's going to take an eternity to get there. You run it on a higher-stakes machine, you'll get there quickly. So I wonder if a lot of people just thought, hey, I've got a lot of extra free play here than compared to what I normally get. Who knows if this is right or not right? I want to run this as fast as I can, cash out, and get the hell out of here. So whatever it was, uh, people started playing higher-stakes machines. Well, what happens is uh, there are two different things that can trigger what's called a hand pay. Federal law states that any machine that gives you a prize of $1,200 or more on an individual hand or spin triggers what's known as a hand pay, meaning that the machine freezes up and whatever you want on that hand, uh, they have to pay you by hand. They have to come over, pay you out in cash, and make you sign documentation and get your social security number, get your ID, and send that into the federal government. This has been on the books for a long time. It Once you get to 1,200, anytime you get more than 1,200, 1,200 or more on a, on a single hand, single spin, then it becomes a hand pay. No way around it. This is federally, even on Indian land. So that's one way a hand pay can be triggered. Second way a hand pay can be triggered is that some casinos, uh, you cannot print a ticket for more than $3,000. So if you run up more than $3,000 on the machine... It can either uh, uh, lock up and then they have to hand pay you or it will just spit out a ticket 
of the difference. So let's say you should have 30, let's say uh, you had 2980 in the machine and you, uh, you hit a, a $400, uh, hand there. It will spit out 4,000, 400 and still leave it at 2980. That, that's, that's what it would do. Uh, so you get, you get about a ticket to spit out. Even if you win much, much less, let's say you win 50, then it'll just spit out a ticket for 50. But some of them will, will freeze up and you have to get a hand pay that way. Now, from what I'm being told, what finally alerted San Manuel to it wasn't the $1,200 jackpot hand pays. What alerted them to it was a lot of people who had over 3000 in the machines that when they tried to cash out, uh, that uh, it, it froze and called over for a hand pay. So this was happening too often. There were just too many people and there were more than 3000 in the machine that were hitting cash out. And they're going, why is this happening? Why are there so many people in here with more than 3000 they're trying to cash out of the machines? And then they realize, oh, I wonder if there's a problem with the free play. And they look, they go, uh-oh, we got screwed. And they quickly deactivated the kiosks and invalidated all the free play. Did anybody get arrested? As far as I know, that did not happen. Did anybody get banned? As far as I know, that did not happen. I think Sam Manuel just kind of ate it. I don't know who was responsible for this mistake. Uh, they may have been... Uh, I don't know what happened to them. <laughs> I have to imagine they're not employed there anymore. And who knows what else occurred? I would not want to be that guy, whoever made that error. But I think the tribe just lost a lot of money there, and they just kind of decided. I think they decided they can't go after anybody for this here because uh, it'll be very bad press for them if this happened with everyone. It's one thing if one guy found he had 100 times and they arrested him and tried to charge him with something or banned him. But the, everybody who showed up that day with free play... You know, what are they going to do? Go after everybody? I mean, yeah, they can go after the people who have the larger amounts of money, but I, I think they just decided to eat it. Now, a guy did a video, a guy who does some gambling videos, like an amateur gambler. This is not an advantage player or anything, just a guy who drives to casinos and videos it. Uh, he made a video called San Manuel Casino Fucked Me Over about that day. Surprisingly, he didn't understand what was going on. He did this video not understanding why they didn't give him his free play. So listen to this. I'm I'm going to I'm going to speed up this video to the 9:30 mark. Listen to what he has to say about his free play that he tried to get and that they denied him. It's funny. He he, he had no clue. I I told him he can come on the show if he wants and I'll explain to him what happened. Was nice as heck. I got to give him that. The staff was super nice, but when I went to guest services, they were rude as heck. It was two females. They're like, nope, you got nothing here. Without even checking my card or my account. They're like, nope, you have no free play, no nothing. So they went and checked. Said, okay, well, you had this and this and this offer, but this one expired yesterday, and the next one is next week. I'm like, what do you mean next week? And I'm like, okay, so what about the free play? They said, we say we see free play here, but you're not, you don't have access to it. I'm like, why? And they're, I don't know. I'm like. You know what? All right, whatever. I'll just play a couple games with my own money. I was really angry, so I didn't play that much. I just want to get the heck out of here. This just reaffirms why I do not like Sam Manuel. Yeah, so this was just a regular guy. This happened on this day. So exactly what occurred here was he came after they had discovered this. So he was not part of this whole thing. He came after they discovered this, and they invalidated everybody's free play because uh, otherwise people are going to get 100 times what they're supposed to get. 
So he asked them, what's going on? I was expecting free play. I don't have free play. What happened here? So instead of them saying, hold on, we're going to look what you're supposed to get and we'll give it to you and having some sort of mechanism to fix that, or, or at least telling him we had a problem with our free play today. Sorry, we had to invalidate it for everybody. We had a glitch that messed the whole system up. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's I see some here, but I, I for some reason we can't access it. I don't know. I don't know. And and he got frustrated and left. I understand it. Like he, he knew he had free play coming to him. He showed up to play the free play, and then he sees he has zero when he goes to the and, and then at the desks they were denying knowing anything, which is crappy. Like at least tell him they had a problem with the system today and to come back another day, like uh, or or manually give it to him. They were able to see the free play. They knew what happened. So why not just write him a free play thing for $75 or whatever he was supposed to get? So that's – and look, you know, he's saying this, this reaffirms why I dislike Sam Manuel. The funny thing, he says a degenerate he played anyway. Like he was pissed. He was really mad about this, that he was offered free play they wouldn't give to him, which is understandable. And he's like, oh, I'm pissed. Okay, I'll play a little bit instead of a lot. <laughs> but, but he walked away thinking, screw Sam Manuel. I don't like them. And he said that two women at that desk were not nice about it. He's probably going to go somewhere else. This is, this is just a, a regular, presumably losing gambler. This is not an advantage player or something that they want to get rid of. This is the type of guy they want there. He's probably not a high roller, but uh, it's definitely the type of guy they want there who just comes in there. And he, the rest of his video is him like playing slots. Like This is not a, a winning gambler. This, this is a guy who they definitely don't want to drive away. So to not just level with him. Sometimes the cover-up's worse than, than whatever occurred. And this is yet another case that I say this over and over that businesses screw up when instead of admitting that something went wrong, they try to make up lies and end up insulting the customer's intelligence or getting rude about it or get defensive when the customer doesn't believe them. Like just, just be honest, just level the customer and say, this is what happened. Sorry. They, even if they don't want to tell the whole story, if they don't want to say, well, we gave a hundred times free play to everybody and some people redeemed it, like, um, they can just say we had a problem with the system today and we had to invalidate everyone's free play. We, we did it to everybody, not just you. We're really sorry. Or even better, give the authority to issue manually free play to people who couldn't pick it up through the kiosk. That would be the right thing to do. Or say, okay, sorry we can't do it today, but we're going to reissue the same free play for tomorrow. Something like that. I mean, just to send them away saying, I don't know what's wrong here. We just can't access it. Sorry you get none is, is, is a joke. San Manuel actually responded to the Vegas Casino Talk Twitter account. Vegas Casino Talk is my other site. I have Poker Fraud Alert and I have Vegas Casino Talk. Vegas Casino Talk uh, has a Twitter account, which is at Vegas Casino Talk. I encourage you to follow it. It doesn't tweet that much, but occasionally does. So I tweeted on Vegas Casino Talk, San Manuel Casino players were shocked to find free play 100 times higher than they were supposed to get. Big jackpots started ringing everywhere. So... Here's their response. This is on the same day, November 3rd, after I tweeted it. Thank you for feedback regarding our technical glitch with our free play last Saturday night. Our team was able to address the issue within 30 minutes, and we appreciate those who brought it to our attention. For anyone who has questions about this incident, please DM us. So they're, they're basically admitting that this all happened. I mean, it did happen. So, yeah, it's not like... Uh, it's not like there's any question this happened, but uh, they, they're basically admitting it, but they're claiming that they got this handled within 30 minutes and they're calling it a glitch. But they, they responded to Vegas Casino Talk, even though I did not at them in the tweet. I didn't put at San Manuel Casino. I just I just wrote this story without putting anything. They just searched their name and found it and responded. So that was interesting to see. And uh, I know somebody who is an advantage player who uh, 
got $750 free play, or that's what he should have gotten, and he showed up to get 75000 because it's 100 times more. Did this person run the 75000 No. This person said, not only is it illegal, but he feels it's immoral. And he went to his host and said, this is a mistake. I do wonder why it took as long as it did to catch it. I don't know if 30 minutes is the accurate time frame, but you would think if people go right to their host and tell them, they should have caught it right then. In general, if you get more free play than you're expecting, you shouldn't go ask about it at any casino. If it's a hundred times, then it probably is an egregious mistake and probably is something that you should think about whether you want to play it or not. Had this occurred in Las Vegas, I'm thinking that you probably couldn't be charged with the crime, but they could definitely ban you for it. They can ban you for any reason in Vegas. So had this occurred in Vegas, they could ban you. They probably couldn't charge you with anything. And they probably uh, could invalidate whatever you've won since it was with you weren't risking your own money. That'd be a good question for Nevada Gaming. I don't know if if you get free play that, that was erroneously issued to you and then you play it and win money with it and then they catch it, can they take back the money you've won? Because there does get to be the question, at what point did you win it? You know, maybe uh, maybe you started playing with a free play and, and you started winning right away. Maybe uh, you would have put your own money in to keep playing had you not had the free play. Like It's hard for them to say what you would or would not have done. So it's possible they may still have to pay you. I don't know what Nevada law is about that. That would be interesting to know if this were happening in Vegas and you won something. One, could they do anything to you criminally? And, and two, could they uh, avoid paying you? All I know is they could ban you. That's one thing I know for sure. But it is an interesting ethical and legal question. In general, when it comes to casinos, I don't like to point out many errors on their part. Because casinos have a very adversarial relationship with you, and you should know that. Casinos exist to take your money. Hosts exist to encourage you to lose your money. There's a lot of trickery that goes on in casinos, a lot of psychological warfare that goes on at casinos in order to make you lose as much money as possible. Even simple things like the reason there's no clocks on the wall, the reason that there's no windows. These are all ways to kind of uh, trick you into losing more money than you intended to lose. They don't want you to see out the window and notice that you've been there all night and it's become light and you should leave. They want you to stay extra time so they don't put windows. And they don't put clocks on the wall for the same reason. And uh, all the flashing lights and the, the placement of the machines and the sound effects they make, this is all done to create an environment which will make you lose the maximum amount of money. Same with the fun themes of a lot of these games, especially the slot machines. Same with the offers that you get. Same with the relationship you have with your host and how... The hosts act so nice to you and how friendly they are to you and how much they appear to care about you. All of this is part of a mechanism to separate you from your money. And a lot more than just a typical sales way. I'm not talking about the same thing of, uh, you know, you, you go to a, a store to buy something and the salesperson's friendly to you. I, I mean, this there's a lot of uh, little tricks that are being used to get you to blow your money in the casino. And to blow more money than you intended to blow. 
So with that being the case, if they make mistakes which allow you to win money from them, uh, usually the answer is do it, win it. Because when you make mistakes, you lose. And in fact, they're trying to encourage you to make these mistakes. Why, why do you think they serve drinks? They serve drinks because they want you to get drunk and not to uh, play as well and also to have uh, fewer inhibitions to blowing your money. I mean, the, these these things are all done to make the average gambler lose more. So when they make a mistake on their end, you're supposed to save them? So in general, when when I can... Uh, when something falls in my lap, I don't ever cheat casinos. I never go into a casino doing any kind of cheating. And I wouldn't even if it were legal. I don't just do it because I don't want to go to jail, which I don't. You know, that's a factor too, but I also wouldn't do it anyway. I'm not a cheater. But if something lands in my lap because of a mistake they make that gives me an opportunity to have an edge over them, yeah, I'm going to take it. Now, this is a little bit of a different story because it's a hundred times. And, you know, so I'd have to think of a number of things before I were to do something. But, uh, in general, with casinos, uh, you shouldn't feel bad for them. You shouldn't feel sorry for casinos, is, is the bottom line. Because they don't feel sorry for you. If you go bust, losing all your money there, they're happy. They're not, uh, the casino's not saying, oh man, too bad for that guy. Wow, he was a good guy. It sucks he went bust here. No, no, no. They're thrilled they got every penny of yours. That's why they exist. So if you get their money, you should be happy too. It's a little different than a, you know, a restaurant you frequent or something like that. Like if I go to a restaurant and they uh, they mess something up and uh, I you know they don't charge me enough or I don't get extra, I, I get something I shouldn't get you know I'll point it out I'll say hey you, you and I've had this before like I, take, I do a takeout order and they they give me uh, additional food I didn't order that was probably meant for somebody else one I, I I don't want the person showing up and having their food not be ready that's a pain in the ass and and two I know I didn't pay for this food I shouldn't get it. It's not for me. Just because they stupidly put it in my bag, that doesn't mean I should take it. So I say, hey, there's something in here I don't think is mine. And then they say, oh, thanks for telling us, and they take the food back out. But, uh, you know, casino's a different thing. Restaurants, it's, it's very it's very straightforward. I go, I want to buy this. They give me what I want to buy. I pay the price I'm expecting to pay, and that's it. And if they give me too little, then I have a gripe with them. If they give me too much, then uh, I feel I shouldn't take it. Let's move on here. Ryan Feldman is uh, a person who was uh, largely responsible for the success of uh, Live at the Bike. He worked behind the scenes there. He was uh, well-liked. He did a good job there. Live at the Bike was a very successful uh, broadcast. It had a number of different hosts, including uh, Bart Hansen, who listens to this show. It it was a well-liked product and, in fact, has now been imitated by uh, other casinos. Ryan Feldman, unfortunately, had an end of his association with Live at the Bike. And uh, it looked like it was not a very uh, amicable separation. And uh, he got a, a notice in the mail, actually, a very cold notice in the mail, telling him that uh, it's over. So... Uh, <laughs> He wasn't very happy about that, and he had made that known on Twitter, and I talked about that on this show. He actually showed the notice that he got telling him, we're, we're dropping you, 
and he, you know, here's, here's, you know, because of COVID, it was like a very cold notice he got about it. And he felt like after all he had done at live the bike, that that wasn't a very nice way to end things. And, uh, he, he definitely wasn't very happy about that. We haven't heard much from him recently. I mean, he's been part of poker Twitter, but I didn't know what he was doing after live at the bike. But uh, I guess his history at Live of the Bike was that he ran Live of the Bike for years. Then he had uh, a disagreement with ownership there. Then he, I, I think he came back and then they let him go during, due to the pandemic in that cold way. Anyway, it, it didn't end well. And he was very unhappy about it. That's old news. The, the newer news is that Ryan Feldman has signed a new agreement with another L.A. area casino to present a similar product. And I'm happy for him. So this is Ryan's own Twitter on November 9th. Breaking news. Nick Vertucci and I just signed a contract for a new live stream poker show at Hustler Casino. Interesting. The Hustler Casino live poker show will debut in a few months once indoor gaming resumes in L.A. Now, this is because uh, in L.A. you can only do outdoor gaming right now. They actually have tables set up outside now. You can't play inside because of COVID. So he says, we're not going to do it outside, but as soon as indoor gaming resumes in the L.A. area, then we will uh, then we will do the stream. This will be a super high-quality TV-level production with five shows per week on YouTube. Wow. And then he had a picture of him and Nick Vertucci signing the deal to make it official. <laughs> it doesn't look like a real picture of them signing it. It looks like they're posing for a picture signing it in a room with the hustler. But it is official. And he wrote the HCL Hustler Casino Live Poker Show coming soon to Hustler Casino. Okay, so first of all, good for Ryan. I'm glad he got another job like this. I'm, I'm glad he is he's taking his skills over to the hustler to present a similar product over there. He did a good job putting Live at the Bike together. And he had a good relationship with a lot of the players that came to Live at the Bike. He was responsible for getting a lot of them down there. Some people have wondered, will he bring some of the more popular uh, Live at the Bike players over with him to Hustler? And that's a good question. I'm not sure, but uh, it's very possible that some will follow him even if they still play on Life of the Bike. Garrett uh, Adelstein and uh, other popular players on Life of the Bike might move over to Hustler. People really enjoyed the Friday show on Life of the Bike, which was the high-stakes show. And uh, if the high-stakes players move over to Hustler because they want to follow Ryan, then Life of the Bike when they attempt to resume, when the indoor poker play returns, they may not have that much to show anymore. I mean, they can still run it. They don't absolutely need Ryan Feldman to run the show, but uh, if the best parts of the show have moved down to the Hustler, <laughs> then uh, that's a pretty big loss for Live at the Bike. Live at the Bike is not the same as the bike. It takes place at the bike, but it is a separate entity that contracts with the bike. So it sounds like it's the same company, but it's not. There's the bike, which is the casino, and there's Live of the Bike, which is the live production that streams poker play. Separate company, and they have a like a 
contract relationship. Jeff Dime writes on the forum, looking back, the quality of the game just wasn't as good during the time Ryan was no longer executive producer. And uh, Nick Vertucci, he said, was the conduit to the other regulars. Yeah, I didn't know that, but uh, that would increase the chance that some of those uh, high-stakes regulars from Live at the Bike are going to move over. So given that Nick and Ryan moved over, that this might be a big win for the Hustler. I was surprised, as is Jeff, that they took full rake from these games. I remember when I played Live the Bike, I was like, what, the rake's not reduced? That's crazy. Like You, you would think that this is something they just wouldn't rake because it's very good publicity for them. Life of the Bike was a big success for the bike, not because of the rake they dropped, which isn't that much during the time of broadcasting, but because uh, it was a popular show and it got a lot of people wanting to go down to the bike and play. It, it uh, The bicycle is it's the second biggest card room in L.A. and it's one of the biggest ones in the world. But still, this made people think of going down to play at the bike. You see Live of the Bike running, you enjoy it, and you think, okay, this is fun. Oh, yeah, you know where I should, I should go? The bike. That would sound fun to go down to, to the bike and play. So uh, that's the reason that the bike paid for Live at the Bike to produce the show, because it was good publicity for them. So why why drop Rake, too? I didn't understand that either. I don't know if they're still going to do that at Hustler. I don't know how much they signed the deal for. I don't know how much Ryan Feldman's going to get paid. Of course, he's not going to disclose that anywhere. But uh, maybe he did pretty well. Now, the Hustler, you may wonder, what's the deal with the Hustler? If you're from L.A., you know The Hustler, but what if you're not from L.A.? What What is The Hustler? Does it have to do with Hustler Magazine? Answer, yes. Hustler Casino L.A. is owned by Larry Flint, the same owner of Hustler Magazine. Are there really, really raunchy pictures of naked women and uh, sexual themes all over the place? No, there's not. Uh, it does have a... Uh, Kind of a CD feel to it, but but when I say that, it's it's not even in a bad way. Like they have this like these kind of like soft velvet purple walls. So in some ways, it kind of looks like a like a porn set. But uh, there there's no themes. There's, there's no naked women pictures in there. There there's no overt sexual themes. The place is kept pretty clean. It's kept in pretty good condition, and. Uh, if you didn't know it had association with Hustler Magazine from the name, then you would it wouldn't really stand out in that way to you. That was the very first place I ever played live poker, or any Texas Hold'em for that matter. My very first hand of Texas Hold'em was at the Hustler Casino almost exactly 20 years ago. It was in January 2001. And I went there because uh, that was the closest card room to where I was working. Here's somebody who once didn't live that far from there. Trader Ruski, hello. What's happening, Jeff? One thirty. This is the time you usually leave, and here you are showing up. <clears throat> yeah, I ended up. Went to sleep after work because I was trying to take a nap because of the show. Oh. And I ended up sleeping late. So. <laughs> I expected you like 3.30 or 4.30. One thirty. I wasn't expecting. Well, I'm glad to have you here. So, uh I thought your first place you played was at Hollywood Park. No, no, no. I I played at Hollywood Park not too long after that, but the first place I played was The Hustler. And, uh, in fact, I had just read Lee Jones' book for Limit Hold'em, the uh, winning low Limit Hold'em, which is a pretty good uh, introductory book to Limit Hold'em, at least in those days. 
And, uh, and so then I went to go play there for the first time. I, I was kind of a fish, but yeah, I had some idea what the right thing was to do. But yeah, I had to play and get experience. But I played $3, $6 limit hold'em. And uh, my total, my total for that very first session of Texas Hold'em, my win was exactly... Zero point zero. Zero point zero. I won and lost zero. I broke exactly even in that first session. And uh, I learned more over time as I played more, but I really enjoyed it. My first session, I go, wow, this was fun. I broke even, but it was fun. So then I came back like two days later and played again. I came back a few days later and played again. And I remember I saw the 1530 game going. 1530 limit hold them. I go, wow, these people must be rich. I was like, I thought that seemed like such a big game. Now I see 1530 go, and I go, I don't want to play that small. So it's just, you know, it was really just my perception of what was uh, like a lot of money to be gambled at the time. And I really was getting to enjoy it though. Like very quickly, like right away. I just really liked it. And, uh, the hustler was, was where it all began. And I remember the girl I was dating at the time, I also started dating a new girl in January of 01. So I told her that I was going to the hustler for the first time to play poker. And so I, after I played like three times in one week, I said, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to like be playing this all the time. I'm just doing this a lot at the beginning because it's fun. And she's ah, sure you are. No, sure you are. I'm sure you're going to be playing like all the time for years. And I said, no, that's not going to happen that way. You know, she, she was right. So we, we didn't split up because of, Poker though she she moved out of state, but anyway the hustler I still go to occasionally. It's not very close to me. Uh, it's closer to where my parents live, so whenever I'm visiting them, when it's not a pandemic, usually I'll uh, sneak out late at night and go to the hustler. Uh, the twenty five fifty limit hold'em game there, which is what's known as a five chip game because you're playing with five dollar chips, so every bet is five or ten chips, so it makes the pots look very big. That always encourages action, and also the players that play there, a lot of them are just bad at limit hold'em. So it's really like a time warp to the early two thousands when like everybody didn't know what they were doing. And the one downside to that is because there's so many people who play like that, it actually can be tough to kind of control the way the hands go. Like you take a lot of suck outs. A lot of it becomes more luck dependent because uh, there's so many people chasing you. And I'm not one of these guys who says, oh, I'd rather play good players than bad players. I totally don't say that. I say the opposite. But I actually have the belief that uh, you're best off in a game with like one or two bad players and then the rest of them being kind of like tight and straightforward players. Because if you have too many people chasing you, then you kind of lose control of the hand and it, it starts to become a card catching contest. And yeah, you can play, you can make better decisions and play better hands pre-flop. But uh, with everybody going limp, 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 limp all the way around, it starts to become more and more correct to play trash. So then it really starts to become a card catching contest. So the last time I played it, like people were seeing like almost the entire table of, of nine people was seeing every flop. And I got killed in that game. I lost 2,700 because every flop I either missed or got sucked out on. And even the final hand where I um, I folded to a lot of action on the flop with like a long shot to make the gut shot straight. I made the gut shot straight, was pissed, and then only to see, I watched the whole thing play out for some gigantic pot. I, it was the very final hand before I was leaving. I had already folded. I would have made the gut shot straight. And then I saw that someone 
made the only other strength that could beat me. Like something you'd have to have like, I don't know, like three five. You have like three five. They had to have some some guy in the early position had like three five offs who would have beaten me. Something like that. So anyway, uh, it, it was crazy. So you know you can you can lose in those games if you just run bad. But it's it's really it, it plays totally different than commerce. Totally different than the bike, totally different than commerce, totally different than Bellagio. It's a that's like a time work that that twenty five fifty limit hold'em game, still to this day, at least before the pandemic. And the environment in Hustler, it's more relaxed. It's it's not as stressful as commerce or even the bike. Commerce is the most stressful place. Like everyone's always pissed off at commerce, everyone's in a bad mood at commerce, there's always yelling at commerce. Uh the bike has some of that, but not quite as much. And Hustler, it's a much more relaxed environment. Everyone kind of seems happier. Everyone seems kind of like more laid back. So I get kind of a different feeling in Hustler. Like kind of like it's sort of pleasant to be there <laughs> as opposed to Commerce where it's just stressful. It's not as big. It's it's a smaller room. It's not a tiny room. It's like a medium-sized room. It does have some charm to it where Commerce and the bike don't have charm. Commerce and bike are just like two very large card rooms. Kind of big, large, cold, impersonal card rooms. Hustler has less selection, but it's it's got kind of like a, a charm to it, and and it's medium sized. So and it's kind of more welcoming too. Like as you walk in, and just parking's easy. Yeah, it is. The whole thing's like, really easy to get in and out of there. Yeah, the whole thing's a it's a more pleasant experience for sure. And that's uh, you're not going to find as much game selection, but uh, but it is a more pleasant experience there. So I'll say that, and uh, so they've never had a live stream before. This is a new thing, and I'm not sure why they suddenly decided to get into the live streaming market. I don't know if Ryan perhaps shopped it to them, because Ryan wasn't working for anyone there, so he he may have just gone to the Hustler and said, hey, he may have gone to a few of them. Maybe the Hustler's the one that bit. Maybe he went to them, Hawaiian Gardens, who knows who else he went to. But he may have gone to several L.A. area casinos and said, hey, I'm not with Live at the Bike anymore, but I can make a stream for you guys if you like, and maybe the Hustler bit and said, okay. So he went and uh, Nick Vertucci went, and we will see. Now, they can't resume this, of course, until there's indoor poker again. Who knows when that's going to be? And then they could start it, and then something could get worse again with COVID, and they may have to stop it. That's a possibility. I also don't know how long of a commitment Hustler made. So if Hustler decides this... Yeah, they probably signed a you know they signed a contract of presumably for some period of time, but it may not have been a long time. Maybe it was a year. Maybe it was six months. And maybe if Hustler decides this doesn't translate into profits for them, or it doesn't translate into enough for them that they think they got out of it, they may say, "Never mind, uh, we don't want it," or "Never mind, we're going to pay you less." And if you don't like it, then leave. So uh, this may not be a long term thing. It's it's good for Ryan that he gets to have a shot at this, and it looks like they're going to try to. Uh, stream this at a at a good resolution. He's calling it a, a TV quality production. It looks like he wants it to be professional, and he wants it to look uh, really good. Presumably, good resol- resolution of the stream and uh, uh, good hosting, and they're hoping to get a, a good lineup of players there. And they're going to do five times a week, which is a lot. So re- they're really uh, putting a lot of effort into this one, and I hope it works. I hope it works out for him. I hope that uh, this ends up being successful. And I have nothing against Live at the Bike, but yeah, maybe it's time for 
another company to take over. Especially, uh, I don't know the whole story with them and Ryan Feldman, but I, I don't know. It just it, the the way it looked to me was that they didn't they didn't end it right. Like this cold note he was sent about it, it just it, it just didn't look right to me. So I hope he succeeds there, and maybe before it starts, we can get him to come on the show to talk more about it. Ryan actually invited me to a poker uh, Zoom talk. Just kind of, he put one together randomly one night and just invited various people that he thought he'd like to have on there. And I was one of them. This was a few months ago. Maybe more than a few months. It, it was during COVID, but I think more towards the beginning of it. And uh, he didn't invite that many people. and he, he chose me. We're not like good friends or anything, but uh, he thought of me as someone to invite. And we've always got along. So, uh, as I said, I'm sure he'd come on the show. In fact, uh, I asked him if he wanted to come on the show at the time that he got uh, let go from the bike. And he said, basically, right now, there's a lot I'd want to say, and I can't, so let me do it later. I said, okay. So he, he like, agreed in theory, but couldn't do it then. Maybe now he can. Maybe now he can, but can't say as much as he'd like to. But we'll we'll see if we can get him on at some point. But uh, I think a lot of you will want to watch this when it starts, and I'll be interested in tuning in. I'm not a big fan of watching poker on TV or streams. I just feel like I play enough myself to where it just... uh, I kind of lose interest in watching others play it, but I, I'll turn I'll tune into these things every so often, and I will be interested to see what they're putting forth at the Hustler because they've never had it there before. I I'm wondering where it's going to be physically in there. I'm thinking about the layout of the Hustler, and there's no natural place where this would be. Now maybe it'll there's this weird place, kind of like the interior of it, which is like a I think it's an area where you can smoke because it technically hasn't a uh, a roof that's somewhat open. Maybe it'll be in there. Otherwise, I can't think of where they're going to put it unless they just build a place to uh, to host it in there. Because I, I mean, I think they do it like in that area where they normally have the tournaments. Oh, no? see, well, but wouldn't I thought of that too? But I thought wouldn't that take up space with the tournaments then? They couldn't run a tournament, <laughs> so. right? Yeah, but I, yeah, I don't know if they're as big. Because they're saying yeah, they're, they're, they're saying five five shows per week, so it's not even like they could say we won't run a tournament on that day. I mean. It's, that would eat up the tournament area five days a week. I don't think they want that either. So that's why I'm wondering where it's going to be. But maybe there's like hidden rooms there that I don't know about. Uh, anyway, that'll th- be interesting to see. I wonder if they'll run Limit Hold'em there. Because, uh, you know, I would play on there. Either like Limit Hold'em. I'd even play like a lower limit, uh, no limit game. I'm not going to go play against Garrett and some of these, these great players at 2550 or something at no limit. But, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll play a, a lower stakes, no limit on there. Or I'll play a, a Limit Hold'em at pretty much any stakes. Or an 08 if they run it. There's some things I'd play there. Maybe I'll uh, ask to be on it, but I, I wouldn't do it until I didn't feel there was a COVID threat anymore, which may be like another year. So I won't make those plans anytime soon. But good luck to Ryan Feldman and be looking for this product. I, I will let you guys know on this show when this actually starts. Even Ryan doesn't know that right now. Nobody knows right now. So we will see. And we'll see if Life of the Bike survives. It would be funny if this thing just obliterates Life of the Bike to where like, nobody wants to watch it anymore. Now, Life of the Bike has the name recognition. They, If they start back up, like everybody knows them. People follow them on social media. So it's not like everyone's going to go, oh, well, Ryan Feldman's not involved anymore, so F him. But if, if the big players everyone wants to watch, like Garrett, move over to Hustler and don't continue on Life of the Bike, then that's going to take away a lot of the audience if they just start losing everyone that people want to see. 
if 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 Live at the Bike degrades to just a bunch of randoms, then and they can't get a high stakes game going, then I could see the Hustler quickly overtaking it. And that's presumably what Hustler wants to do. And Hustler, by the way, they they've always kind of been a little irritated that they haven't been able to grow and uh, and become bigger and become uh, competitors to live to not live to, to the bike and commerce. I'm talking about the casino itself. Like it, it's never reached that level, never never come close to that level. It's kind of stayed stagnant there. It's even not as busy as it once was because all of poker is not as busy as it once was. But uh, like Hustler has tried to get action of certain games that only exist at Commerce and the bike, and they can't get it going. Like they they tried at one point to get a forty eighty or fifty one hundred limit hold'em going there, couldn't make it happen. Tried to get the Commerce action over there, couldn't make it happen. So I, I know that they'd be thrilled to move all the live at the bike action over there, and maybe they think that could uh, help get them finally in, in the upper echelon of uh, busy card rooms in uh, Southern California. Now, they'd have to expand to compete in volume with bike or commerce because they just don't have the physical space there right now. But there, there is room there to do it. They could uh, presumably buy businesses that are uh, next door and uh, or take over the rent for whatever's next door and expand that way if they wanted to. But they're, they're nowhere near that. In fact, they they are not using all the space they have now because poker has just uh, it's just not as popular as it used to be because the young people are not in poker anymore. The younger people that used to be there have gotten older. Some stayed in poker, some didn't, and new young people did not replace them. In fact, I was just discussing this with Benjamin the other day. This doesn't have to do with the hustler specifically, but it has to do with all card rooms. But I was telling Benjamin that there were a lot of young players back when I was playing in the 2000s. And I wasn't one of them. I wasn't young in the 2000s. I just was, of course, younger than I am now. But I was like, I was like a 30s guy, late 20s, 30s, mid-30s. Uh, and there were a lot of players who were like 21 at the time. But those players are not so young anymore. Those players are mid-30s to 40 now. And I was telling Benjamin that there are barely any players that are 21, 22, 23 anymore. You see a few, but you really don't see many. Before, the casinos were crawling with them. Now they're just not there. And that's because of the online poker landscape changing so much nine years ago. And nine years is a long time. So these players that uh, would have come up through online poker who were younger didn't and aren't playing. The the funny thing is that there could have been a lot of great poker players today that never played. Young guys who would be in their 20s now, maybe even 30, who just never got exposed to poker because it really took a big downturn after Black Friday, nine years ago, now almost 10 years ago. If you think about it, a lot of great poker players were led to, you know, they were all led to the game in some way, especially if they didn't have a family member who already played. So I'm not talking about like a Todd Brunson because Doyle was his father. I'm talking about most players who don't have a well-known relative who's a poker player. They found the game in some way. So there's a lot of people who would have been great at poker. They just never found it. There's a lot of great poker players today, of course, who if they didn't find poker in some way, then we would never have heard of them and they just wouldn't be playing. They'd be just regular people. So, since online poker 
uh, didn't lead a lot of people to play poker in the 2010s because it was mostly gone in the U.S., all those young people that could have uh, risen up and become great players, they're just not here. We have some, but just a small fraction of what we would have had. And when I look around live card rooms, you know, I, I would notice this in 2019, beginning 2020, I would look around and I go, boy, everybody's old. Because <laughs> I'm sitting here, I'm in my late 40s, I'm looking around, I go, you know what? I, I don't see that many people here who are much younger than me. Yeah, I see some who are a little younger, but you know, I, I don't see that many people who are like, way younger. Here are my, I'm in my late 40s and there's not many people who are that much younger than me. Some who are a lot older, a lot who are around my age. Not a lot of people here like 20 or more years younger. Kind of weird. Did not used to look like that. Okay, I'm going to move on here. There were gambling measures on the November ballot in various states. Not really the western states for the most part, but uh, mostly eastern states. The Colorado had one. And uh, people were voting on various items related to gambling law in these states. And you may wonder, what was the country's attitude about gambling coming into the election? Because maybe it changed. Maybe during a pandemic, uh, people don't really want gambling. Maybe that's not on anyone's minds. Maybe they just don't want more gambling showing up and or maybe some of these places, they're just kind of anti-gambling. It's, it's one thing to have uh, pro-gambling law passed in places that are associated with gambling, like Nevada, like New Jersey, even places like California. But what about places that are not traditionally associated with gambling? Would they want it? And this was, these were questions put to the people. To These are ballot measures. Sometimes law is passed uh, not by asking the people through ballot measures. In fact, often it's not, but they're is some law that's passed through ballot measures. So there were a number of ballot measures that were out there that were voted on across the country. And I'm pleased to tell you that just about all of the ballot measures passed. So there were a number of uh, questions that were out there for the people to answer. In Colorado... They were simply asking about the limit on what people can uh, bet because Colorado used to have a joke of a maximum limit. It was $5, that any individual bet could be no more than $5, and that affected poker too. So every bet on every street could be a maximum of $5 in Colorado, and same with every other form of gambling in Colorado. That was eventually raised to $100, And uh, I erroneously said on a previous show that it meant that each person can only put in $100 per hand in poker or even per street. That's not correct. It was actually – in poker, it wasn't that bad, but it still needed some change because it was that every individual bet had to be 100. So you could bet 100. Someone could raise – you know, someone could then raise you and then – so the the bets could all be 100. I I guess they couldn't raise you, but I I think that – you could just keep going 100, 100, 100, 100, 100, and uh, you, you could pay, place multiple bets on, on – uh, I'm not sure if about raising on the same street, but uh, I know you could put in several hundred per hand because of uh, more than one street in poker, but whatever. I know that each individual bet couldn't be more than 100. They uh, had a ballot measure 
to eliminate that restriction, just to end the state law against having bets more than $100. And that passed. So there is no more restriction for maximum bets in Colorado, which means that in Colorado, the casinos like Blackhawk, Cripple Creek, Central City, all those, uh, those can operate normally now, including poker. So that's good news. I think the maximum bet thing is stupid. People should decide their own maximum bets, or the casino should decide it for them. What they want to offer, it should not be uh, the state law putting down what you can uh, bet maximum. It's, it's just one of these things. I keep saying it over and over, but either have gambling or don't. You don't want gambling? I can respect that. You do want gambling? Don't put these weird restrictions in it that, that cook out the fun of it. Either you, Either it's okay to have gambling and people can decide what to gamble, or it's not. Not... You can gamble, but only $100 per bet. Dumb. So I'm glad that's gone. Good job, people of Colorado. But there are other measures. There are sports betting measures. Uh, Now, Louisiana, they had ballot measures about uh, sports betting, but it was by parish. Now, Traderuski, do you know what a parish is? Is it where, like, monks uh, live or something? (laughs) I remember... Um, in elementary school, if, if when I opened the book on the like on the cover, the, kind of the inside cover, you could uh, put your name in there. Now it wasn't my book; like it was a book I'm borrowing from the school for the year. And at the end of the year, I uh, um, I would uh, have to turn it back in, and then the next person for the following year would put their name there. But there were a bunch of columns, and some of the columns seemed kind of stupid, like it's saying like district. I'm like. District? Why do I have to put what school district I'm in? I think that's pretty clear. It's a, this, this book isn't going to travel around the world. It's going to stay in the same school. Why do I have to put district? But anyway, there are a bunch of pointless columns, and one of them was parish. And I go, parish? What's a parish? And then I learned that a parish had something to do with a church, but I didn't quite understand what it was. So I, I actually would fill something in each column just to, just to try to be funny and just to mess around. So... Uh, uh, for the for parish, I just wrote this isn't church, but I, I still didn't know what one was. I just knew it had something to do with the church. Uh, for many years, I didn't know what a parish was, and uh, because in the West, uh, a parish just is never talked about. Anyway, a parish is a uh, it's it's a it's defined as a small administrative district, typically having its own church and and priest or pastor, or pastor. And uh, in Louisiana, for whatever reason, um. They actually still the parishes still operate as, as kind of like uh, pseudo government entities, which is uh, is weird, but that's that's the way it is there. But that's that's it's it originally uh, did come from from the church. It was like kind of like a, a church community, but they they still have them in Louisiana, and they actually did it by by parish this. Uh, these uh, this election about the sports betting. So every parish had to decide if they wanted sports betting or not. Well, about uh, three quarters of the parishes, I think there were about 60-something of them, three quarters of them approved it, and about a quarter of them did not approve. So the parishes which approved the sports betting can have it, and the ones which did not approve it uh, won't have it. Which is fine, but it's funny that they that was the way they did it, it was by parish. If anybody knows more about parishes than I do, let me know. I'm not an expert at parishes. I just, uh, I was always kind of curious what that really is. 
But yeah, about three quarters of the parishes in uh, Louisiana passed it. In South Dakota, uh, they passed a ballot question it, it, where it allows casinos to add in-person sports betting, not online sports betting or mobile sports betting, so they cannot do that in South Dakota. However, f- physical casinos in South Dakota are now going to be able to have sports betting, provided you show up there and place the bets. That has been passed. Nebraska, they had a ballot measure about uh, allowing casino games at racetracks. And that has passed. So there will be casino games. I'm not sure which ones, but casino games will be allowed at racetracks in Omaha, Lincoln, Grand Island, Columbus, and South Sioux City. Then uh, in Dan- in uh, in Virginia, there was uh, they had five different areas of Virginia had ballot measures authorizing casinos, and four of those approved them. By the way, these are not parishes. These are just, I think, like cities. But uh, anyway, f- uh, five different jurisdictions I know in, in Virginia had these uh, ballot measures. And uh, I'm not sure what the one that rejected it, but uh, the four that approved it in Virginia are Bristol, Danville, Portsmouth, and Norfolk. And Caesars Entertainment actually released a statement thanking the voters about the Danville one. They said, uh, we look forward to fulfilling the trust the voters have placed in us by bringing 1,300 good-paying jobs, tourism dollars, and economic development to the city, and we are incredibly excited to begin construction. So there's going to be a Caesars Caesars property in Danville now that this has been approved, and they were waiting at Caesars to see the results of this. So they were very happy about that. Sports betting was also approved in Maryland. So now there's going to be, uh, I think, uh, 25 states and the District of Columbia by the end of 2021. Some of these, I guess, are slated for the future or on, on the way, but it's, it's, it's assumed by the end of 2021 that half of the states plus D.C. will have legalized sports betting, which, which happened in not that long of a time. So that's pretty good to see. And I say it's pretty good to see because I don't like seeing these restrictions. I I like seeing people being able to decide what to do with their money, being able to decide to gamble if they want to, and not feeling like they they have to travel to do it. And uh, if people want to gamble, they find a way to. And uh, when you just make it more difficult, it it just – if if someone's going to shoot off all their money gambling, they're going to do it. It's postponing the inevitable. So not having casinos really close by, that's not going to save someone from a gambling addiction. If someone wants to gamble, they're going to gamble. If they don't want to gamble, they're not going to gamble. If they're going to gamble responsibly, they will. Otherwise, they won't. It's uh, Now, you can put measures in place to try to uh, halt giving action to, private, to problem gamblers, and I understand that, and that's fine. But uh, I, I think the... Restriction on allowing gambling in certain states where people want it is stupid. I think it should really be up to the localities if they want it or not. And the states should really legalize it and then say whichever localities want it, take it. If you don't, you don't. I understand why some places don't want casinos in their neighborhoods. But some neighborhoods do want it. Some neighborhoods want casinos because of the jobs and the uh, economic benefits they bring, the tax dollars and uh, 
other associated businesses that benefit from it. So it should really be up to the local areas. And I, I don't approve of the, the Indian gaming. I think that's a joke. I think that just uh, screws the consumer. I think that gives no rights to the consumer. It allows too many abuses, and it's uh, not functioning the way it was intended to function. It was there to help impoverished Indian tribes and give them a leg up in getting out of poverty. Instead, it just uh, enriched very few and didn't do much for the uh, the typical Native American in California. So, or, or everywhere, not just California. And I'm happy to see it just expanding. And uh, we're going to see more of this as time passes. It won't expand everywhere, but look, we've got half the states already with uh, sports betting by the end of 2021, likely. And more and more casino gambling expanding into areas which didn't have it before. Wasn't too long ago that if you wanted to gamble, you had to either go to Vegas or Atlantic City. Then some Indian casinos started popping up, but a lo- there were large areas of the country where there's no gambling anywhere. Or if there was, there's a few crappy little Indian casinos. Now, major casinos can be all over the place. The people apparently want this. Really, almost all of these passed. There was a quarter of the parishes that didn't want to approve the sports betting in Louisiana, and there was that one area of Virginia which decided they did not want casinos there. But other than that, everything passed. Even Colorado with uh, the, the $100 maximum bet is gone. But in general, I don't like seeing these restrictions. I feel they usually don't accomplish what they're intending to accomplish, and and all they do is they're a pain in the ass for people. It's like a needless pain in the ass for people who want to do it. And also, like with the sports betting thing, there's a huge online sports betting industry that's offshore. A lot of money leaves the United States for these offshore books. It leaves our economy. So the, the sports betting has become so prevalent because of the internet that uh, they have to address this with common sense and say, we're not going to be able to stop it. So America loves sports betting. Let's let's just, uh, let's regulate the sports betting and make it legal everywhere. Who wants it? Make it allowable that every state can do it. It was also crazy to me in the first place that sports betting could only be in Nevada. That was the only place. That was the only thing I knew of. I still don't know of anything else where something was permissible at the federal level only in one state. I've never seen. I've seen where states have their own laws of what they want and don't want. I've never seen where the federal level says this state could do it, the other forty-nine can't. I've never seen that before with anything. So I'm glad that's gone. That was crazy. And a lot of the reasons behind it were antiquated and not uh, applicable to today. Anyway, that's part of the reason they did away with it. Expect more ballot measures in the future about expanding gambling, and expect them mostly to win because people want it. Believe it or not, people who like gambling don't want to travel a long distance to do it. In fact, I'm wondering if COVID might even make people more receptive to local gambling because uh, I think this may have changed people's views of travel for a little bit of time. Once COVID gets better, you will see a huge uptick in travel of people who couldn't go anywhere and now feel like, oh, finally we can travel. It's safe to travel. So you have a lot of traveling will be done immediately after COVID. But then I think after that wears off, I think there's going to be some people just kind of feel a little weird now about flying, about staying in hotels. It's going to feel a little weird. Like, you know, COVID's gone, but you're like, well, what if it isn't? There's going to be some people with like some hesitation that may not want to travel as much. Like there may be an after effect that people kind of just 
want to stay home more and want to go to local things more than they did before. You can already see it uh, in a different way with like mountain cabins and like second homes that are in the mountains or in uh, other areas of nature. Those have gone way up in value since COVID started because people said, you know what? Wouldn't it be nice to just have a vacation home we could just go to and drive to rather than have to fly somewhere? Rather than have to stay in a hotel somewhere that's just ours and we could stay at, so we don't have to, we're not stuck at home, but we can just go there. In the case something like this happens, even after COVID, people will think about it. Like, well, what if this happens again? Wouldn't it be nice to have that? So there's been like, those are selling like hotcakes. And uh, so, so there may be some after effects of COVID regarding people's habits that we can't see yet. That could be one of them. So that, that could affect casino gambling. It could affect the people who just want, they don't want to have to travel to Vegas anymore. They don't want to have to travel to far away casinos. They want something that they can go to for the day without having to stay anywhere. It's also something about just getting used to things. People start getting unused to taking long trips where they stay at hotels and more used to doing things where they can go to for the day. Sometimes just you get in the habit of something and then uh, you get out of the habit of something else and that becomes the new normal. Okay, let's talk about DraftKings. You know something interesting I noticed about DraftKings? I'm not going to name any names, but every so often I'm looking at Twitter and there's someone I see who used to be in poker, even names I haven't thought of in ages, not like big names, but just kind of names I knew in poker back in like the 2000s and I forgot even existed. And then I see they work at DraftKings now. And I found that uh, a number of people made it over from poker to high positions at DraftKings, some of whom you've probably heard of, some of you haven't, some of whom I liked, some of whom I kind of were neutral on, some of whom I didn't like very much. I'm not going to name names, but uh, I've noticed it, especially recently, just kind of looking at people's Twitter accounts and mentions they work for DraftKings. But uh, when DraftKings has had some issues and when they sometimes do stupid or weird things or they have nonsensical policies Sometimes I think about, you know, would I trust some of these guys I knew from poker to know what they're doing running a business? And in some cases, the answer would be a big fat no. (laughs) So, I mean, DraftKings is very successful, but I think some of the people who are working there are kind of just like, I, I don't think some of them are management material. Let me put that. Let me put it that way. Obviously, they were excellent at marketing. Obviously, there were some very talented people in putting that together, and that's why it crushed everything else besides FanDuel, and then they uh, they had that merger anyway. So they, they were the winners in the daily fantasy sports market, and they, they obviously did all that right. So I'm not going to criticize that, but uh, there are some people who work there that I used to know that I'm surprised they have the positions they do. Let me just say that. Even people I, I somewhat liked... But I was like, uh, I don't think I'd want that person as like upper management, <laughs> like, uh, just knowing them from, from when I knew them. So anyway, and these aren't people who are stupid. I mean, these are all smart people, but uh, there's a certain people you know you don't really want in a management position. You don't really trust them to make the right decision. They, uh, but, but nevertheless, they somehow got there. It's kind of, there must be some kind of nepotism going on where people knew each other from poker and there was some, there, there is a – an association between daily fantasy sports and poker for sure. There's a lot of crossover. So probably that's why so many of them made it over there. But anyway, that's not, not what this is about. I just have been noticing that 
over the last two weeks when I've been looking at people's Twitters. Anyway, back to the reason I'm talking about DraftKings. They have a controversy, again. A lot of controversy they get into. Now, some of it's because they're breaking new ground because they uh, not only are running the largest daily fantasy sports site, but also they're now into sports betting and uh, online sports betting and legalized online sports betting. It's not like five dimes who just decides to do what they want. Uh, they, they have to adhere to certain laws, certain rules, certain regulations. Uh, they can be sued. You know, there's a lot more at stake when, when you're running a legalized sports book than running one that's uh, in a tiny jurisdiction that doesn't care what you do. So I understand they're feeling their way through it. For the most part, DraftKings has been pretty generous when any controversies come up. They usually end up uh, ruling on the generous side of things, assuming that it's going to work in their favor from a PR standpoint. But here is one where they are not backing down and where there are some questions about whether they are right or wrong. DraftKings had a high limit better on the site who was placing parlays. Parlays are a type of bet where people place a bet that a number of bets together are going to win. So if you win all the bets in your parlay, you win the whole thing, and you win a large amount of money usually compared to what you bet. If you lose even one of them, the whole parlay loses. So if you bet five legs of the parlay, five different games are in the parlay, if you win four of the five, you still get zero. If you win all five, then you get a pretty good payout. Now, you can have a parlay of a number of teams. It can be two teams, three teams, 10 teams, 20 teams. The more teams in the parlay, of course, the better it pays, but it's a lot harder to win. And then, of course, it matters the odds of the games. So the games can be a few underdogs in there. You'll be paid very well. If it's a bunch of very large favorites, you won't be paid as well. So that's how parlays work. Usually people who do parlays are degenerates who want to try to get back the money they lost in one fell swoop. So if you're on a losing streak, you've lost five or six sports bets in a row, you say, hey, why don't I do a parlay for my next few bets? That'll get me back to even very quickly. Of course, you got to get very lucky to hit them. And this is uh, what a lot of people use as kind of like a last-ditch attempt to get back in the black. Now, that's not what happened here. I just wanted to describe parlays to you. Here, we had a very, very high-stakes parlay better who actually put down about $3 million worth of parlay bets. Not to win $3 million. He actually put down about $3 million worth of bets, and these were bets on favorites. So he was only going to win like $5.6 million from the $3 million bet, which in a parlay usually isn't very much. But he did put down $3 million, which is a huge parlay bet. In fact, I think it may be the biggest parlay bet ever placed on DraftKings. Anyway, there is a controversy over something that happened, which was kind of a form of multi-accounting, but not really. This guy who placed the bets, whoever this rich guy is that was doing it, lives in Florida. DraftKings does not exist in Florida. You cannot bet on DraftKings from Florida. You have to be physically standing in New Jersey to do it, to bet on DraftKings New Jersey. That's where he opened his account, and he would actually have to be in New Jersey to place the bets. To get around that, he hired a proxy service to physically place the bets for him, and this proxy service is located in New Jersey. So the proxy service logs onto his account from the state of New Jersey while he's in Florida, bets the way he tells them to, using his account and his money. And the proxy service, of course, doesn't keep any of the money. And if the bets lose, the proxy service doesn't lose any of the money. They're just 
actually pressing the buttons for him since he can't do it. If he tries in Florida, it won't let him. So what happened was in October, he placed three futures bets. One was for Georgia to win the SEC East. That's a college bet. Alabama to win the SEC West and the Green Bay Packers, an NFL team, to win the NFC North. Apparently, the parlay service placed two different bets. I'm not sure why, but they were two different bets on the exact same teams, the exact same parlays, but for very different amounts of money. The first parlay was for $2.93 million, and the second one was for $72,490, and the total uh, ended up uh, a little bit more than $3 million. And had they won then he would have won $5.6 million. But all three of these would have to win. And of course, since these are futures bets, meaning it has to do with these teams winning their divisions, uh, these are not resolved yet. They haven't won or lost yet, but to be honest, they all look pretty good. But we're talking about back in October when he placed these bets. And then uh, a little later in October, they froze his account. It does not appear they froze his account because they were afraid he was going to win. They froze his account because of the proxy betting. DraftKings is insisting that proxy betting is not allowed and that he was violating the rules and these bets are not valid because even though the account was logged into from somebody standing there in New Jersey placing the bets, that part was fine, that nobody is allowed to use each other's accounts even to place an authorized proxy bet. So they claim the bets are invalid and in fact he's violating the terms of service and they have frozen his account, which has upset him very much. They have not identified this guy other than that he's in Florida. Now, this guy claims that he got permission from the DraftKings Director of Sportsbook Operations, Johnny Avello, and he said that he has had a previous relationship with Johnny Avello, that is a sportsbook relationship, not a sexual or romantic relationship, but maybe that too, but I'm guessing not, uh, he's claiming that he knew Avello back at the win, the win Las Vegas, that he used to bet big at the win and also used proxy betters, and that at the win, he had cleared it with Avello, who said it was okay, and that uh, it is legal in Nevada to have proxy betting services as long as uh, it's all set up beforehand. So you you can't just have someone show up, but if you get permission and you, you have all the right stuff signed, then you can have proxy betting done for you in the state of Nevada. And he claimed he successfully did that at the win with Avello at the the helm, and Avello let him do it. So he claims that not only did Avello let him do this in the past, but that Avello gave him permission to do it on DraftKings, and now Avello is denying it. So he's claiming he's really pissed because he got permission to do it, and now they're claiming he did something wrong, which if this better is telling the truth, which he very well might be, that's pretty messed up. It might be that DraftKings is doing this because it appears it's against the law in New Jersey, even though it's not in Nevada against the law. This has nothing to do with Nevada. In New Jersey, where he has his account and where these bets are placed, it appears that messenger betting is not allowed. Messenger or Rule number uh, 1369N of the Division of Gaming Enforcement's uh, permanent sports betting rules say no licensee shall knowingly accept a wager from a person on behalf of any other person. No licensee shall knowingly allow a person to make a wager utilizing the account of another person. And by the way, these were all written fairly recently because there was no sports betting in New Jersey until recently. 
So this this was written with exactly this type of thing in mind, and apparently this is against the law. It is possible that uh, Johnny Avello didn't realize this and thought it was okay because when he was in Nevada, it was okay and did give him permission. And then once the sports better did it, and then DraftKings realized this wasn't legal, they froze his account and kind of uh, blamed it on him. Hey, you're not supposed to do this, rather than uh, we let you do this when we shouldn't have. I'm just guessing here. This is possibly not what happened. Anyway, there's a controversy about this right now, and I'm not sure what way it's going to go. I'm not sure if the bet is going to ultimately be honored. I don't know if this guy's account will be opened up at any point. This gambler says he's highly disappointed with the entire thing, and he is very angry. He says he's horribly wronged by DraftKings for freezing his account. The Division of Gaming Enforcement in New Jersey has not yet commented on the matter. A DraftKings spokesperson said, while this matter is under investigation by the appropriate regulatory authorities, DraftKings has no comment on the investigation. So basically, we're not telling anything because this is a controversy right now and this is being ruled upon. So F you, we say nothing. So I'm not sure what way this is going to go. I can see both sides of it. I can see why DraftKings isn't allowing this if it's illegal and it could put their license in jeopardy. I can also see why this guy's pissed. If he was told it was okay to do, he places the bet and then it gets frozen and the extra kick in the ass is that he's probably going to win it. So this, if it gets invalidated, uh, a bet he was allowed to place that is probably going to win $5.6 million is not going to pay. But as I said earlier, I don't think this is DraftKings trying to worm out of that obligation. In fact, in previous situations where there were high-profile controversies between them and customers, they always seem to overcorrect. They always seem to be overly generous and did more than they had to do for PR purposes. So I don't think they would want this type of publicity. I think they're just scared about their license. They're scared that they did something or they allowed him to do something that is against New Jersey law. I understand why the law is in place. I just, and and I, I don't even know if I agree with the law. Because on one hand, who really cares who's pressing the buttons? If this is all set up beforehand, if you have permission, if you're doing it through a service that is specifically designed to do this, and there's no account hacking suspicions involved, if if everybody knows that this is being done legitimately, which it is, there's no question. Like if everybody agrees that this service was contracted by him. The only there is a disagreement whether he was given permission, but there's no allegations that the person placing the bet was doing it without authorization. So provided that this is all done in a way where there's no question about that, why does it really matter if the person placing the bet is physically standing there, if the bet is actually placed physically in the state? That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is it, it, pretty, it pretty much perverts the whole concept of state-by-state sports betting if people can bet from out of state by hiring someone in the state to place the bet on their behalf then it pretty much does make it sports betting that crosses state lines. There's even been some who have suggested that this would be violating the Federal Wire Act because it would be allowing money to be transmitted across state lines, placing a sports bet, which is still illegal. Now, I don't know about that because the money actually is not transmitting across state lines. The information is, but the money isn't. So the person's telling someone else to do it on his behalf I don't know if that really counts. It might, though. That could be a concern as well. 
So we will see where this goes. If I get further news on this, I will let you know where that ends up. Let's move on to talk about the coronavirus. We got three stories this week. The first one is the biggest story, the Pfizer story. You've probably heard of this by now. Pfizer claims that there is a vaccine in development that so far they can see has a 90% success rate in preventing the coronavirus from developing into symptoms. Wow. That is, uh, that's pretty impressive, 90%. Now, of course, these are preliminary numbers. Do not necessarily think that uh, this is for sure a 90% effective vaccine, and it's just a matter of time till it's released, and the 90% of the people are going to be totally protected. They are saying right now they see that there's 90% success in the uh, immunity to, to the coronavirus for those who take the vaccine. The way the study is being done is through uh, – it's typical for these type of clinical studies. They have volunteers who are – some of whom are given the vaccine and some of whom are given a placebo. That's something that does absolutely nothing. But they, they don't tell people which one they're getting. They just uh, give this to half the people. They give the real vaccine to half. They give a fake vaccine to half. And then they see who ends up getting COVID. And with enough people – and with uh, what they hope is an even distribution of lifestyle, because, of course, uh, like giving me the vaccine versus giving someone who uh, works in a supermarket, that if you give me the, uh, the vaccine and you give the placebo to the guy in the supermarket and the guy in the supermarket gets COVID and I don't because I don't go anywhere, well, that doesn't tell you anything because I wouldn't have gotten COVID without the vaccine either. So... Uh, you, you, they, they have to do the study keeping that in mind as well. They have to have people with uh, relatively the same habits and behavior patterns so they can really compare the two. So they found by this study that, uh, that there's a huge difference between those who had the placebo and those who got the actual vaccine. And that there was a 90% reduction in the number of COVID cases with those who had the vaccine compared to the placebo. And that is very big. So uh, question is, what does that really mean? Well, they had 43,000 volunteers. And these 43,000 volunteers, the ones who really got the vaccine, got two doses of it. The ones who did not get the vaccine got two placebo doses that did nothing. They actually said that fewer than 10% of infections were in participants who had been given the vaccine. They said more than 90% of the cases were people who had been given the placebo. So that concludes that it, they concluded from these people that it's uh, 90% effective. They claimed that if people got uh, the second dose uh, that within a, a week of the second dose that the protection was, was more than 90% better. So that uh, right away 
the second dose uh, wasn't taking effect. You know, it takes a while for it to take effect, they're saying. So if you got 90% and then let seven days pass, then it was even better. But overall, it was 90%. But that uh, if, if you get the second dose and then wait seven days, now your protection is better than 90%. But they didn't give a number. Now, this is kind of a shock because it was believed that – and the FDA said this. I'm not saying that – this was not said by conspiracy theorists or, or people who hate vaccines – it was said by the FDA that probably about 50 or 60 percent effective any vaccine that were to come out for the coronavirus. Why? Because that's what the flu the flu shot usually is. The flu shot is not that great. A lot of times it's 50 percent effective. So this is shocking that there's a 90 percent rate of being effective with this uh, COVID vaccine. Now these are different types of viruses. The flu is not a coronavirus, so it would be possible that uh, they could do better. But there's a lot less time involved in developing a coronavirus vaccine than a flu vaccine. The flu has been around forever. The, the coronavirus just came at the very end of 2019. We didn't know about it till the beginning of 2020. Vaccines usually take years to develop here. In the same year, they claim they have a vaccine that is 90% or more effective. But these, this was only 43,000 people, and half of them got the vaccine. So only 21,500 actually got the vaccine. And hopefully th- this was done with uh, an even distribution of people regarding their lifestyles. If it was completely random, it's possible a lot more could have fe- fallen, you know, that were getting the, uh, the vaccine happened to be ones that weren't going out that much anyway. But I, I don't know in that study what they did to assure that. Is it possible that this was an outlier, that maybe that uh, it just happened to fall this way and it's not 90% or even near 90%? Yeah. Now, 21,500 people getting it and then the other 21,500 getting the the placebo, that's still a lot of people. But there's a lot not known about COVID. And uh, also keep in mind that... Uh, I don't see the numbers of who actually got it, and that can matter too. Because remember, if if you didn't get COVID, that doesn't mean you were immune to it. It just means you didn't get it. Losing connection to Trader Risky. But that's something to understand here. It's not like they injected 21,000, 5,500 people with COVID or had some COVID really contagious uh, super spreader cough in their mouth and then see wanted to see who would get it. These are people who just went out and lived life and, and – 90% fewer got it with the vaccine versus the placebo, which is great, but that doesn't mean that all these people were immune. It just means that uh, these people just happened not to get it. So, yeah, of course, a lot of people with placebo also didn't get it. So I'm not sure how much that says. It actually would say more if they purposely tried to infect both groups, which you know, they wouldn't do. But if they did do it, that would say more than just send people out there randomly and see who happens to come down with it. Because there's going to be people on both sides, the placebo and the vaccine takers, who just won't get it. And you can't just conclude those people who didn't get it on the vaccine side were safe from it. So we have to wait longer with further studies to see what actual percentage protection it brings. Also, 90%, while excellent, 
still doesn't give people peace of mind. What it does do is perhaps lead us to herd immunity. If there's just not enough people to spread it, then the virus can die. That's eventually what happens to viruses that don't mutate. They just run out of spreaders. People start to spread it, then they can't spread it to other people because too many people are immune and can't get it. And then the virus doesn't pass on, they get better, and then there's no one to spread it anymore. That's that's what happens. So if 90% of the people can't get it, if it can't be spread anymore, then uh, the the 10% remaining may not be enough to keep it alive. It has been assumed that to get herd immunity, we need something like 60 to 80% that are immune to it. So 90 would definitely be above that threshold. But I don't know if it really is 90%, and I don't know if it's going to mutate. There's a lot that hasn't been seen yet. However, this is very encouraging news. This news did come after the election, and it may have helped Trump had it come before the election. Now, because there was a lot of early voting, even if this came like three days before the election, four days before the election, a week before the election, it may not have made a difference. But they are insisting at Pfizer that they did not do this on purpose, that they do not have any dog in the fight politically. They just happened to put it out then. It wasn't based on the election. However, one suspicious element was that, uh, I don't have the exact details, but there was some step they could have taken. Like they had a list of steps they were going to take before uh, going forward to release this to the public. The very last step of it could have been completed in October, and for whatever reason, they chose to delay it, which was a little bit weird. There may have been a valid reason. It also may have been because they wanted it after the election and it just didn't like Trump. I don't think that would have switched the election, but it definitely would have helped Trump. Because if, if you go into the election with a helpless feeling about COVID, you, you may want to blame the president. If you feel like there's a vaccine right over the hill here that uh, is going to have 90% effectiveness, then that could be a lot more uh, optimistic and you could feel a lot better about the COVID situation, even though the president had nothing to do with it uh, being developed. They announced that they were not part of Operation Warp Speed, which was the attempt to develop a COVID vaccine as quickly as possible. But then they corrected it to say that uh, it's not that they're not part of it. They are part of it. It's just they weren't given initial money, that they refused to take federal money, that they wanted to do their own thing and not uh, have the federal government uh, have any power over them on how to spend it. And, and uh, they just they wanted to be completely independent from the federal government. But that uh, they're still going to qualify for government contracts for this. And some of the money that's earmarked from Operation War Speed they can still get. They just didn't get any initial money for it for the research and development. They spent their own money here. So anyway, when would this be available to the rest of us? Well, they said that they plan to seek an emergency use authorization. I said when I say they, I mean uh, Pfizer. They they want a, an emergency use authorization after the volunteers who have been taking it are monitored for two months after getting their second dose of the vaccine. And that's what the FDA wants. The FDA wants uh, to see what happens two months after getting the vaccine because they want to see 
how people are faring on uh, on it health wise. You know, did the vaccine harm them in any way? That's the big concern with vaccine. You don't want to inject healthy people with something that's going to make them sick or be even worse than the disease you're trying to prevent with it. So the uh, they want to monitor people for two months and see what if they come down with anything weird. And if they go two months without any, without uh, many adverse effects, then uh, the FDA may grant an emergency youth authorization, which is the first step toward being able to use it. This vaccine would not help you if you've already caught COVID. Number one, you're already immune. Number two, this is not a cure. This is not a treatment. This is just a vaccine for those who do not have it and have not had it yet. People like myself. The two-month mark will be coming very soon. They claim the third week of November is when that two-month mark of the people who got their second dose will have hit. At that point, the FDA will decide whether to grant an emergency youth authorization. Dr. Anthony Fauci said that Pfizer's results are extraordinarily good news. And he has uh, not seen the information himself yet as far as the vaccine data, but is very happy to hear about it. Anyway, they, uh, they're still studying this. This is one of those messenger RNA, or also known as mRNA, vaccines. How many mRNA vaccines are there out there in current use? And I'll explain what it is shortly, but how many are currently in use in the United States? Zero point zero. Yes, this is a new approach to vaccines, which may very well be the future of vaccines. And I described this on a previous show. Remember I talked about the mRNA vaccines? Well, it looks like that has come to pass. And... I knew they were working on this, but I wasn't sure if this technology was mature enough in 2020 or even 2021 to be useful for the coronavirus vaccine. It is very possible in in 2030 that all vaccines are going to be mRNA vaccines and that this is going to be a major breakthrough and that people in future generations will look back and go, ah, in the early 2000s, they didn't have mRNA vaccines. That That was a crappy time to live. It's possible that's the way to look at it, the same way the same way we look at the early 1900s when they didn't have penicillin. But what is mRNA? They are basically uh, using, they're basically tricking cells into producing little bits of protein that look like pieces of the virus. Then the immune system learns to recognize and attack those and then would react fast to an actual infection. So this is different than actually injecting a small amount of the infection that uh, that's not big enough to harm someone so the body learns how to fight it. This is different. This is uh, using uh, genetic material to make protein that's harmless to look like pieces of the virus. So this is very new. This has been something that's been theorized for a long time but has never been put into practice. And when a coronavirus vaccine was needed, some companies said, hey, let's try it. Maybe maybe this is what we need. Maybe this is the first application of it. 
And uh, so some went the mRNA route, some went other routes. There's a number of routes that uh, these companies producing the vaccines have taken. The downside to mRNA is that it's unproven. We do not have one successful vaccine that's an mRNA vaccine. So a lot of people were saying, myself included, that maybe we shouldn't start with this. <laughs> maybe uh, we should have this technology work first, then make vaccines out of it uh, for something essential like the coronavirus, uh, not make this the first one because we don't know enough about it yet. The, the technology simply isn't mature enough. Let's, let's stick to what works so far. I wasn't saying they shouldn't try. I just was skeptical whether they could make this be the first one to work. It's not like they haven't wanted to. They just have not been able to successfully make one uh, up until now. So Pfizer is claiming, yeah, this this is working great. This is exactly what we wanted. One uh, upside to the mRNA vaccine is it, is it could uh, greatly bring down the incidence of side effects because you're not actually injecting the real disease into somebody's body. You're tricking the body into believing the disease is there to learn how to fight it, which is a difference. So that's, that's one of the reasons that this could end up being superior. However, there is another concern and that is how long this protection will last. It's not clear if this will provide long-term or forever protection against COVID-19 or whether this will phase out or, or, or fizzle out in the next uh, few months after taking it. It's also not clear if this will be as effective in preventing, reinfection, in, in preventing infection as having the actual COVID-19 disease. Now, there's some belief that at some point in the future, people who had COVID-19 can get it again in a different form, in a mutated form. But uh, could this possibly not even be as effective as that? Is it possible this will just wear off? They don't know this yet. There hasn't been enough time. And they're wondering if perhaps COVID-19 will have to become a yearly or even seasonal shot that maybe this is something you're going to have to do every year or more than once a year to keep up with the changing of the COVID-19 virus. And maybe you will always have to deal with it being 90% effective. And maybe this is just something you're going to have to live with, that uh, you may be part of that unlucky 10% who gets COVID. And you'll have to decide, do I go back out and live life? And the answer for most probably is, yeah, just have to risk it and do it. People right now, like myself, who are avoiding much contact are doing so with the belief that at some point this will change either a treatment or a good vaccine or the whole thing just dies from herd immunity, perhaps from a vaccine. However, if this just keeps mutating and sticking around like the flu, then we can't just hide forever. We'll have to uh, go back and live life and risk whatever's going to happen. They claim it will be easier to make subsequent vaccines using the mRNA technology than it would be with uh, traditional vaccine technology. They say you can uh, boost this mRNA technology without creating antibodies against your vaccine again and again and again. Pfizer is claiming they have not seen any safety issues with it, 
They said, what we know right now is with a very, very high level of confidence, these are very highly effective vaccines. What we know so far is it means we don't have any safety concerns, but we need to wait until the test results are there. Basically, we got to wait some time to see if people get sick from it. Okay, now let's let's assume this vaccine is what they claim it is, and let's see, maybe it's 90%, maybe it's more than 90% effective. Maybe it's 90% effective, and then if you uh, kind of get it, kind of still stay cautious and uh, don't uh, go out that much, then get a second one, then wait another week, then maybe you'll have better than 90% protection. Maybe you have 95% protection at that point. So let's say this is all it's cracked up to be. Then what? Well, the one problem with this vaccine is the distribution, and that it has to be stored at uh, very, very cold temperatures. And uh, this is going to create a little bit of a, of a distribution problem. So uh, they're already starting to prepare for this, but uh, it needs to be stored at uh, minus 70 degrees Celsius. <laughs> so that's uh, that's pretty cold. I, gu- I guarantee you have never been in minus 70 degrees Celsius or Fahrenheit for that matter. What is minus 70 degrees Celsius in Fahrenheit? That's 94 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. Even the very, very coldest day in Fairbanks, Alaska, which is one of the coldest places in the world in the winter when they have cold spells, has never reached minus 94 Fahrenheit. Like the coldest it's going to get there is like minus 60 something. And most years it doesn't get down there. This is they have to store this at minus ninety four degrees Fahrenheit, minus seventy Celsius. That's not easy to do. That's that's pretty cold. So, yeah, if they only had to store a few doses, sure. But uh, can you imagine having to store billions of doses at this temperature? So that's not easy. So they are preparing to get systems ready for this to be distributed and for this to be stored. They are getting a lot of dry ice together for the distribution. Because remember, they have to move it around. And they have to move it around uh, and keep it at that temperature. So the dry ice is going to be used for that. And uh, they're also, the government is getting ready needles, syringes, and personal protective equipment needed for administration. They said it does uh, have a little bit of a hurdle with this uh, storage. And... uh, the problem is that there are not that many freezers currently available that can store this type, you know, that can store it at, at this low of temperature. In healthcare, they just don't have that many freezers like this. So this could be a problem. They're, they're trying to rapidly get, get these made, but this could slow things down a bit. Uh, someone commenting on this said, uh, no one, nobody has any experience working with a vaccine at that temperature. And so this is going to be the greatest drug distribution challenge of our country's ever faced because of that unique circumstance that, with that temperature requirement. So uh, it also may be difficult to keep it at a stable temperature when distributing it in rural communities. It's, it's going to be a lot more difficult because now we have to find a way to maintain that temperature when we're driving it out 20 or 50 miles to do an inoculation. So what they're talking about here is that Distributing it, moving it from where it's being made to where it's being stored for for distribution on site in 
non-rural communities is not as hard. Yeah, they have a shortage of these freezers, but uh, they, they can have the freezers on site where they're going to be administering it. So it, there they can keep it at a stable temperature as long as the uh, when they are doing the, the movement of them, they, they only have to basically move it once. The problem is in rural areas, they're not going to be able to bring freezers to every little, you know, every tiny town that has people living there. That's just not uh, something that is feasible. So they would have to bring this vaccine to people to do it to people in those areas. They'd have to have vaccination events where people in these small towns show up to some kind of vehicle that's, that's driving it out there. And they're saying that this is going to be a lot harder because they have to find a way to maintain a temperature while moving uh, smaller amounts of this to places in, in rural communities for these uh, vaccination events. Now, Pfizer thinks that uh, this can be done. They said, we have a series of packaging. We call them pizza boxes because they have roughly that shape full of vaccine and they're packed around with dry ice in these very insulated containers. These containers can keep the vaccine at temperature by themselves for a couple of weeks and they can be repacked to dry ice to keep them nice and cool. They claim they're also going to track the vaccine's temperature in transit. We not only have a tracking location, but we track the temperature so when the box is received, you can verify it's stated the temperature it should. It's a way that ensuring the vaccine is actually finally given to the person vaccinated is still good. That's a little concern. of <laughs> What if it was mishandled on the way and you get a vaccine that is just not kept at the right temperature? So, yeah, for this study, they're doing it perfectly, but when it's mass dis- distributed, maybe there's going to be a lot of errors where you get a vaccine that was not kept at uh, minus 94 Fahrenheit, and then it doesn't work, and you get COVID, and you say, what the hell? So... CVS and Walgreens, the two biggest uh, drugstore chains in the United States, say that they are fully equipped to store the vaccine. said all our pharmacies are equipped with refrigerators and freezers that would allow us to store the vast majority of the vaccines right here. However, uh, other pharmacies that are not CVS or Walgreens may either uh, have to just forego distributing the COVID vaccine or have to buy an expensive freezer to do so, which some of them may not be able to afford to do. Now, that's not the end of the world, but that would reduce the options one would have to get it if uh, the only places you could go would be CVS and Walgreens. So uh, the the problem with smaller pharmacies purchasing a freezer, first of all, they may not be available. Second is that uh, they may never use it again. If, if this is distributed and then it turns out people don't need it again, it just, let's say just COVID-19 dies and it's gone, then they've wasted their money on that freezer. So that's a, that could be a problem. They claim that uh, healthcare providers are actually concerned about this, but that uh, since dry ice can be used as a, as a substitute, some of these places are just going to be using dry ice all they can and then just keep getting more and more dry ice to keep things cold rather than invest in a freezer that they may end up wasting after this is all done. Now, if they knew this is going to go on forever, that we're going to have to do this a year or a few times a year, yeah, they would get the freezer, but that's not known. It's possible this could just vanish like the swine flu did. Now, there's a lot of doses that have to be made. Uh, They said we're we're going to produce a tremendous number of dosage. 1.3 billion doses in 2021 is the goal we're shooting for. So... That's a lot of doses being made. Now, why more doses than there are people in the U.S.? Well, because uh, 
it could be distributed uh, internationally as well. This is not just uh, for people in this country. Uh, they have not said exactly what the priority is going to be, but it's it's pretty much uh, what you'd expect. The FDA said that uh, elderly care facilities and healthcare providers will be the first to be offered the vaccine. Uh, it's not clear if elderly people who are not in nursing homes will have some kind of priority. You would think they should, but they may not. They're saying that for sure nursing homes and healthcare providers should get it first. Now, as far as healthcare providers, I actually semi-disagree with this. And I'm not being a callous jerk just because I don't work in healthcare. Let me put it this way. I understand that uh, people who work in healthcare are putting themselves at risk every day as far as COVID is concerned. And I can appreciate that. And I think anybody who's over 35 who is in healthcare should be one of the people receiving it first because they're on the front line dealing with this thing. However, uh, if there's, uh, since it's a priority system, since it's something where you're trying to figure out who should get it first, I would think that healthcare workers under 35, I, I know a lot of them are over 35, but the ones under 35, I think they should wait. I think that you should give it to nursing homes for sure. No question about that. You should give it to healthcare workers 35 and over. And you should give it to elderly people, not in nursing homes. And then go from there. Now, I think healthcare workers under 35, yeah, maybe they should have a little priority after that. But I don't even know about that. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a segment following this one, about the stats of people under 35, how well they fare with this. Because it's, it's better than you think. Once you're over 35, the chance of COVID both killing you and causing permanent damage goes way up. Not abruptly on your 35th birthday, but it goes up very quickly. You can compare it to women's fertility. At 35, that starts to fall off a cliff. Do women have babies after 35? Of course. In fact, uh, even Benjamin was born when his mom was over 35. But uh, a woman's fertility at 40 is far less than at 35, whereas between 30 and 35, it's, it's only a small difference. Similarly, COVID after 35 starts to rapidly get worse. And then at 45, it speeds up even more as far as the average person, what effect they're going to have from it. Of course, there's outliers on both ends. But uh, in general, if you're under 35, you don't have to fear COVID that much. So I don't think every healthcare worker should get it first. I think it should be healthcare workers over 35. But uh, they might just uh, they might just give it to all the healthcare workers. They did say that they'll make sure that the people who are at the highest risk will have access to it first, but they haven't exactly talked about that. They said there will be uh, prioritization pathways, but again, that hasn't been. Uh, totally described yet. Now, surprisingly, maybe not so surprisingly, about a third of all COVID-19 deaths in the U.S. have occurred among residents of nursing homes. A third! Wow. 
I mean, that's that's a lot of deaths in nursing homes. Now, yes, it has been mostly older people who have died of COVID, and a lot of older people are in nursing homes. In fact, nursing homes are like all old people. But still, a third being people who are residents of nursing homes is, is that's pretty big. CVS says it's prepared to begin administering the vaccine to nursing homes before the end of the year, which there's not much time left. We're at November 14th year, if one is approved by them. There is a deal between Operation Warp Speed, which of course is the government, CVS and Walgreens, that uh, facilities that opt into the program will have pharmacists and technicians come and administer the vaccine to doses... uh, will come and administer the vaccine on site free of charge to these nursing homes. So basically the government's paying uh, CVS and Walgreens to drive the vaccine over to nursing homes and give it. That was a deal that's already been made. And this should be interesting going forward. I mean, it's, it's very good news, especially because I was so skeptical of this mRNA. Not that I was scared of it or that I, I thought there was any kind of conspiracy going on with it. I just – I wasn't sure if the mature the, – the technology was mature enough, like I said before. I thought this sounds like the future, but it may not be the present. Much like I say about cryptocurrency. I think cryptocurrency is the future but not the present. But mRNA vaccines, I thought that too. But maybe with that I was wrong. Maybe mRNA – is the present, and this is the, or maybe it's the future, but this is the beginning of the future. Maybe this was the kick in the ass it needed to really get going. The good thing about it is it, as I said, it's, it's, it brings, uh, new possibilities for vaccination and potentially fewer side effects and possibly more effective. There's a lot to like about it. You just, hopefully it just works. You know, like this. Hopefully there's not uh, some gotchas with it, like it wears off or whatever. Because we, we know how regular vaccines work. We know how regular vaccines effectiveness uh, tends to be, that it tends to work provided that uh, there isn't a mutation. With this, uh, it's all new, so we're not sure. And in general with COVID, we're not sure because that might mutate. We, we don't know how long you're going to have protection. So we shall see. This will be something we'll see throughout 2021. If you're not in that small group of healthcare workers or elderly in nursing homes or maybe just the general elderly who aren't in nursing homes, then you may get a view of how the vaccine's working out even uh, without having to make the decision yourself if you take it right away or wait a few months. Because I've talked to a lot of people about the vaccine and what it seems like a lot of people are saying is, uh, you know what? I'm going to wait a few months. I, I want to see how everybody else does on it. Like everybody wants everybody else to try it first. It's one of these things like, no, 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 you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. Like everybody wants to see what happens. Well, those who are very vulnerable to COVID killing them are very, very willing to go first because they would much rather take the risk of the vaccine than get COVID and die. If I were very old, I would want the vaccine very soon, as soon as I could get it. No question. If I were young, I would not want the vaccine. I would not want it until I was sure that it was safe. Because if I were young, I would know it is very unlikely to harm me, COVID. 
there's a very good chance I'll be asymptomatic or maybe just to be a little bit sick. I'm not injecting some weird vaccine that was rushed through development where nobody knows the long-term effects of it or even the medium-term effects of it. I'm not going to do it. It's just not worth it. I'm not gaining enough. But I'm neither very young nor very old. I'm in the middle. I'm 48 years old. I'm old enough to experience long-term damage from COVID if I were to get it. It's not for sure. Very good chance I wouldn't, but there's a decent chance I would. And there's even a small chance I would die from it. So I do have a COVID danger. COVID scares me a lot. But so does a a rushed vaccine. So I'm not sure for me which is better. Especially being 90% effective, I still wouldn't feel confident. Like, okay, 90% effective, okay, I can let my guard down. Like, I'll I'll feel like I'm going to be the one to run bad to have the 1 in 10 beat me. So I wouldn't even feel like, okay, nothing to worry about anymore. So, I don't know. I'm not saying I'll never take it. I'm saying I'm not sure if I would take it or if I would prefer to wait a few months. But I may have to wait a few months anyway because I just may not be able to get it for a few months. My parents have said they're going to take it right away. That is the correct decision. I didn't argue with them. I said, yes, I would do that too if I were your age. Benjamin, who is 10 years old, I would not want to give this to him right now, this vaccine. I don't want to inject my child with the vaccine when COVID is not going to harm him. That's a very good age to be if you're going to get COVID is 10. It's a great age to be. It's one of the best ages you can be for COVID is 10. So very unlikely it would do anything harmful to him. I'm going to expand upon that in our next segment about the stats on COVID, which might surprise you. I'm still up in the air what I'll do about the vaccine personally, because I'm right in the middle. But we will see what happens with the people who really do need it, like the elderly. And I guess if if the elderly take it and then uh, some of them start having pretty nasty side effects, then they're going to say, okay, uh, we got to pull this back and then we we wouldn't take it ourselves. But for the elderly, it's worth risking the possible side effects, again, because getting COVID is so much worse for them. So this isn't really being discussed about, like, should you take it by age? Of course, the government really hopes everybody just takes it. For the sake of the country, it would be better if everybody took it, even the young people, because that would lead us to faster herd immunity. But you also have to think about yourself rather than just the country. And you may say, I'm just not going to inject something with a lot of unknowns in it into my body when I'm not likely to have a very bad case of it. That's what you say if you're young. That's what you should say if you're young. And if you're old, you say, well, I'm going to have to give it a shot. <laughs> the, the, the risk-reward, is, is, it's a good uh, ratio for me on this. If you're young, it's a terrible ratio. If you're in the middle, it's a tough call. So we shall see. Now, it's possible this vaccine is going to flame out. It's possible it will not be anywhere near 90% effective. It's possible there will be some other problem with it, like the protection wears off too quickly. It is pro- possible that... It will have side effects that were not previously known, and that will halt the whole thing. People start getting all kinds of uh, weird conditions that they didn't have before, and it's all traced back to this vaccine. That's going to be a big problem. Though if it is 90% effective, there probably will be some tolerance of adverse effects, but that would really dissuade the public from wanting to, to use it 
especially if they're not in the most vulnerable groups. So we'll have to see everything with that. This is all uncharted territory. And I knew the whole vaccine thing was going to be uh, a whole controversy in itself when that were to come up. I, I knew right away that wasn't a controversy because it doesn't exist yet. But uh, once the choice is in our hands as citizens to use the vaccine or not, it'll be very interesting to see where that goes. You thought the anti-vaxxer movement was big before. I mean, now it's going to be huge. Now there's going to be huge groups of people saying, we're not doing it. There's going to be a lot of people who refuse. A lot of people who refuse who shouldn't refuse, like old people or ones with pre-existing conditions. But you're going to have a lot of people who are going to refuse it. Sadly, um, I think a lot of the people who are going to refuse it are going to be ones on the right. And if you're on the right, I, I want to urge you, if you're older, you should take it. If you're around my age and want to refuse it, it makes more sense. Just be aware of, of you have a real COVID risk, as I'm going to describe in the next segment. If you're young and you refuse it, totally makes sense. I agree with you. All right, so let's let's move on. Let me get over to the uh, the stats portion of this. I looked at a CDC page, which is called Weekly Updates by Select Demographic and Geographic Characteristics. This is about COVID-19. This is on cdc.gov. This is directly from the government. This is not some right or left-wing propaganda site about COVID. This is something from the CDC. So I trust this data. And I was looking at the death numbers, and this is updated November 12th, so it's pretty recent, okay? This was updated when the death total was uh, 223,984 in the U.S. Here's how it breaks down. Now, before I begin, unless you've been under a rock during the entire COVID thing, you know that young people aren't that badly affected, and old people are, and people in the middle are kind of in the middle. Okay, we know that. We're not going to even talk about that. But to what degree... How much of a difference is it really? Because you've heard, well, you know, kids can get it and sometimes they can get really sick. And people in their 20s, well, there's this story I read in the news of a healthy 21-year-old who died or a healthy 21-year-old who was on a ventilator. And so really, it can get anybody. So everybody's got to be careful. Everybody needs to lock down. Everybody needs to stay in in their own house and not go anywhere and, and, and uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay. So I, I decided instead of just telling people young people shouldn't worry that much, I decided I'm going to look this up. I'm going to go to the CDC, and I'm just going to look up the cold hard numbers and draw my own conclusions. Okay? So, of the roughly 224,000 COVID deaths in the U.S. as of November 12, 2020, how many you think were people under 15? People... 0 to 14, which is kids. 0 to 14. How many deaths out of 224,000 total deaths? The number of deaths of people in that age group is... 0.0. Well, not quite, but close. 81. Not 81,000. Not 810. Not 8,100. 81. 81 out of 224,000 deaths. You may say, well, there's maybe that's not a big population. No, the, the population of that uh, age group is, uh, 
I think around like like forty million. Forty something million. I'd have to look it up, but like I, I looked it up the other day. It's a lot of people. Eighty one. Does that sound like a crisis to you? I mean, yeah, it sucks. Eighty one children dying is terrible, and I feel terrible for their parents. And it should be zero. I mean, it would be great if it was zero, but the truth is, uh, the chance of your child dying of COVID, and I believe almost all of those 81 had pre-existing conditions. So the chance of your healthy child or even your not so healthy child dying of COVID who's under 15 is almost zero. And that has to be considered. You, ha- you have to, like, way more die of the flu than 81 in that same period of time in a normal year. And people aren't panicking about the flu. And again, most of those 81 were, were kids who already had major health problems. So that is right away very indicative how for kids, it's, uh, it's not, it's really not killing them. Okay, so let's move on. Let's move to under 25. That is uh, including kids. Anyone age 0 to 24 and 364 days. Remember, 224,000 deaths. All people in the U.S. under 25. How many COVID deaths have there been? There have been 491. That's it. 491 out of 224,000. How many people are in that age group in the U.S.? 94 million. There are 94 million people in the U.S. who are under 25 right now. One of them is my son. 491 of them have died from COVID. Most of them with major pre-existing conditions. So we're not talking about little kids anymore. We're not talking about 10-year-olds now. We're talking about 21, 22, 23, 24, and all the people younger than that. All combined, fewer than 500 total deaths. Does that sound like a tremendous problem? Yeah, it would be great if it was zero. These were still 491 young human beings who died. And that sucks. And it's very tragic. And, you know, that's uh, my heart goes out to their parents, and I, I can't imagine how they feel. But by the numbers, 491 out of 94 million is very, very small. Let's move on. I mean, obviously, some age group is making up these 224,000, but up till age 25, which is, uh, it's about 30% of the population. 491 out of 224,000. From ages 25 to 34. That's kind of more of a tricky age group because uh, they're not as young anymore and they're definitely not quite at middle age yet. So what about this group? Well, they do fare worse than the under 25 group. In that 10-year span, 25 and 0 days through 34 and 364 days, there were 1,725 deaths. Okay, so that's uh, that's more. But again, we're, we're looking at uh, a group of about 40 million people. So that's uh, still not that many. 1,725 out of 40-something million. Let's look at all this combined. If we take people in the U.S. who have not reached their 35th birthday yet, they make up about 150,000 people in the U.S. 
but 150,000, 150 million, a little bit less, but uh, close to 150 million people are under 35. And if you look at that, it means when you, when you combine these numbers I've been telling you, it means 2,216 people have died of COVID under 35. Now, that's not a tiny number, but what's close to half the U.S. population, because again, people under 35 make up close to half the U.S. population, not quite, but close, and yet they make up less than 1% of all COVID deaths. Isn't that interesting? That close to half the population makes up less than 1% of all COVID deaths. That means 99% plus of all COVID deaths are people 35 and older. Yet people under 35 make up close to half the population. So wait a minute. That would mean it is very, very, very heavily stacked in the older half of the population. If 99% are the older half of the population. So what should that say? That should say that we should stop this hysteria about the younger people, especially if we protect the younger people who have major pre-existing conditions, the number starts to approach zero of the ones that die of COVID. And while we don't have as many numbers for this, and in fact, it's it's very difficult to get these numbers or impossible because this is not well reported, but the people under 35 also don't get very much permanent damage from what we can see because they don't have very major cases. And the more major the case, as far as symptoms are concerned, the higher chance it is that you're going to get permanent damage. So if you have a, like an asymptomatic case, for example, it's very unlikely you're going to have permanent damage. If you have a very mild case, it's unlikely you're going to have permanent damage. If you have a moderate case, you can get unlucky and get permanent damage, but uh, it's much less likely. Like uh, the general rule of thumb is if you don't have breathing problems while you have the coronavirus, then you're not as likely to have permanent lung damage. You don't have any breathing problems. I don't mean bad enough to go to the hospital. I mean any. If, you're, if your breathing is 100% fine the whole way, then you probably won't end up with permanent lung damage. That's the general rule of thumb. Not always true, but that's the general feeling you get if you have COVID. So there aren't that many people under 35 who get the permanent lung damage or any kind of permanent damage we know of. There's some, but not that many. And they make up fewer than 1% of all deaths by the CDC numbers. Well, now let's talk about the other 99%, because it starts escalating. In the 35 to 44 group, there were 4,426 deaths. So that's already uh, multiplied by about two and a half times. The two and a half more t- times more people die from 35 to 44 than 25 to 34. 45 to 54 does pretty much the same thing. Multiplies again by about two and a half times. Moves up to 11,740 deaths. Now, I'm right in the middle of that age group, 45 to 54. Very close to right in the middle. And uh, look what a difference it already is from 25 to 34. 25 to 34 was 1,725. 45 to 54 is 11,740. And if you look at under 25, 
it's 491. So compare that to my age group, 45 to 54, 11,740. Way more dangerous. 55 to 64, again, about two and a half times again. It goes to 28,227. 65 to 74. That's not two and a half times, but it still moves up substantially. It moves to 48,363. Less than two times, but close to two times. It doesn't quite move up as fast as they get older, but I'll explain in a second why. 59,760 for 75 to 84. 69,252 for 85 years and older. Now you may say, wait a minute, I'm surprised by that. How could 75 to 84, it's supposed to be so dangerous to get COVID, 75 to 84. How could that only be five times the deaths of 45 to 54? Well, that might surprise you that for every five deaths in the 75 to 84 group, there's one death in the 45 to 54 group. I bet you'd never have guessed that. I bet you'd think it would be like 20 to 1, 50 to 1. I bet you would not have guessed that uh, you have one 45 to 50 or 54-year-old dying for every uh, 75 uh, five, for every five 75 to 84-year-old dying. That makes the middle-aged people look much, much worse. However, there is something to keep in mind. There are a lot fewer people aged 75 to 84 in the U.S. than 45 to 54. Why? Because a lot of people die before age 75. So that really shrinks the population of that age group. There are not that many people who die before they turn 54 years old. But there's a lot of people who die before 75. Life expectancy on average is higher than that in the U.S., but uh, not way higher. So there's a lot of people who are on the bad end of the life expectancy and they don't make it and they end up uh, dying before age 75. So they never make it there, so the population of, of 75 to 84-year-olds is much smaller. So if the list also listed in this table is the population of each group, 45 to 54-year-olds is 40,874,000, so close to 41 million. 75 to 84-year-olds is a hair under 16 million. So we're looking at about a, a two and a half times population difference where the 45 to 54-year-olds have way more. So it's about a two and a half times population difference and about a five times greater difference in number of COVID deaths. So you have to multiply that. So that brings a number which makes a little more sense that uh, there's a 12 and a half times more COVID deaths at 75 to 84 per capita than 45 to 54. But okay, that still seems like a little bit... Uh, You'd expect the number to be higher. Like, it's lower than you expected. You'd still expect, like, 20 to 1, maybe 50 to 1, 12 and a half to 1. That's, you know, you're adjusting for population, but it's still 12 and a half to 1. That still sounds a little bit low. Well, there's the other factor that people learned in that age group to be careful, where a lot of people at 45 to 54 are still not as careful because they heard that it's killing old people. So there are more cases as well per capita for 45 to 54 year olds than old people. I don't have that number in front of me, but uh, there are more cases of it occurring. The 85 and older, as you can imagine, that population is a lot smaller because a lot of people don't make it to 85. 85 is over the life expectancy for both males and females. There are only 6.6 million people who are 85 or older 
in the U.S. There was also fewer babies born back then. Yeah, the population was smaller, so there just were not as many born in those years. But it's not just that. It's most of them have died. So there's only 6.6 million people left who are 85 and older. And yet they have still the highest number of deaths from COVID, 69,252. If you want to compare that to the 45 to 54 range, that's about a factor of six in number of deaths, but uh, adjusted for population, where there's about uh, six times as many people, 45 to 54, than 85 and older, that would then make it 36 times the death for those uh, people. And again, I'm sure the people over 85 are not going out and about very much anymore. <laughs> so that is a factor as well. They're probably getting it at a much lesser frequency. So some of these things are surprising. Some of them are not. It's not surprising at all that uh, old people are the ones uh, mainly dying from it. It's not surprising that of the 224,000 or so that have died from COVID, that more than half are 75 or older. If you add the numbers for the 75 to 84 and 85 plus, that adds up to about uh, to close to 130,000. And there's 224,000 total. So that means that, again, more than half were... 75 or older, and if you look at 65 or older, then you uh, really have a large portion of them, where it's about uh, 178,000 of the 224,000 are 65 or older. But you still have about 40,000 deaths of people 45 to 64. And that's a lot. It's a lot 40,000 people who are between 45 and 64, that's a lot of people dying who are at an age that they don't die that often. So what can we learn from this? And what surprised me? Well, what surprised me was the under 25 stat. That's what jumped at me the most. I knew the kids weren't dying very much. 81 is actually lower than I thought it was going to be. Like out of the whole country, for 81 kids to have died is very low, considering that... uh, yeah, looking at the numbers here, it's, it's that there's uh, yeah, there's almost 60 million of them. So with with about uh, yeah, it's right right around 60 million. So around 60 million kids under 15 for 81 to have died is just about nothing. But even for the 15 to 24 year olds, for only 410 of them to have died, which means everybody under 25 is fewer than 500 deaths in a population group. That uh, I said 94 million. It's actually 100. It's actually like 102 million. So for over 100 million people, you had fewer than 500 deaths. So that's the group we shouldn't be worried about, except for the ones with pre-existing conditions. That's the group we shouldn't be worried about, and we should uh, craft policy with that in mind. We shouldn't treat everybody the same. We especially shouldn't treat young people and middle-aged people the same. And this should be communicated to people honestly. The days of, oh, we want everyone to fear this so it doesn't spread need to be over. We, we need to just be honest and say the young people, let them congregate as long as they're not going to go back, as long as these aren't young people who are going to go back to older people that they live with. But like college students who, who don't live with their parents, let them congregate. Let, let them take the jobs that uh, may be more dangerous to get COVID. If there's certain jobs that are not skilled, that there's a concern about the workers, let them take those jobs. Even teaching. 
the uh, maybe start uh, having a lot of the teachers who are under 35 teach more in-person classes and the uh, uh, the teachers who are over 35 teach more of the zoom classes things like that start start crafting policy both uh, governmental and also corporate based upon these numbers the problem is we have had shoved down our throat by the media the belief that oh it happens to everybody I, I've had these discussions on on Facebook and it's it's infuriating I'll be in some face group Facebook group and there's some discussion about COVID and the person having the discussion about COVID is 24 and I say well I wish I was in your shoes I'm 48 I've got to worry about it you really don't oh yes I do there's people of my age dying all the time blah 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 and they, they don't know what they're talking about no there aren't there's there's fewer than 500 out of 102 million that have died of COVID in that age group. So no, there aren't. In my age group, there's almost 12,000 out of 40 million. That's a big difference. So they, they don't know what they're talking about is the truth. And this should be something that we keep in mind. We need to stop worrying for the younger people. The under 35 people are just not in that much danger. So we need to really protect the old people, really protect everybody with, with major pre-existing conditions, have the middle-aged people be cautious, have middle-aged people understand that they are in some danger. Master Scaler and Ryan both didn't know about this. They, they thought that uh, this is mainly something that kills old people. They didn't know that there were as many people dying in their age group, 45 to 54, as there were. They didn't know about the permanent lung damage that happened so often to this age group. They didn't know that either. They kind of thought, okay, as long as I'm not 75, I, I'm probably going to be okay. It's not like that. So each person should be able to determine for themselves what their risk is, but it needs to be communicated to everybody. Tell the old people, you're at big risk. Stay away. Tell the young people, you know what? Keep away from older people, but you're, you're really not going to be very hurt by this unless you have a pre-existing condition, tell the middle-aged people, be cautious. Because it can get you. Not as much as the old people, but it, but you're someone who is somewhat vulnerable. And then let everybody decide for themselves. And everybody has got their own idea of what is uh, worth taking the risk for and what isn't. And we had this discussion on the forum recently, by the way. There's a member of the forum who went to Vegas recently and played in a Vegas poker room. He's 55. And I told him that wasn't very wise to do. And then he told me, well, you know, you can have fun sitting in your basement eating TV dinners. I'm going to live my life. And I said, okay, you know, you, you can choose to do that. I don't think this is forever. So I'm, I'm willing to wait it out. You may not be willing. That's your right to do. I don't think it should be taken away from you. But I would not choose to do it that way. It, playing live poker isn't worth enough to me to do that. Financially or just entertainment-wise. This guy was doing it for entertainment. He wasn't even playing to make money. So everybody can decide. You may decide that uh, you just don't, don't want to wait this out until the end. You don't want to take off years of your life sitting at home waiting for this to get better. You just want to live your life now and you'll take the risk. Yeah, some percentage of whatever age group you're in dies, but you're just you, you take risks every day. 
This is just another one you're taking. Okay, I can respect that. And I hope you can respect me who says, you know, I, I just don't want to take the chance. I, I'll just wait this out, and when this passes, then I'll return to normal life. They're both valid decisions. I, th- I think people should just be well-informed and then be able to make their own decisions. If there's huge outbreaks and they want to do uh, some lockdowns to get that under control in hot spots, that's fine. That's kind of along the lines of flattening the curve. That was our original goal. But the problem is it evolved from flattening the curve to just, like, stop the curve, which is not possible. And lockdowns have a cost. They have an economic cost. They have a, a mental health cost. They have a physical health cost where people don't go in to get things checked. They don't get procedures done. They don't get uh, tests done. They are afraid to go to the hospital for certain things because they think they're going to catch COVID. And they end up di- a lot more people end up dying from other causes because of the lockdowns. So lockdowns are, are not necessarily saving the lives you think they are. Even if they're saving some COVID lives, they're costing other lives. They're also causing economic hardship. They're ruining lives where people may not die earlier, but they're miserable because they, they go broke and they, they lose their business or uh, whatever else it is. So there's a, there's a lot of hardships that are created by lockdowns that can't just be dismissed. You can't just say, okay, we saved this many COVID lives, people who would have died otherwise from COVID, so great job. No, when you're making policy, you've got to decide what is the best for society overall. And since it's a, a decision of one bad thing versus another bad thing, you've got to decide which is less bad. There's no solution that just makes everything great. So policy should be crafted around that. Now, if the vaccine is available soon and it really puts a dent in all of this, then we can start treating it differently. Then the, the conversation changes. Then there can even be uh if you can show record of vaccination, you can do certain things. Otherwise, you can't. They can start separating people like that, and I would support that. I know there's going to be controversies about this. People can say, I don't want to get a vaccine, and yet I don't want to be restricted from things. But I think it's totally fine, especially for private companies to do, to say, you're not allowed to enter our business unless you have been vaccinated. If you don't want to be vaccinated, we can't force you, but you can't come in our business. And... uh we're going to start seeing a lot of pushback to that, which is unfortunate. We shouldn't. And this is coming from me who may not even take the vaccine initially until I'm sure it's safe. Now, once I'm pretty sure it's safe, then I'm not going to hesitate to take it. I'm not anti the vaccine. I just want to make sure it's a safe vaccine. As I said, I'm, I'm mixed on that. So anyway, I gave you these numbers so you could really know what the death, the death rates really are. The population numbers are, are pretty, uh, constant for every decade of age that is you know zero to 14 or zero to uh well the first one i guess the, i guess the first is zero to five so where's that less but then five to 14 15 to 24 25 to 34 35 to 44 45 to 54 55 to 64 those groups are all roughly low 40s in millions the highest is 25 to 34 where there's uh, almost 46 million there just were more births in that decade but uh, the reason they're fairly constant is you don't have any people dying before 55. So it doesn't reduce the population that much. Once you pass, actually all the way to 65, even, even up to 65, it's uh, 
uh, 42 million. Though I think that the birth rate was higher because of the baby boomers. So that's part of it too. But you, you don't have many people dying before 55 and even before 65, there's not that many dying. And if you think about it, uh, of people you've known in your life, or especially if you're close to that age yourself, there probably aren't that many people you've known that have died before 65. You know some, but like most people you know that are, you know, most people you know made it to 65 if they've gotten to that age already. There aren't that many people you knew that died before then. Once you get past 65, then it starts falling fast. And once you get to 75, it starts falling really fast. So we're talking about pretty constant population groups. And yet uh, through twenty through age 25, there's fewer than 500. Then from 25 to 34, 1725, 44, 26 in the next decade, 11,700. Next decade, 45 to 54, 28,000. Next decade, then 48, then 59, then 69. And by the end there, the population is going down too. So next time you have a young idiot who's 22 telling you that they're vulnerable too, tell them they're stupid. <laughs> Unless they have a pre-existing condition, then fine. But it has to be a major one. Because well, you know, there's still a lot of people under 25 who have some kind of pre-existing condition. I know most people are healthy at that age, but there's plenty of people with medical problems in, at that age group, and uh, still fewer than 500 have died of COVID. Like, like think of all the kids with asthma. I know they talk about asthma being a factor that can kill you with COVID, and it can, but there's a lot of kids with asthma, and yet only 81, 15 and under have died. So that, or 14 and under have died. So that's uh, pretty significant, right? Should make you feel better if you have a kid with asthma. Our last topic is about the number of hospital beds. We've been hearing about the hospital bed controversy again. Because there's been COVID hotspots that are popping up in the middle of the country. Illinois is getting it badly. Oklahoma is getting it badly. Texas is getting it badly. And people are starting to worry again for the first time since the spring that we are not going to have enough beds for everybody and that people are going to be turned away from the hospital when they need COVID care and they're going to die at home, which would be a tremendous tragedy. Now, the panic about this in April was New York, when New York was just getting slammed. And they quickly built up uh, or got ready auxiliary hospitals with beds that weren't technically in hospitals but could function as hospitals if necessary. They even parked a ship off the coast of New York City for that purpose. They had some hospitals get full, but they were able to move people, tell people to go over to nearby hospitals that were not full. It's important to know that in New York, despite their horrendous... COVID outbreak, especially in New York City. Not one person was turned away that simply could not get a hospital bed when they needed one. There's not a single person that would have otherwise been treated if there was room that was told to go home. There were people told, hey, go to this other hospital. They have room for you. But there was no one told, you just can't be treated. Goodbye. They did that in Italy, unfortunately. There were people in Italy who needed treatment and were told, I'm sorry, we're out of space. And they sent them home and they died. Very sad. Didn't happen here. Didn't happen in New York. Didn't happen anywhere in the U.S. Not one person, from anything I've heard, has had this ever occur in the U.S. Now, that, that crisis was back in the spring. It was supposedly fixed. And uh, they actually closed down these auxiliary hospitals because there was no need for them. The, the regular hospitals uh, had enough capacity, and that was that. And then uh, COVID kind of stayed stagnant. It went down, went back up, went up and down. And it, it never got nearly to the levels that it was in the spring. 
So there was no need to have this discussion again. However, we have some bad hotspots right now. Now, keep in mind, there's a lot more testing than there used to be. So these numbers that seem staggering compared to what you remember in April, uh, they were very high in April too, probably even higher, but we just uh, didn't have as much testing. So they seemed lower. So just because we can test more and identify more doesn't mean it's actually worse because the numbers are higher. That's why when they say, oh, we just passed uh, 11 million cases in the U.S., I don't care how many documented cases that have been found in the U.S. because there were tons of undocumented ones in the earlier days of this. So the, the number's not even accurate. So that number means nothing. Just like the, they passed a million in California, they passed a million in Texas. Now, that's a million you know about. So we passed a million a long time ago. It doesn't matter. These are just round numbers which are eye-popping, but they don't really matter. So let's get back to what does matter. Texas had 12,461 new documented cases yesterday. Illinois, with a smaller population, of course, 15,415 documented cases yesterday. That's pretty bad. Illinois' population is, is 12 million. Texas's population is 29 million, so there's, uh, we're talking about a factor of about uh, two and a half. And yet Illinois had the most cases, even more than Texas, who was second most. Florida, 69, uh, 33 cases, but they, they have a 21 million population. So that's higher, but not uh, horrendous. But some of the other states that have a lower population uh, per capita are, are getting hit pretty hard. Uh, Michigan, over 9,000 cases, and they have a population of 10 million. If you were to extrapolate that to what California's population would be, that would be like 36,000 in California, which California's got 10,000, which isn't wonderful, but not like what Michigan has, which would be like 3.6 times that population adjusted. Then uh, Kansas, they have a population of of, uh, fewer than 3 million. They have 2.9 million. They had 6,000 cases yesterday. If you were to extrapolate that to California's population, uh, that would be uh, a ton of cases because uh, even if you multiply that by 10, it would be less than uh, California's population. We'd be talking like 75,000 cases in a population like California if, if population adjusted. So the Kansas is really getting hit hard. Uh, Missouri, 5,800 with a population of 6 million. About you know two times better than Kansas, but still pretty bad. We have uh, Colorado, 6,400, with a population of 5.7 million, also bad. Wisconsin, this is strange, this is 7777, 7,777 new cases documented yesterday, population 5.8 million. Mm. Ohio, 8,000 new cases, population 11.6 million. Uh, even going to some uh, states with a much smaller population that are getting hit pretty hard. Uh, Oklahoma, they have a population of, of 4 million. They still had uh, 2,667 cases. A lot of this in Oklahoma City. And uh, the Dakotas, like South Dakota, has uh, 1,611 cases, which doesn't sound that bad, but they have fewer than uh, a million people. They have only 884,000 people. So that uh, that's pretty bad to have sixteen eleven cases. They have about one forty fifth the population of California. So if you multiply that sixteen eleven, that's pretty bad. 
North Dakota, only 762,000 people, and they have 1,429 cases. Again, very bad population-wise. So uh, we're just we're seeing a lot of cases in areas that didn't get it that much previously, and that's part of the reason. And then we have areas like Texas that are getting a lot of cases that, that were hit previously pretty hard. Now, Texas, they have a high population, so they're not getting it nearly as bad as any of these other states. But still, uh, they they are having the most deaths right now in the country in Texas. They have 216 deaths yesterday. Again, this is nothing like New York. New York, when they were at their worst, they were having over 1,000 deaths a day. We have nothing like that happening in the U.S. still. But we still had almost uh, 1,400 deaths yesterday. The number keeps going up. We were down way under 1,000 deaths per day for a long time, and now we're spiking up again. Why is this happening? Well, the belief is that this is because it's starting to get colder and people are spending more time indoors, and yet they're still socializing. There's even a belief that uh, COVID fatigue is taking place. And I don't mean fatigue from COVID. I mean fatigue from the lockdowns of COVID, from the restrictions of COVID. People want to be social again. People have just dealt with it for so long, they're kind of just tired of it. They're tired of not seeing their friends. They're tired of not dating. They're tired of not uh, going out places. So they're like, screw it. I've dealt with this for almost a year. I'm sick of it. If I get it, I get it. They go out or they go hang out with friends. They go to parties, whatever, and they get it. And that's kind of hard to control. I mean, it really, th- this is human nature to want to do this. Now, I, I've held back. I haven't done it. But everybody's not me. Everybody's got different personalities. And for some people, this is very difficult. For some people, they, they just can't stand it. And you know what? I also have a different situation than other people. I, I have my son here with me. I have my girlfriend with me. So I'm not just sitting alone. If I was a a, a single dude sitting alone and day after day after day, I'm just sitting by myself. Yeah, I'd probably go crazy too. I mean, having the internet helps to talk over the internet, but uh, you know, that's, that's not the same. If I was by myself and I couldn't have any interaction with other humans, uh, I would start to really want that too. And, and it would be, it would be, Pushing harder, I, I would want to do this more. I would have a harder time continuing to isolate. I probably would anyway, but it would be harder. And I wouldn't be having sex, which would be crappy too. <laughs> I wonder what single people are doing about this. Like, you, you have to balance the desire to have sex and to date and the desire not to get COVID. But if I were single, the, the not to get COVID thing would be stronger. I just would have to wait. I just have to picture like I'm 16 years old again. Anyway. Let's go back to the hospital thing. I just gave you a rundown on the stats. But what about the hospital thing? There have been reports in the media of places like El Paso, Texas, and Oklahoma City, that they're running out of hospital beds, that hospitals are getting full, that doctors and healthcare staff have been overwhelmed. Well, I, first of all, I believe they've been overwhelmed. I, I believe that it's very difficult in a place with a COVID hotspot to be a healthcare worker. I believe that if you are working in a hospital, 
you're probably just running around uh, in a very, very uh, frantic manner from patient to patient to patient trying to treat everybody and you're spread super thin and it's got to be super stressful and super hard and my my hats go off to those people and I admire all the work they're putting in and I feel that these are heroes and I admire everything they do and I think it's great. But there's a difference between that and simply not having a bed. So I, while I can feel for the healthcare workers and the plight they're in, uh, it's a big difference between that and actually just not having room for people and having to send them home when they need care. It's one thing to send people home because they don't need care, but to send people home who need care or they're going to get worse and you can't give it to them because there's no room, that is a big, big, big tragedy, and that is what we must prevent. But is it happening? It is being said and or implied in the media that this is happening. But... At least so far, it is not. I have seen no evidence that people are being turned away and actually sent home that they simply cannot get care if they were to need it. I haven't seen it. Now, I'm not saying that no hospitals are full. There probably are some that are full. But keep in mind, when a hospital is full, people can be sent somewhere else. So if you go to a hospital, you have COVID, you have breathing problems, they need to treat you. If they say, sorry, there's no more beds here because you're in a COVID hotspot and tons of other people like you have shown up, we just cannot treat you here. But it's not as bad. We called 10 miles down the road and 10 miles down the road, they do have space for you. What do you do? Do you go home or do you drive 10 miles down the road or have someone drive you 10 miles down the road, whoever drove you there? Yeah, of course, you go 10 miles down the road. COVID is not a heart attack. COVID is not a stroke. COVID does not require immediate right now treatment. COVID requires treatment fairly soon. But if minutes or hours pass and you don't get treated, provided you're not already at the very end, then it's fine. COVID is something that as long as you get to it fairly soon, meaning within the day, you're going to be fine and you're not going to be any worse off. You just don't want to wait days or even weeks, if you're having breathing problems. Because then you're risking your life. Then you're risking more permanent damage. So if you are in a condition where you've, you're having the breathing problems and you think you need to be hospitalized, you don't have to panic and think, oh my God, if I don't get into a hospital in the next uh, half an hour, I'm going to be dead. No, it's not like that. It's not like, it's not like you're having heart problems. That, that's when you got to panic and get to a hospital right now. And if they can't see you right now, Every minute counts. It's not like that with COVID. So if you need to drive 10 miles down the road, fine. You need to drive 20 miles down the road, fine. You need to drive 50 or 100 miles down the road, fine. It's not ideal, but you can and it will not harm you. And you can get someone else to drive you if you're not really in condition to drive 100 miles. So you don't love to hear, hey, uh, sorry, the closest hospital that can take you is 100 miles away, but you can do it. It's better than going home if you need the care. So the question isn't, can every hospital take someone? It is, is there a hospital within driving distance, within reasonable driving distance, that can take you? And as long as you can drive somewhere within a few hours and get into a hospital, then there's no actual crisis. 
it's starting to get concerning. They should start opening up the auxiliary hospitals at that point. But there's a big difference between having to send someone out of town to drive some distance or even a short distance to go to a different facility than sending them home saying, sorry, there's not room here for you and there's not room anywhere around here for you. Even if you drive 200 miles, there'll be no room for you. So go home and die. That's the tragedy. Being told, yeah, we're full around here, but go 100 miles and there's plenty of room for you. That's not a tragedy. That's an annoyance. That's something that needs to be addressed, but it's not a tragedy. But the media can accurately say without lying, all the hospitals are full in such and such city. But that doesn't mean people are being turned away. There's no beds remaining in such and such city. That doesn't mean people are being sent home to die. It just means that city, the hospitals there cannot take you, but the next city over might be able to. And they can find this out. They can call around and tell you where to go. You're not just going to be taking shots here. You can call yourself. You can call yourself and say, how many beds you got open? Okay, I'm coming down. But they can also do it for you. When I start hearing that people are being sent home and told you need care, but we can't give it because we're full and everybody else around here is full and everybody else within driving distance is full, that is when I will agree we have a crisis. Short of that, we don't. We have a situation, we have something that needs, that might need attention, but not a crisis. And nothing that's going to kill anyone. At least not yet. So don't panic about it yet. Presumably these pop-up auxiliary hospitals that came up in the spring, because remember in the spring they didn't know where this was going to go. The spring they, they didn't know if this is going to expand so rapidly. They, they didn't know if we'd be up to uh, uh, a million new cases a day at some point. Like they, they didn't know. It, it level out. It's, it's it, partially because of the, the social distancing and everything else that everyone was told to do. But we still didn't know. So there is a, there is some real concern that this could get to totally out of control numbers. And so in preparation for that, they quickly came up with solutions for auxiliary hospitals with, with additional beds. And then they ended up not needing them and shut them down. So presumably these can be started up again. And that's something you should also not ignore. So don't, don't believe everything the media tells you. The media wants ratings. The media wants to sensationalize. The media sometimes even has a political agenda. If, if you want to kick Trump in the ass out the door, make him look bad that people are being turned away from hospitals. Trump mishandled COVID so bad that now people are being sent home from hospitals. But it's not true. And if I'm wrong, show me. Show me an example of one person who was actually sent home and could not go to any hospital within drivable distance. Show me. Show me in the U.S. if this has happened, because I've never seen it. I'm still not seeing it. If you are living in an area that is being hammered by COVID, then you should not go out. You should try to avoid it. We know a lot more about COVID's transmission than we used to. And Really, it comes down to, it, it's really a numbers game. If you spend time indoors with people who you don't otherwise live with, and these people go out other places that often you don't know where they go and what they do, the more people you're with, and if you're indoors with them, and if you're indoors with them for a lot of time, and if you do this every day, then... 
eventually the numbers will come up, will catch up with you, and you'll get COVID. And if you do something that's a little bit risky once or twice, you could get super unlucky and catch it, but the chance is much smaller. For example, I had to go to the dentist a number of times. I have to go one more time to get the permanent crown put on for my root canal. I had no choice. I wasn't thrilled about it from COVID standpoint, but I thought, okay, if this is all I do, and I'm only doing it for you know an hour and a half, an hour each time, then and we're doing it like four or five total times in visits. Uh, you know, what's what's my real risk here? It's not very high. It's higher than zero, but it's it's, it's not very high. If I were to go uh, work in an office environment, five days a week, eight hours a day, then my chance is much higher. If I were to work in a supermarket or I were to work in somewhere that uh, you know a lot of people are coming through, yeah, my, my chance of getting sick of COVID is, is a lot higher. Working in a casino, a lot higher. So it becomes a numbers game. It's kind of like playing poker in a way. Sometimes you'll take horrendous beats. Sometimes you'll take the worst bad beat possible, which is uh, 1 in 989. The uh, When you could only lose to uh, two specific cards that have to come runner-runner. So sometimes that'll happen. But most of the times, 988 out of 989 times when you're in that spot, your hand's going to hold. So you, you pretty much take it for granted. Okay, my hand's going to hold. But... Yeah, it just says if you play a long poker session, you're going to, or play a lot of poker, let's say you play tons of hands of poker in one week online, you're going to take a lot of bad beats just because you played a lot of hands. If you play 10 hands, you're probably not going to take any bad beats, or maybe you'll take one, and you're probably not going to take any super awful bad beats, just because the numbers aren't there. So I'm telling you this because whatever you're doing, you have to ask yourself, am I okay with getting COVID? Am I okay with risking permanent lung damage if, if I'm over, say, 35, which most of you are? Am I okay risking permanent lung damage? Am I okay risking there's a small chance I'm going to die from it? Or if I'm elderly, a bigger chance of dying from it? Am I okay risking that? Seriously. If I'm not, then you should behave accordingly. And even if you are, you can still bring the risk down by trying to do things smarter, trying to not put yourself in risky situations. By the way, they have changed the statement about masks, the CDC has said uh, they previously said masks don't protect you, they only protect people around you they've gone on to say they also protect the person who uh, is wearing the mask, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, because uh, anything that's transmitted by saliva uh, will get blocked somewhat from a mask even like a cloth mask will block saliva from getting into your mouth when someone's speaking as gross as that sounds it happens all the time when you're close to someone you just don't notice because it's tiny amounts but uh, if, if so, a mask. It's understandable how even a cloth mask would reduce that. It definitely doesn't provide like full protection. So it's important to know that wearing a mask is smart, but it also is not your license to just go out and do what you want because it's a, it's not like you put a mask on and it's a shield from COVID. It's not like that. There's a 
decent chance you'll get it if you're in a place where COVID is and someone transmitting it is around you. Or even if someone transmits it into an air conditioner and then the air conditioner drops it on you. So it really is a numbers game. And I'm trying to keep my chance of getting COVID very low. Hoping if I wait it out, then a vaccine or treatment will take care of the rest and uh, I can get away with never having had COVID. If you haven't had it yet, then you may want to consider doing something that's similar. Like, I don't like delivery groceries. It's a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the ass doing the ordering. It's a pain in the ass having to get $35 worth without having to pay a horrible, crappy delivery fee. I just don't want to pay out of principle. So, like, I force myself to order $35 worth of stuff. And if I can't get there, I get kind of frustrated and I got to find, you know, what can I buy? And then then they make mistakes all the time. Even on our, we took this day trip I told you about to the mountains and it was a nice trip, but we brought turkey breast, like a type of uh, packaged turkey breast we like to make sandwiches out of. And it was good. And then when we got to the second package, it wasn't turkey breast, it was ham. And I, I didn't eat it. I did not eat the ham. I was very disappointed because the packages look the same until you really look at them closely. And the first one I grabbed was the turkey breast. So I'm like, I'm totally expecting the second package to have the turkey breast in it. And it did not. It did not. They got it wrong. They gave me turkey breast and ham for some reason. And you know. I'm not going to eat ham. So uh, I said, never mind. No ham for me. I got a refund for it, but... I wanted the damn turkey breast. That's what, that was our food for the trip. I got ham. So there's all kinds of mistakes. They forget things. Sometimes they forget and they don't charge me, but it's still annoying because I want the stuff. Sometimes they forget and they do charge me, which is even worse. And I got to complain. I will say you can complain by email and they're very lax about it. So they... Refund you no questions. I don't take advantage. I don't uh, lie about it. But at least I don't have to fight with customer service reps about it and convince them. But it's very easy to request. But it's a, still a pain to do. And it's it's more of a pain just not to have the stuff. And then like they'll forget something. Then I try to order the next order. And by then they're sold out of it. It's, it I just like going to the freaking store and getting what I want. And, and that's it. If I forget something, I just go back there and get it. I don't have to worry about ordering $35 for the stuff. I don't like any of this, but I do it to keep down the COVID risk. That's why I do it. Also, I used to be obsessed with expiration dates. So I'd be in the store and I'd make sure to grab the one with the farthest expiration dates. You know, so they put the milk in the front that's expiring fairly soon. And I would get on my knees and I'd get all the way to the back there and grab the milk all the way in the back that expires uh, you know, four days later. Sometimes even a week later. And whatever it is, I'll find the one expiring last. And uh, and then I'll also make sure just not to buy it at all if it's something that we don't immediately need that is expiring soon. But I can't do that with these online ordering. They just give me whatever the hell they want. And then they also uh, will sometimes deliver expired things, which is annoying too. So I don't like the whole thing. I like doing things for myself. I like doing things my way. I don't like putting it in other people's hands. They never do it right the convenience becomes inconvenience, but I do it because I don't want to catch COVID. Okay. 
I didn't get to play young Eric Benzamokin Bensamakan's ad, but I, I do want to mention. I mean, you don't need to hear the ad. You've heard it every week. But uh, Eric is a very good attorney. He has been on top of my case the entire way. The case where Mike Possle is uh, suing me very frivolously for defamation. It's nonsense. It's a crap lawsuit. But nonetheless, I'm named and must defend it. And Eric Benzamokin, whose actual pronunciation has been Samakan, but I can't accept, has done a great job. He sends me documents to uh, see and to sign off on. And I give a big fat thumbs up saying, this is great. I like it. And I'm, you know, I'm not uh, an attorney, of course, but I, I have an idea of what uh, a good uh, document and a bad document look like and what a good legal effort, a bad legal effort look like. And uh, I get it and I read it and I go, I am so glad that after talking him up like this that I don't have to uh, have the shame of saying that I had Eric Benzamokin as my attorney and he did a crappy job. I, I don't have to say that because it's not true. I'm very happy with everything that he has done and hopefully this will land the right way. You never know with the court system, but hopefully it will land the right way for me. It will be slow though. I was <laughs> having that discussion with him recently and you haven't heard any updates because everything is damn slow because of COVID right now. It's slow anyway, the court system, but it's especially slow now. So this may proceed at a snail's pace, but when we can give you an update, we will, but that doesn't mean things aren't going on behind the scenes. So if you have any kind of uh, legal concern and you're in California or you think your case may qualify as a federal level case, no matter where you are, then uh, you can email him. That's uh, eric at eblawfirm.us. Eric at eb, that's like for Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. He's a very nice, easygoing guy. He's not going to bite your head off for bothering him with with your problem. Yeah, he's, you'll, you'll see. There's some attorneys who act in a very intimidating and arrogant fashion. He's the opposite of that. And you've heard him. Like the way you hear him on the show is the way he is in real life. And I've spent time with him in real life. I've talked to him on the phone. I've uh, texted with him a lot. So I've gotten to know him well over the last, uh, what, like two and a half years or so. And now he's actually my attorney. I'm actually his client right now. So I just wanted to mention that. And, uh, want to mention that you should contact him if you think he can uh, help you out as your attorney, if you need one. You never know when you will need one. I didn't think I needed one, then I did. <laughs> All right, we're done here. We're going to be back on next week on November 20th. Thanksgiving will be on, uh, I believe it's the 26th. Is this the 26th? Let me see. Thanksgiving. I didn't even keep track when Thanksgiving is. Let me see. Thanksgiving is the other 26th. I was right. I shouldn't doubt myself. Thanksgiving is the 26th, and uh, I don't think it's going to change our schedule because we're a Friday show. And I believe that uh, I'll be able to do it on Friday the 27th. But we're definitely doing it Friday the 20th. And uh, we should be doing it every Friday for the foreseeable future. Sometime in December, we'll have another video show, if you enjoyed that. 
we'll have a lot of the uh, the gang back. And uh, yeah, so we'll continue with the show pretty much every week when I can. Of course, I, I missed a week, and then I missed another week. One week I missed because of uh, the root canal. And one week I missed because we did the video show instead. That wasn't quite missing it. That was just kind of changing the format one week. But normally we'll have a show every week, especially because I am not traveling anywhere, which really... Between not traveling and not getting colds, (laughs) a lot of the reasons I miss episodes are pretty much gone. So I'm not going to the WSOP, I'm not traveling, and I'm not getting colds. So really we're down to uh, dental problems that would keep me away from a show. And I, I can't think of much else other than maybe changing the date if uh, I'm going somewhere. Like, I, occasionally I'll go visit, visit my parents, and that can ch- that'll change around the date if I'm going there. But there's not much else that changes this. Hopefully I won't more, have more root canals. One was enough. Thanks to, thanks to the wonders of Xanax to help me get through that. And... Uh, I don't know if I mentioned. I guess I guess I haven't given you guys this update. I was having. <laughs> remember, I was mentioning I was having some tooth pain after the root canal, and I was worried the whole thing was like for nothing. I was worried I went through that awful thing and paid a bunch of money, and then have to lose the tooth anyway. And the dentist's like, I don't think this happened, but there could be a tiny fracture that nobody could see, and that didn't couldn't even be picked up in the X-ray. And if that's the case, and that's what's hurting you, then you're going to have to lose the tooth. And I'm like, no. He goes, no, 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 don't worry. There's only a small chance of that. But I'm like, I'm tapping on the tooth. I'm going, shit, you know what? This totally feels like what like what I picture a fracture would feel like. I've never had a fracture, but like it was like pain within the freaking tooth after the root canal. And I'm going, that really, like it was like tapping, like you tap on the tooth, it would really hurt. Like really hurt. And I'm going, shit. That seems like like a structural issue with the tooth. I'm so unhappy after all that. But then it got better. It took like 10 days. It shouldn't have taken 10 days, but it took 10 days. Not the dentist's fault. Just like, I have some weird idiosyncrasy with my mouth that if I have major dental work, it takes like way longer for the pain to go away. Like it heals great. From all observation, it looks great. But then pain-wise, it takes like way longer than it should. And that just that happened with the extractions. That's why I was like, okay, I bet it's like that. And I was right. It just, it just took 10 days instead of like two. But the important thing was not the 10 days. The important thing was that the root canal was not wasted. So Now, everything's done. They just have to put on the permanent crown, and that is a very simple matter. And hopefully I don't deal with this again. Though I have some fillings I still need to have done. and I, I'm going to get those soon, too, because I, I don't want those to become a freaking root canal. But... Uh, Oh, I, I will be missing uh, not anytime soon. I'm going to get a colonoscopy. My first one ever. I'm going to get a colonoscopy uh, fairly soon. Probably not in 2020, though, but in early 2021. And if you're uh, over 45, you should really look into doing that, especially if anybody in your family who is uh, either a parent or grandparent had colon cancer at any point. Or had a colonoscopy, and they found a polyp that was uh, close to turning cancerous. If uh, that has occurred in your family, as it has in mine, then you should get a colonoscopy at age 45 or later. But preferably at 45, and I haven't done it. so I'm getting close to 49, 
I should have done it before, but I have not yet. The whole idea of it kind of is something I don't uh, like thinking about, but uh, I got to get it done. Colon cancer is actually 100% preventable if you get these on the schedule that uh, you're told to get it, provided you don't get some like super unusual, like early 40s case. But uh, other than that, uh, if you get it after, if you get colonoscopies at the Frequency they tell you to, then you won't get colon cancer. You will not die of colon cancer. It's one of the few cancers you can actually fully prevent. Most of them you just have to hope you don't get. So that I'll probably miss the show that week, but it won't be for a while. Won't be till next year, most likely. If you're wondering about our 400th episode, looking like around April, we will do something for that. We didn't do much for our 300. We didn't do anything for our 300th episode, but we'll we'll do something for our 400th episode. I'm not sure what yet. I'm sure uh, Brandon will want to be part of that. We'll figure out when that's going to be in advance. I know we're going to have a nice free roll for that. Belly Buster's already mentioned wanting to do that. And thank you, everybody, for being part of this show's audience for all this time. Whether you're uh, a new listener to the show or someone who's been around forever, I appreciate it. Because if I had no audience, I just wouldn't do it. I really wouldn't. Got to have an audience. I appreciate those who make contact with me and those who stay silent. Though really, if you've never made contact before, you can text me, 775-372-8355. You can just say, I just want to let you know I listen to the show and I'm here. I'm not going to put you through a long conversation. I won't even put you through any conversation if you don't want me to do that. I always like hearing from new listeners, but I even have people texting me sometimes like I'll get a text from a phone number. I won't recognize it. And then I'll look and it turns out like the person texted me last, like in 2014. And they just, they just had nothing to say for the last uh, six years. And then they have something to say now. They've been listening the whole time. Like I forgot that person existed, but they've been listening to me. They didn't forget I existed. Okay. Well, be safe from COVID if you're in one of the hot spots. A lot of them in the country right now. I imagine some of you are going to get it. In fact, some of you have texted me that you have it. Master Scaler has it. I guess we're done. Sometimes I like to do this version. This is the jazz version. This is the end of uh, Archie Bunker's Place. You know, a problem with... Archie Bunker's place is they got rid of Edith early on. They killed her off. And then it just became too much about Archie and his uh, bar. His bar, restaurant, whatever the hell it was. And there really were no characters left, for the most part, from All in the Family other than Archie. Everybody else was new. I know Gloria came back from a little bit when her when her sitcom failed. But I don't know. I, I just couldn't get into it as much. And I'm talking about like later on because I, I was a kid when all that was on. But when I watched it as an adult, like when I went back to watch the Archie Bunker's Place reruns, they just weren't the same as All in the Family. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't quite the same. Ben Affleck's mom was in there. Not Ben Affleck. Ben Stiller's mom. Sorry. Ben Stiller's mom and Mira played uh, drunk, short-order cook Veronica. 
she died uh, fairly recently. Both his parents died not too long ago. She died, and then his dad, uh, Jerry Stiller, died. And they were still together. They were, like, together for, like, almost 60 years. Okay. We'll see where Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu end up by next week. They claim they're going to play more hands. I, I hope Negreanu's ahead. I want to win this underdog bet. And root for 221 Democratic seats in the House. Then I'll win 20-something thousand dollars. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Good night, everybody. And Shalom. Shalom.